Hey, Deserving Listeners. About a year ago, I did a deep dive on suicide at the request of many patrons. And ever since then, I've always thought that I didn't really like that episode because I was a little uh, disorganized and a little long-winded. So I've been mildly obsessing about it. And over the past couple months, I have been revisiting my notes, condensing them to about a quarter of the length they were before, reorganizing things to make it easier to understand, shifting things around. So I want a second chance doing a deep dive on suicide, this time more organized, I think better statistics, blah, 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 getting to the point faster, that kind of thing. In this episode, I'm going to be briefly going over some t- some statistics, not too much. I'm going to talk about the history of suicide and culture. I'm going to, but mainly what I'm going to focus on is uh, my model of why people think about suicide, and also my system of assessing and determining risk level and my treatment of suicide. That's the main thing. You know, the main reason why I'm doing this is because uh, pretty much, I don't know, on a monthly basis or more often, I find myself with my supervisees, students, and trainees going over this material in a very detailed way because suicide assessment for clinicians is a very complicated thing. Uh, By the way, this whole episode could also be applied to homicidal intent assessments as well. Uh, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, the approach and the assessment and the, and the treatment are basically the same. Uh, so, uh, you know, consider it sort of a double dip in that way. But I find myself going over this with my students all the time, and there's just so many details. And so part of the reason why I wanted to do this actually was so I wanted to go over my notes and uh, compile a document for myself that I could reference when I'm actually uh, teaching this system to students and supervisees and trainees. So let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle uh, podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. And this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you want to hear this full episode, it'll probably be, I don't know, two or three hours instead of 10 hours. (laughs) And if you want, so if you're not a patron of the podcast yet, you got to go to patreon.com, go to patreon.com and become a patron of this podcast. And when you become a patron, you'll get access to this full episode along with hundreds of other episodes that are only available to patrons. We have over a 1,000 episodes, and I don't know, two or 300 of our best are only for patrons of the podcast. So become a patron by going to patreon.com, and then you'll get access to this episode, which, especially if you're a clinician, I would imagine that this would be helpful to you. Even if you feel like you had some training in it, uh, I find that this system that I've developed makes it so much easier for me to follow. You know, I, one of the biggest benefits to me doing deep dives like this is now I have a system when I'm actually treating my own clients. Um, I have my own notes, my own understanding of assessment and risk level and all that kind of stuff and treat safety planning. Safety planning is actually pretty complicated. And so, uh, yeah, become a patron. Do it now. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone people. Thanks so much for becoming a patron. So the first thing I want to talk about is I'm just going to provide a summary of the whole episode right at the beginning because I don't want to wait until the end 
to provide you with the main point of this whole episode. So here are the main points. Uh, the first main point I want to make is is why do people attempt suicide to begin with? But before I go into that, I want to remind everyone out there that if you have thoughts of suicide yourself, because I know some of you do, you want to be very careful listening to this episode. You want to monitor your own suicidality, your own mood, your own emotions. Uh, when some people who are at risk of suicide are exposed to any topic of suicide, it can actually be the last straw for people to move towards attempting. And so if you're at risk uh, and you're not quite sure if you should listen to this, I recommend you do not. At the very least, talk with your therapist about it. Uh, but again, when in doubt, just don't listen to it. It's, it's not worth it. Uh, and again, if you're having trouble if, and you don't have a therapist, get yourself to a therapist. And if you have a therapist, then ask them. Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is why do people attempt suicide to begin with? You know, I think this is an important topic that we don't often talk about because in order to understand suicide, in order, in order to understand what we're assessing, in order to understand how to treat it, in order to understand how to prevent it, we have to understand why people want to kill themselves to begin with. So there's a lot of theories, which I'll go into later, but I'll, I'll just provide my uh, compilation of the, very, of the other theories that are out there. I find that this model makes the most sense to me. It has five parts. The number one is the individual has to be experiencing some form of distress. For example, depression, anxiety, rejection, you know, divorce, grief, complicated grief, physical problems, chronic pain, loss, you know, financial problems, this kind of thing. Some sort of major distress that's that's that could be ongoing or it could be quite acute. Like your spouse could suddenly tell you that they want to divorce you and you had no idea that that was coming or your uh, you could suddenly be laid off from your job and for the first time in your life all of a sudden all of a sudden you're thinking about suicide and um, and attempt right away. So that's another sort of thing to think about is that sometimes it's ongoing issues and sometimes as a clinician we will see suicidality over time and for some people it's very has a very sudden onset and actually often that's the scariest version because they are sometimes not getting any treatment um, and don't really have a way of processing their feelings but anyway so distress number one number two is perceived hopelessness about that distress i.e. it'll never get better so distress, something, something bad is happening in their life, and then two, perceived hopelessness about this. Like, it's just not going to get better. Think about someone who loses their job and they have to, you know, sell their house. And they're just like, this is never going to get – and for whatever reason, they think this is never going to get better. They don't feel like they're going to get a job soon. They feel like it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Whereas another person who loses their job, but they have hope. They, for some reason, there's, they go, oh, I bet you, you know, I could go back to my old job that I had five years ago. So that's, there has to be some kind of hopelessness about it. Depression, where it's just an, just an ongoing slog of mood disorders for years and years and years. And you've tried all the pills and the treatments, and it's just not getting any better. 
um, being rejected uh, chronically by people and, and you've tried all the different techniques to have a social life and you just, nah, it's nothing, ever, I'm hopeless, it's never going to work. So, so, so hopelessness around the distress. Number three is perceived thwarted belongingness. So you want to belong, but you've been thwarted and you perceive that to be true. And the, way, why, the reason why I have perceived is that sometimes people can perceive that they're being rejected by other people, even though they're not. So it has to be perceived, right? So this is, this is an important uh, element of the theory of suicidal in, intention is that people have to be trying to belong, but they feel like they're being thwarted. And this is important because some people are isolated and they're fine with it. They don't have a lot of friends. They don't have a lot of relationships. They might be a little bit lonely and they might be missing out on some things. But for some people, they're okay with it. You know, they don't feel like they're being rejected uh, harshly. They, they just kind of are quiet and alone and they're cool with that. Whereas other people, they might have lots of people around them, but they feel as though they're being rejected and uh, excluded in some way very easy examples are the the mass shooters that we see a lot of times they they often will talk about how they feel like they're being thwarted in terms of their belonging uh to a group uh or in divorce you know being broken up with so some kind of like rejection uh you feel like you're being rejected uh number 4 and and this is important number 3 is the thwarted belongingness is important because Say someone has chronic pain and they're and they're hopeless about it, but you know what? They feel like they're a part of their family. They feel like they're an integral, you know, part of a loving family that accepts them. Then that's a protective factor. Uh, number four is acqu- acquired means to you know try to kill themselves, like a gun or pills or something. So you know you can have all the intention in the world to kill yourself, but if you don't have a way of killing yourself, then you're not likely to attempt. Right. And the fifth. A component in my model of suicidal intention is the acquired capability, i.e. you have a plan, you've, you might have rehearsed a plan, at least in your head, and you have a plan for how to deal with your own fear response. This is important because, again, you could have the distress, you could be hopeless about it, you could have, you know, you could be thwarted in terms of belongingness, you feel like you're rejected, you have a gun, but you haven't really worked out how you're going to overcome the fear of shooting yourself. And that's an important step. And again, I just want to check in with people. If you are squirmish about this, have some trauma around it, and or you have suicide yourself, then you, you know, maybe someone you know uh, uh, killed themselves. You want to check in with your body, your emotions, because this is a tough subject for a lot of people. And again, don't take the risk. Just stop listening because it's, it's not worth it. Um, so, so again, distress, perceived hopelessness about the distress, perceived thwarted belongingness, acquired means, and acquired capability. So that's, that's my compilation of the various models and theories of suicide. Now, for us clinicians, when there is an indication of suicide risk that we see in our clients – we need to adequately assess our clients to determine risk level. This is an important thing that I feel like I always have to tell trainees and supervisees is that we don't just assess to assess 
we assess to determine risk level. We don't just ask a bunch of questions about suicide and then document it and walk away. We're, the only reason why we're asking questions is because we're trying to determine risk level. Once we determine risk level, then we know what to do. We have no idea what to do just based on an amorphous assessment. The, we ask questions, we determine the risk level, and then we know what to do given that risk level. Um, okay, so we need to assess uh, eight different things. So these are all my categories. So the first thing we need to assess as clinicians is the problem. Why do they want to kill themselves in the first place? We need to understand this because it'll help us understand the foundation of the suicidal thoughts. Uh, that's what I was talking about earlier. It's like in order to help people, not only to prevent suicide, to assess the suicide, but also to treat it is we have to understand why, you know, what is the distress? How do they experience the distress? How does it come and go in their life? What is it like? How do they interface with, with that distress? Number two, so number one, assess the problem. Why do they want to kill themselves? Number two, you want to assess, you want to assess past and current treatment. This is very important. It helps in a number of ways. One is, is that it helps you to understand the context. You know, if they already have a psychiatrist, then that's something you need to know, right? But it also helps us understand what's worked and what has not worked. And that's something you want to ask them. It's like, okay, what treatment have you had in the past? What has worked to reduce your risk? What, what has worked not to reduce your risk? This is very important to understand. Number three is where we spend most of our time. And this is assessing ongoing risk factors. So these are all the risk factors that come into play that inform us as to um, how at risk someone is in terms of their um, likelihood of dying from suicide soon. And I've, uh, uh, I have 11 different categories here. Number one is suicide, you want to assess their suicidal ideation and their attempts. So you want to get, you know, given your time constraint, you want to get um, as much as you can in terms of the history of their suicidal ideation over time. And, and often you want to use a scale, you know, like how, how intense was the suicidal thought, how intense were the suicidal thoughts over time? Because it's hard to describe and it's, it's, it's an easy thing to do for people to scale, you know, with 10 being the most suicidal thoughts you ever had and zero being zero suicidal thoughts. Where were you? You know, how does it track over time? And you also want to as assess attempts, you know, when have they attempted, you know, all that, you know, assessment is very important. Number two, you want to uh, you want to assess their mental conditions, particularly mood disorders. There are others which I'll get into later. Number three, you want to assess trauma, childhood difficulties and loss, you know, bad past experiences, particularly recent losses and traumas. So you, you want to uh, ask clients or maybe you even know, given your other conversations, have they had any recent losses and or recent traumas? Because these are the most associated with an attempt. Uh, and I'll get into the other uh, factors later. Number four are health factors, particularly chronic pain and terminal illness. You want to assess for that. Number five, personality factors. For example, negative emotionality, aggression, perceived burdensomeness, perceived burdensomeness, perceived thwarted belongingness, and rumination. You want to assess for those personality factors and others that I'll get into later. Number six, you want to uh, assess social and family factors that contribute to suicidal intent, like 
particularly relationship difficulties, family conflict, and isolation. So when we're, you want to assess, you know, are they having relationship difficulties? Is their family in a lot of conflict? Are they isolated? These are important things to assess. Number seven is you want to assess suicidal contagion. Did someone close to them complete a suicide recently or a famous person that they like? Is there a popular TV show about suicide, like 13 Reasons Why, that they've been watching? This is important to assess. Very important. And I'll get into more of that later. Number eight, you want to assess behavioral factors, particularly noncompliance or disengagement from services or having a gun or abusing alcohol. I'll get into more behavioral factors later, but those are the biggies. Number nine, you want to assess marginalization, particularly poverty, unemployment, uh, being LGBTQIA plus, or are they experiencing any kind of bullying or any kind of racism or something? These are important things to, to, to assess because they definitely raise the risk of suicide. Number 10, uh, this is a minor thing, but it's worth noting in the in my notes is time of day, day a week, and the moon cycle. <laughs> it's not really uh, worth noting since there aren't very many associations uh, with these things. I will tell, I will spoil alert. Uh, <laughs> the moon cycle has nothing to do with suicide. Time of day, day of week, time of year has something to do with it, but. Um, so part of the reason why I even list it here is I just want people to understand that there's not a lot of strong associations there. And number 11, the final uh, risk factor we, you want to assess are demographic factors, uh, particularly if they're a white male or a Native American, particularly if they're on a reservation, if they're a veteran or people with disabilities. These people are particularly at risk of completing suicide. Uh, just rattling off the most. So I, I just gave you all the 11 categories for all of the uh, risk factors that you want to assess that I'll get into more later. But I just want to rattle off the most common risk factors that you really want to pay attention to. Gender. Are they male? Because if they're male, they're much more likely to complete. Do they own a gun? Have they had prior attempts? Do they have a plan? Are they hopeless? Do they perceive themselves as a burden? To other people, do they have a physical illness? Do they have a mental health disorder? Mental health disorder, particularly a mood disorder. Do they have trauma? Have they have they had childhood ad- adversities? Are they bereaving? Are are they? Is there a loss? Is there grief? Complicated grief? Do they have relationship difficulties? Has there been an employment or financial crisis? Do they exhibit aggression and impulsivity? Do they have a lack of control over their own life? Do they feel like they're out of control? Have they disengaged from services? Are they non-compliant with the medication? And have they recently been discharged from the hospital? So all those are the are the main things you really want to look for. Uh, but I'll get into more of that later. So again, what do we need to assess here? We want to assess the problem, number one. We want to assess past and current treatment, number two. We want to assess ongoing risk factors, number three. Those are the 11 categories I just provide. Number four, you want to assess acute warning signs and behavior. So this is to assess the imminent nature of the suicidal intent. So uh, these are risk factors or signs that will point to them being very likely to attempt very soon. Not always. They're not always present when people attempt, but they're things to watch out for. 
and mainly when we're looking for these, we're trying to detect hidden intent for clients who maybe they're not being forthcoming to us about their intent. So these are things like giving stuff away. So when people start, when people have had, you know, ongoing suicidal ideation and they're telling you as a clinician, they're telling you um, that they, that they're not at risk of suicide anytime, anytime soon. But they're also talking about how they're giving stuff away. They're going through the attic and, you know, they're, they're giving away their, um, I don't know, things that are important to them. You know, that's just a sign. Um, how are they, have they withdrawn from other people? Are they really isolating themselves? That's another sign. Do they have a lot of dark thoughts? Have they had an increase in aggressive thoughts and behavior? This is, this is another uh, key element to suicide is, is aggression. Uh, not always, for sure. Uh, do they have just strange behavior in general? These are just things to watch out for. So that's number four. You're trying to assess acute warning signs. Number five is assess protective factors. These are all, this is the counterbalance to the risk factors. So uh, you want to assess their social support. Do they belong in a group? Do they belong to a family? Do they belong to relationships? Is there someone that's going to be with them 24-7? You know, do they, do they live with uh, their spouse and their three kids um, as opposed to living alone? Do they exhibit emotional regulation skills? Do they have coping skills? Are they resilient in general? Do they have signs of resiliency? Do they have hope for the future? Do they have a reason to live? Are they cooperating with treatment? There are other protective factors that I'll get into later, but those are the biggies. Number six is you want to assess an intent. Again, this is to assess the risk level. You know, how intent are they to die? You want to use a scale there as well. People can have a lot of thoughts about suicide, but if they don't intend on attempting, then their risk is lower. Number seven, you want to assess plan, preparations, and rehearsals. Again, this is to calculate risk level. Do they have a plan? If so, what is the plan? Have they, you know, prepared or, you know, have, have they rehearsed the plan? Number eight is you want to assess the means. Again, this is to assess risk level. Do they have access to the means of their plan? If their plan is to shoot themselves, but they don't own a gun, then, you know, that tells us something. Um, all right, uh, which I'll get into more later in detail. So after we do that assessment, we have those eight categories, and I'll go over them again. The problem... Number one. Number two, past and current treatment. Number three, ongoing risk factors, uh, which, are, which is the main bulk of the assessment. Number four, acute warning signs. Number five, uh, protective factors. Number six, intent. Number seven, the plan. Number eight, the means. So after you assess all those things, which for some people out there, you might be like, and whenever I'm teaching this, you're like, oh my God, that would take five hours. No, it doesn't. With practice, makes uh, you get better at it. I can assess all of those eight things within seven minutes, honestly. Uh, you, you learn what things not to ask based on how they're responding. You don't have to ask them every single question. <laughs> um, some questions are more important than others. You kind of gauge the client a little bit. Uh, some of us, though, have, have five hours, have 10 hours to actually assess these with, with our clients. Um, so I'm not going to say that you don't have that luxury. Um, okay, so after we assess those eight different areas, we uh, need to determine the risk level, right? Because once we determine the risk level, then we'll know what to do. 
in my previous deep dive, I only had, I think, three different risk levels, which I no longer like. I now have adopted what a lot of people do, but not everyone, is a five-tiered risk level uh, system. So number one is no risk at all. So these people have never had suicidal intent, suicidal ideation, and um, or they've never, or they haven't had any recent suicidal ideation. You know, this a person could have had suicidal ideation when they were a teenager, and now they're forty-two years old, and they haven't thought about suicide since they were thirteen. This person is what I would categorize as no risk of suicide. So there's really no reason to do anything. Many of our clients fit into this category. Um, we ask in the first session, "Have you ever thought about suicide?" They're like, "No," or they're like, "Well." I thought about it a little bit when I was 13 years old, but I never had a plan and never attempted because things were kind of stressful back then. But I haven't thought about it since. And, you know, I, I can't imagine I would ever think about it. So this person is categorized as no risk. Sometimes you will categorize these people as low risk, but I actually don't like that because it's a little silly. <laughs> um, now, of course, we can never predict things. You know, there's always a chance that things could get out of control, you know, suddenly for them and they could have a spike in intent. And that does happen to some people. But I just kind of like the category that recognizes, like, look, this person has, this person has never had suicidal ideation or not within the past ten years, and so that's no risk. Number two is low risk. This is someone who has suicidal ideation currently or in recent past, but they have no current plan, they have no intent, and they have they exhibit no suicidal behavior. A behavior are things like. Um, you know, what looks to be to other people risk signs, you know, like erratic, aggressive anger, threats of suicide, these kinds of things or behaviors. So, uh, so again, low risk is someone who has suicidal ideation. They, and they might even say things like, I just, I wished I was never born, but they don't have a plan. They don't have intent and they don't exhibit any behavior. So for these people, there's, there's no need for a safety plan but it's okay if you do. There's, you know, a safety plan isn't going to hurt, but there's really no need for a safety plan. But you need to establish a treatment plan that involves monitoring and keeping the risk low. Okay, so we had no risk, we had low risk, and now we have medium risk. This is someone who also has suicidal ideation, but they also have a plan. But they have no recent intent and no recent behavior. So with these people, they, you know, they, they think about suicide as a way out from their distress. They have developed a plan, either firm or amorphous. You know, they have a, you know, well, here's how I would do it. Uh, with these people, I would categorize them as medium risk. Not everyone would, but I would. Many people do. These people, you want to have a safety plan that involves emotional regulation and support. And you want to establish a treatment plan that involves lowering risk. Um, so medium medium risk, that's when we definitely say, yes, you need a safety plan, which makes sense. Number four is high risk. So these people have suicidal ideation. They think about suicide. They have a plan, just like medium risk people do. And they also have intent to, to follow through on the plan. But they convincingly indicate that they won't attempt soon. So people in this category will typically say, yep. Uh, you know, I've for the past three months, I have had a pretty serious bout of suicidality. I'm in a lot of distress. I feel like it's the only way out of my distress. 
I definitely know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hang myself or something. And, um, and I definitely at times am highly motivated to do it. You have a conversation with them and they, they convincingly indicate to you as the therapist that they won't attempt soon. They will say things like, but I'm not going to do it anytime soon. Um, I, I couldn't do that to my mother or I couldn't do that to my kids or something. But, you know, I'm not going to say it doesn't run through my mind. So this is high risk. This is definitely concerning. Uh, but they're not imminently at risk. So with these people, you want a very robust safety plan that hopefully involves 24-7 monitoring by someone close to them, hopefully a family member. So a robust safety plan to help them manage their suicidal ideation. Um, you want to monitor their compliance with treatment. You want to monitor the acute warning signs. But um, hopefully you're going to get someone watching them all the time. In some rare cases, I will allow a client who doesn't have anyone who can watch them agree to a safety plan and walk out of my office. But, um, but I'm, I feel so much more secure in the safety of the client when I can call their mother and say, I need you to move in to your daughter's apartment and be with her over the next couple weeks because she's at imminent, she's at high risk of suicide and she needs someone there 24 seven. I, I feel I, I've never had someone, uh, you know, attempt under those circumstances. There's something very magical about having someone there all the time that prevents people from attempting. So that's high risk, and I'll go into them more later. Number five, the highest risk we have here is what I'm going to call imminent risk. So you have suicidal ideation. You're thinking about suicide. The person has a plan, and they have imminent intent to do it, either overt or covert. So overt imminent intent is saying, I might try tonight. They're in your office and they're like, I might, I can't guarantee that I'm not going to attempt tomorrow. Um, I, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm very on the edge right here. Um, or it's covert imminent intent, meaning that they're not telling you that they're going to do it, but they have all the warning signs. So at this risk uh, level, we do not involve ourselves with any kind of safety plan. We require hospitalization, which I'll get into more later in terms of how to, how to go about that. Okay, so uh, again, just to review <laughs> everything we've been talking about so far, um, we have my model, uh, you got distress, hopelessness, thwarted belongingness, you have means and capability, all those together, uh, people tend, t tend to be at high risk of suicide. Uh, we need to assess to develop a safety plan so we know what to do. Um, we want to assess the eight different areas I laid out. We ha and then we have the five different risk levels, which tell us what to do. No risk, we don't have to do anything. Low risk, maybe a safety plan, maybe not, but definitely a treatment plan that involves monitoring and keeping the risk low. Medium risk, uh, they have ideation, they have a plan, but they have no intent or behavior. Definitely a safety plan and establish a plan that involves lowering risk and, and monitoring. Uh, high risk, they have suicidal ideation, they have a plan, they have intent, but they convincingly indicate they don't that they're not going to attempt soon. Uh, this this you need a robust safety plan that needs to be airtight, and um, which often involves more sessions per week. By the way, basically they just need to be around people who can make sure that they don't do it. Um, I best case scenario, it's it's a family member. 
And then imminent risk, meaning that you believe that they are going to attempt in the near future. And in this situation, we require hospitalization, mainly for that monitoring aspect of hospitalization. Hospitalization uh, for most people is not going to take away their suicidality, but it will get them through the week of high uh, imminent risk that um, will usually subside. Okay, so what should the safety plan include um, once we establish that we need to have a safety plan? And, and remember, these are people who are medium, high, or imminent risk. And I have developed 10 different things that need to be included. Number one is a plan for likely triggers. Number two is identify things to avoid, like um, suicide podcasts, for example. Um, just knowing what tends to increase uh, suicidal thoughts, drinking alcohol, that kind of thing. Number three, involve supports in safety planning if possible, like I was talking earlier. Uh, maybe they even come to session. Number four, list effective coping skills out on the safety plan. So this is a safety plan you you know you write out physically with a client there. Um, so number four is you want to list their effective coping skills, what they have found to work. Number five, list supportive people that they can reach out to. Number six, remove access to means. So if they have guns in the house on the safety plan, it has to say you got to get rid of those. Number seven, when when the client is in doubt, they will call the crisis line or 911. So this is important. If they're in an imminent crisis or they're having you know some kind of, they don't know what to do, uh, and they're scared, they need to call 911 or call the crisis line. Number eight, and you will give them those numbers. Number eight is you want to establish contingencies for no-shows, cancellations, and not responding to your communications. This is very important. Um, when you have a client, so say this is, and this is often omitted from the safety plan. It drives me nuts when I have supervisees come to me afterwards about this. They will have a client who they developed a safety plan with, and then the and the the client is medium or high risk or something, and then the client doesn't come to the next session. So the therapist is now worried, and the therapist calls the client. The client doesn't respond, and now so now what is the therapist supposed to do? Uh, the therapist, the last time the therapist saw the client, they determined they were high risk of suicide. Um, maybe the client just forgot the session or maybe the client is dead. Maybe the client is falling into despair and isn't coming to therapy because he or she is you know, really uh, at high at risk of suicide. Um, you don't know. And as a therapist, you don't want to play that game. So uh, often... What I will have to do with my supervisees is you got to call 911 because uh, there's too much risk there. And there's, too, there's no guarantee that the client isn't, isn't even at imminent risk now. Um, now. But the supervisee of mine will be like, oh, my God, I'm going to call the cops on, on my client. And I'm like, well, you didn't include it in the safety plan like we talked about earlier. So when your client is in front of you, you have to say, okay. We have to establish what I'm going to do as your therapist if you don't show to a future session and or you don't uh, respond to my phone calls. So if you don't show, I'm going to call you. If you don't answer, I'm going to call 911 because I can't, I don't know what else to do because I'm worried about your safety. 
So you establish that up front so that when it happens and you do that, you can't blame yourself as a therapist and, and the client can't yell at you <laughs> because uh, you, did, you explained why you have to do that for the client. It's very important to have that in the safety plan. Number nine is you want to contract for safety. Now, there's some controversy about that I'll get into later, but I, I think it's certainly a, a good part of any good safety plan. And the last thing, number 10, is you want to establish a clear plan for future sessions. So what are you going to do with the treatment, with the sessions in therapy to monitor, reduce the risk, and address the underlying issues? So all that needs to be in the safety plan. Uh, The next thing you need to do is you need to put the safety plan in your uh, file. And you you just also want to give a copy to the client, of course, and anyone else that needs it. You also want to document well, which I get into later. You need to document well to help treatment and also to cover your own ass because that's very important. I'll get into more of that later. Uh, Now, treatments. What do we do as therapists when, okay, now that we've assessed and we have the safety plan and, you know, we feel pretty secure and we have the documentation, everything's in order. Well, we're therapists. We need to be providing treatment. What are we supposed to do? Well, there's there's five different categories of things. Number one are psychotropics. Some of you are psychiatrists, psychiatric nurses. And uh, typical medications, lithium, SSRIs. I'll get into more of that later. So you, so you can prescribe psychotropics or you can refer them for a consultation with a medical provider. Number two is there's a, there's a lot of last resort biological treatments like ketamine, uh, electroconvulsive therapy. I'll get into more, more of that later. Number three is peer support programs. Very important, very helpful for people with suicidal thoughts, particularly if it's a support group around the issue at hand like chronic pain. If they can go to a chronic pain group, that usually helps, often helps. Number four is treatment can involve a crisis line. Uh, you know, often we don't include this in what we consider to be treatment, but it absolutely is. If a client is having, uh, a, you know, occasional spikes in suicidal intent and they develop a relationship with a, with a particular uh, suicide hotline, and that they can trust, that they can talk to for a couple hours and talk them down, then that's absolutely an important part to treatment. And you as a therapist cannot provide that usually. And number five is just good old psychotherapy. And this is where um, I get into more detail later, but I'll just briefly talk about my 16 elements to good psychotherapeutic approaches to suicide, meaning that um, we're trying to get at the underlying reasons for the suicide at the same time as trying to reduce the risk. But mainly the psychotherapy is, is to try to address why the person is suicidal to begin with. And this is based on my own experience. Um, and all this is aside from the safety plan. Number one is you have to have a good relationship with the client. Very important. Uh, almost all outcomes in therapy, if not all, depend on a good relationship with uh, between therapist and client. So this means that em- you have empathy, you have positive regard, you really listen to them, that kind of thing. Number two, you want to normalize. Uh, it's very important that suicidal clients are made to feel not alone. Again, a peer support group can really help with that. And peer support groups can be online, like uh, uh, you know Reddit or something. There are good Reddit uh, chat forums for people to go to. There are bad ones too. But anyway, uh, normalization is very important because when a client uh, feels like, hey, 
There are others like me. It just helps. Number three is increase hope as a therapist. You have to instill hope in that client. Um, like you might say, remember how last month when your mood was actually a lot better? Well, it's quite possible that this month is your bad month and next month you will have another good month. So although it feels hopeless now, uh, in all likelihood, it's just a downswing in your depressed mood and you'll feel better in the future. So you just have to hold on through this time. So you're trying to give people hope because again, when they feel hopeless about their situation, they're much more likely to attempt. Number four is you want to point out their strengths, you know, if they're a survivor of childhood abuse, you want to point out their strengths there. You want to point out how they might be generous to other people or, or giving to other people. That's important. It gives them meaning, gives them self-esteem, gives them a reason to live. Number five is you want to identify and manage the triggers. This is part of that uh, reducing of the risk thing. Number six is you want to help them build connections with, with other people. You want to have secure attachments. It's a protective factor. It also can uh, literally be the cure for the suicidality to begin with because remember I was talking about earlier when people are in distress about their isolation, when they feel as though they're being thwarted for their belongingness uh, efforts, then they have more suicidality. If they have secure attachments, then they belong. Number seven is you want to educate your clients about suicide, um, which we'll get into more later, so that they can understand and conceptualize their own intent. Number eight, a main thing there in the education is that, that you want to do for all clients who have suicidal thoughts is to really hammer home at that there, people have spikes of intention, and, and there's a lot of research around this. Like, people will, many people will, will survive attempts. There are even people who will um, shoot themselves in the head or jump off of a, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, and they'll survive. And afterwards, they'll be like, "I'm glad I didn't die." Or as I was falling, I was, uh, I, I was like, "Oh my God, I've made a big mistake." There's just something about suicidal intent where it, it'll spike. It'll seem like very much the right thing to do. And then later on, it, it'll be like, why was, I, why was I thinking about that? That was so awful. So you have to educate people about that because you, you want to tell them, look, how you feel, how you felt last week about suicide was temporary. You just have to hold on. Just give yourself another few weeks and usually it'll those, that intent will go away. The feelings will go away. The the mood will go away. And I think all of us can relate to that, right? Of just like, you'll just be in a really bad funk for a few days, you know, and everything is just so dark. And then a few days later, everything's fine. It's very important that we understand that when we're in the funk, because when we're in the funk, then we're like, well, I just have to hold on for a few more days and things will usually get better, even if nothing really changes in my life. Um, number eight is self-awareness. So this is around their emotions, their sensitivities, their own needs. Number nine is increase emotional regulation. Very important. This is all. This is what DBT does, right? You're really trying to help people improve their mood, manage their own moods and their own emotions. Number 10, you want to address cognitions. This is also a part of DBT and CBT. Negative self-talk, managing their own rumination if they have it. Number 11, increase self-compassion. Very important, very important protective factor for suicide is this ability to have compassion for the self. Number 11 is what I'm calling acceptance. 
And what I mean by acceptance is it's the opposite of fighting everything. For example, some people will have suicidal thoughts and they fight with themselves all the time. And sometimes it's helpful just to accept, look, I'm going to have occasional thoughts about suicide. It's just going to pop into my head, you know, and why fight it? I just have to be mindful of it and watch it pass. And that's okay. I accept it. I accept it into my life. It's, I guess it's a part of my life. Number 13 is you want to reduce risk factors, you know, that I was talking about before. If they're being bullied, you want to try to help them to not be bullied anymore. If they're impulsive, you want to help them to be have more impulse control. If they're drinking alcohol, if they have guns in the house, if they have anxiety, you know, there's a million different risk factors that you want to address in therapy. Number 14 is you want to enhance the protective factors. Uh, maybe they want to journal about reasons to stay alive. Maybe they want to walk their dog more often or get a dog. Maybe they want to go to church more often and have a connection with God, etc. All these things you want to tailor to the client in terms of what works. Number 15 is you want to manage your own countertransference and remain as differentiated as possible. It's very important in the treatment. Probably should be number one there. Number 16 is you want to address the underlying issue. This is the final thing here. This is probably the, the biggest thing. You know, everyone comes to suicide from a different place. They could come from tr- PTSD. They could come from divorce. They could come from disorganized attachment. They could come from alcoholism. They could come from uh, war traumas. There's a lot of different reasons why people find themselves thinking about suicide. So you have to address that. And there are too many things to go into, but uh, the most common ones that I could think of are trauma therapy for trauma, uh, attachment issues and and trying to help through interpersonal therapy, meaninglessness. This is a big one that I've experienced with a lot of clients. A lot of people are walking around living their lives and do not feel as though they have any meaning and any purpose in their life. They're just surviving, they're reacting, and over time that just takes its toll because all the stress and all the problems and all the trouble and the, and the issues are, uh, you know, when they sort of weigh on people, they think, why the hell am I doing this anymore? <laughs> like, what's the point of this? You have to have a point. You have to have a reason to persevere. Otherwise, suicide, you know, thoughts creep in the mind. But once people have meaning, they have a purpose, then they can withstand it with grace. Uh, Complicated grief. You want to treat that if that's the underlying issue to suicide. Lack of self, which we've talked about before. Are they being marginalized? Are they being bullied? Is there marital conflict? Maybe just fix the marital conflict and they won't think about suicide anymore. Are, uh, you know, is a, is a teenage client of yours experiencing really abusive parents? Uh, you, know, you can help with that too. It gets complicated, but, uh, but my point is, is that you got to target the reason why they are suicidal to begin with. Okay, so again, that's my rough summary of everything I'm going to talk about later. <laughs> uh, but so let's, so now that's, so that's my introduction. So now let's go into the, my actual notes here. Okay, let's take a deep breath so I can slow down a little bit. So the first thing I want to talk about is trigger warning again, is check in with your body. How you doing? Are you feeling, or, you know, have you ever thought about suicide yourself? Because if you have, uh, check in with your own thoughts right now. Because, again, just being exposed to this episode 
can increase your risk. Uh, that's a very, very important thing to understand. And the best thing you can do is stop listening, talk to your therapist. So I want to ground suicidality in reality here a little bit, you know, because we can talk about all these stats and treatment plans or anything. But let's talk about people, you know, what is it actually like to be suicidal? This is very important. And I did this in the last deep dive, and I have some stories that I found from some websites, people giving some uh, public testimonies about their own stories. So I'm going to read one right now. I felt so helpless after my failed attempt at suicide. I have no recollection of my short stay in the hospital, nor of the first five, four days after. My husband moved out on Father's Day. We have two children and have lived together for 22 years. So after my attempt, my mom moved in for a couple weeks and took over the everyday activities. Detached is a word I used a lot to, to describe how I was feeling. I was disconnected from everything. I thought I had no choices in life apart from my method of which I would die. I had no regard to how my family and friends would feel afterwards. My attempts left me feeling so frustrated. I did not plan to, to, to survive the attempts, but I remembered all you have to do is pick up the phone and talk to someone. That was the beginning. I may have sobbed on the phone time and time again. I talked to many anonymous people people who give their own time freely to be there to listen. It's now six months since my first attempt. Life is still difficult. Sometimes I have to take it hour by hour, but suicide is not my only choice. When it all becomes too much, for whatever reason I can remember, all you have to do is pick up the phone and talk to someone. So that's someone telling their own story, which I find to be just beautiful. All you have to do is pick up the phone and talk to someone. It's, it's all you got to focus on. It's a, it's a very similar philosophy to when people are trying to quit alcohol or a substance or something. All you got to do is call your sponsor. All you got to do is go to a meeting. Don't overthink it. If you overthink it, you'll get bogged down in all these kinds of things and you're going to do some bad things. So when it comes to suicidal prevention... All you got to do is call the crisis line. Just call that number, even if, it, even if it doesn't make any sense to you right then. Call it. Talk to the person for a few hours. Just do it. You know, don't think. That, and that's part of that treatment you want to do with clients. And that's part of that safety plan you want to have in there. Um, again, hopefully with your clients, if they're at high risk, uh, you've established that someone's going to watch them 24-7, which I'll get into more later. Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is just general things about suicide. My first thesis here, my first main point here is that suicide is much more common than people realize in general. Some, some of you know how common suicide is, but I feel like our society does not recognize it, and maybe around the world. Each year, one million people complete suicide every year around the world. A million people, a million deaths to suicide every year. Now compare that. Now compare this to what we talk about in the news: wars, blah blah blah. Well, each year, about ninety thousand people. So, so about what nine percent? Nine percent of the people who die from suicide. So, far fewer people die from war, and most of the people who die from war happen in the Middle East. 
just as a detail there. But so 10, 11, 12 times as many people die from suicide. And yet is CNN talking about that? No, not usually. Uh, not that they shouldn't talk about war, but shouldn't we be talking about suicide and suicide prevention? So now, so that's worldwide. In the USA, uh, there are the United States has is is a strangely average place when it comes to suicidal ideation and attempts. I I think a narrative is that the United States has a lot more suicide than other countries around the world, but it's actually not true. Where uh, the United States is is pretty average. Uh, so. When I give you these statistics, they're pretty similar to the average society around the world. And it's also important to know that the United States, there's a lot of variation within the United States, and there's a lot of variation between what region you live in, you know, like if you live in a city as opposed to the rural area. And, and to spoil that point is rural areas are much have much higher rates of suicide than city areas, which is counterintuitive and counter to the stereotype. Um, for example, in Washington State, the uh, Seattle and King County, the the county that Seattle is in, has the lowest rate of suicide of any area around Washington State. Again, if you asked people, you know, where do you think the highest rate of suicide is? Oh, downtown Seattle. It's got to be terrible. You know, all the te- no, uh, the most uh, rural, most secluded areas of Washington State have the highest rate of suicide. Now, most suicides will happen in cities because there's a lot more people, but you're much more likely to die of suicide if you live in um, outside of the city. Okay, so how? what are the prevalence rates? So there's a lot of different figures that I could say, and I had a lot of figures in the last episode, but I want to boil it down to just a few numbers because I think these are the most important. So for suicidal ideation, about 3% of people currently have suicidal ideation in the United States. And again, this is sort of average for the the world. 3% of people currently are thinking about suicide. That's a lot of people, right? That's like, what, 1 in 30 people, 1 in 33 people? So think of like, you know, 33 people that you know, one of them on average is has active suicidal ideation. This includes everyone at work, you know, all your family members. Uh, about 9% of people in the United States have had suicidal ideation in their lifetime. So it's about 1 in 11 people. So think about 11 people that you know. In all likelihood, average-wise, one of those people have had uh, significant suicidal ideation at some point in their life. What about attempts? So that's ideation. That's just thinking. What about attempts? Well, about half a percent of people attempt in a given year. So one out of 20, one out of 20, is that, was that what that, or one out of 200? No, yeah, one out of 200 people in the United States will attempt in a given year. So, you know, it's rare, but it's not that rare, you know. So you probably know 200 people that you could rattle off. You probably have 200 Facebook friends at least, right? Well, on average, one of those individuals is going to attempt in a given year. Attempt suicide. It's awful. 3% of people in the United States will attempt at some point in their life. So about 1 in 33 people will attempt at some point in their life. And of those people, they will often attempt multiple times. All right. So we talked about ideation. We talked about attempts. What about completions of suicide? 
about one and a half percent of people will die from suicide. So that's about one in 67 people will die from suicide. So again, think about 67 people you know. If you have, you know, say 600 Facebook friends, that means that of those people on average, 10 of those people will die from suicide. That's the that's how they will die in the future. You know, you think about heart disease and car accidents and this kind of thing. And suicide's up there. Uh, there are about 47,000 suicides in the United States each year. 47,000 suicides, uh, completed suicides. Now, that might sound, you might be, well, you know, there's 350 million people. It's not that bad. Well, I want to compare it to other things that we worry about. Do you remember the Ebola scare during uh, 2014? There was, a, there was another one in, I think, 2016 or 2017. During, during the Ebola scare, two people, two Americans died. And we're not even talking about Africa. There are a lot more people died in Africa. But two Americans died of Ebola in the United States. Do you remember how many people were talking about Ebola back then in the news? Everyone was terrified, you know? Uh, people are like, oh, you know, uh, have you traveled to, to uh, Africa? All these, all this talk, two people died as opposed to 47,000 people dying of suicide in that year. Okay. Um, each year, about 44 Americans die from terrorism. So think about how much we talk about terrorism. 44 Americans die from terrorism, and it's usually domestic terrorism. It's usually like Americans killing other Americans. We're putting up walls. We have massive militaries. We The CIA is, you know, uh, waterboarding people, and yet... Uh, only 44 Americans are dying. It's it's tragic. Believe me, it's horrible. 44 Americans, 47,000 people are dying from suicide each year. Where is the talk about that? Why isn't Fox News, CNN talking about this every day? Uh, and the suicide rates seem to be climbing over the past 20 years in the United States. It's 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 up like 25 to 30 percent over the past 20 years. That is concerning, (laughs) especially to us mental health people, that we have a problem in our society that's pretty bad and it's getting worse. And what the hell are we doing about it as therapists? Okay. So some other stats here that I just want to rattle off because I I don't want to do too many is 50% of individuals with suicidal ideation never receive mental health services. And a good number of those people don't get adequate service. So there, you know, most people who suffer from suicidal thoughts never get proper treatment. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people. Number one, you have accidents. Number two, you have suicide. Number three, you have homicide. And homicide is a distance, distant, you know, third to suicide being second. Six, some studies have found that, uh, and these are, you know, pretty average numbers in terms of the studies, 16% of high school students seriously considered suicide in the past year. So what is that? Like one in eight, one in seven something, one in seven people? <laughs> um one in uh, approximately one in seven high school students have seriously considered suicide in the past year. Yikes! Thirteen percent 
have made a suicide plan in the past year in high school, and 8% have attempted suicide one or more times in their lifetime. So you have 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 8% of them, about 1 in 12 of them, have, a, have attempted already in their life. I mean, that is just, that is just awful. Those numbers might be a little high, but, you know, uh, it doesn't surprise me. A lot of kids, it's a hard time in life. There's a lot of bullying. There's a lot of distress, a lot of inability to deal with emotional problems, a lot of societies not actually really helping, a lot of pressure with no attempts to help kids with emotions. Um, And college students are also at risk, too. 15% of college students report suicidal ideation or attempts. Okay. So let's look at the world. Just some some figures here because I think it it does help to dispel some stereotypes. So in terms of region, the 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 highest rates of suicide are in Europe in general. But there there's there's again, it depends on where you're living in Europe and whether you're in a city or not. But Europe has the highest rates of suicide. Next is Southeast Asia. So this is uh, you know, Vietnam, Thailand, that kind of thing, uh, Indonesia. There's a lot of um, suicide in that region. And then in the middle, we have the Americas. They lump North and South America into the same category. It's a lot of people. Uh, we have East Asia. So China, Korea, Japan, they are similar to the Americas, which is not stereotypical. But again, depends on where you are in East Asia, where you are in the Americas which I'll get into a little bit later. Africa is second to last, and then the very last is Eastern Mediterranean. These are people that are the least likely to die from suicide. People in Europe are four times as likely to die from suicide than people in Eastern Mediterranean. What about specific countries? Now, I could give you the full list, but that would take too long. But just to give you some ideas, the the highest rates of suicide are in Sri Lanka. So this is probably what they're including in the Southeast Asia region. Sri Lanka has the highest rates of suicide. It's about two and a half times that of the United States. And it's 35, for 35 times that of the lowest of Jamaica. So Jamaica has the, the fewest suicides uh, per capita. Uh, number four on the list is South Korea, which shouldn't surprise people. But Japan is number 18 out of 173. So definitely up there, but not as high as South Korea. South Korea, a lot of suicides. Kazakhstan, number six. Poland is number 10. Russia is 16th. Japan, 18. France, 25th. India, 30th. So India, Sri Lanka, lots of suicides. Sweden, 32. United States is 38. Uh, out of uh, 173. So um, now that might be like, well, it sounds like it's really high, but the the rate, there's a lot of rates lumping in the middle. And when you look at the actual, it's actually more towards the median of of it or the average, if that makes any sense. Anyway, Germany is 42nd. Canada is 46th. So Canada, Germany, Canada, Sweden, United States, Germany, Canada, Australia, France, they're all pretty similar. Ireland, similar, China. But towards the bottom of the list, you have Colombia, Mexico, and Jamaica. Uh, th- those are uh, pretty low rates. And there are, you can go to Wikipedia and look up the rates there. And the, sort of cap this off, uh, 
because people often want to know these sorts of figures, but I find it a little silly, is the cost of suicide, you know, the economic cost. You know, we don't need to reduce suicide and our efforts to reduce it to cost. You know, everything doesn't have to be capitalistic, but just in case you care, suicidal suicidal behavior can cost as much as $100 billion each year in the United States alone due to medical expenses from injuries and loss in productivity from time away from work. So $100 billion. $100 billion. So in other words, figures like this are often brought up as a way of, to convince people to spend money on you know, tax money. So imagine if we spent, say, just 1% of that. We just spent a, a billion dollars each year of our tax dollars to prevent suicide. And let's say we prevented half the suicides. Well, in theory, we would actually make a lot of money in return. We would make you know, $50 billion in profit, so to speak, from that $1 billion in investment. I don't think we have to reduce it to economics, but in case you care, and especially if you're trying to convince politicians and taxpayers. Uh, okay, so suicide is common, uh, is, is the point there, and it's around the world. The next thing I want to say is that therapists often have suicidal clients, which makes sense, right? Some studies, uh, listing here, one study found that 80% of counseling grad students report working with suicidal ideation or suicide attempts. So 80% of you know, trainees at the very beginning of their career already working with clients and suicide. Regarding uh, psychologists, 22% of psychologists and 51% of psychiatrists reported losing a patient to suicide at some point in their career. So between, you know, 22 and 51% of psychologists and psychiatrists have lost a patient to suicide. Uh, And that doesn't even count uh, all the people that have had suicidal ideation. So essentially, the conclusion here is virtually all therapists and all mental health people work with suicide. So suicide is common. Virtually all therapists work with suicide. And the majority of suicidal deaths are preventable. This is very important. And this is something that I, what was not drilled into my head for the first quarter or half of my career. The majority of suicide deaths are preventable. Research has shown this. But we have to accurately identify people at risk in our practices, and we have to know how to respond. And research actually shows that when clinicians are trained well, that it actually does help. So clearly clinicians need to be trained on suicide. And yet, most of us lack training. For example, you can graduate with a master's or a doctorate in, mental, in a mental health profession without ever receiving any training in suicide. It's not uncommon for people to become a licensed professional in my country and have had either no training on suicide or they had like an hour of suicidal uh, training. This is similar to a lot of other areas that are neglected for strange reasons like grief therapy, chemical dependency, domestic violence, erotic countertransference, how to write a good progress note, etc. So some studies here have found that 80% of clinical psychology students reported not receiving suicidal risk assessment training. This is just a few years ago. 80%, according to this one study, 
of clinical psychology students reported receiving no suicide risk assessment training. In social work, 68% of social work students said they did not feel adequately, adequately trained. So, you know, most, the majority of social work students are like, uh, okay, I might have received a little bit of training, but it wasn't enough because I, I don't feel like it was enough. Um, and when graduate st- programs do address suicide, research has found that they often provide bad training. So either too brief or actually just misinformed. In my state of Washington, it is mandated by state law now that all mental health people receive six-hour training every six years on suicide, which I think is great. Um, And the reason for that is that a woman named Jennifer Stuber, she was an associate professor of public policy at the University of Washington, and her husband tragically killed himself at the age of 38. They had two kids together. And... She found that um, after his death, she, she goes to the people that were treating him. She, he was being treated by a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And after his death, she looked into it and she found out that these clinicians were not addressing his suicide adequately and that these clinicians were not trained very well. So she went on a you know full campaign and she successfully advocated to pass a new law that requires licensed clinicians in my state to complete a six-hour training on suicide every six years. I will tell you that when I first heard about this law in 2014, I was annoyed by it. Uh, But when I actually started to become more trained in suicide and really think about it more, I realized that, yes, it's very important. It's a very complicated thing. I I, I talked about this in the other deep dive that I did. I I used to think of suicide as this very simple thing. One, I I thought it was a simple thing. And kind of an annoyance to me as a therapist, like, oh, okay, I got to deal with this now. And I also felt like it wasn't really my responsibility. It was like, well, you know, I mean, I, I can't stop people from doing what they're going to do. It's it's their life. And uh, I can make arguments for why I had that point of view, uh, especially if you talked to me back then. But I no longer believe that anymore. I believe that it is our responsibility to do what we can. Uh, often it, it is explicitly stated as such in the law or our ethical codes. And I believe that once we are properly trained, then it, it becomes quite easy to address it well. That I think that's the main thing here is that before I was trained well, and I would say 90% of the training I did to myself, <laughs> it's self-training. Um, now that I'm fully trained, I find it extremely easy and gratifying to actually help people with suicide. Whereas before, I I think I just didn't know what to do. And I would make all these excuses about just like, well, you know, um, it's not my responsibility or I'll refer them to someone else. You know, this guy, that kind of thing. Anyway, so therapists lack training. Now, what are the results of this lack of training? Well, the bottom line is people are likely dying as a result and that's awful to think about, right? That because my industry is not paying enough attention to suicide, that some people are literally dying because of our inattention to what is an obvious thing we should be paying attention to. I mean, if we don't pay attention to suicide, then who will? Who, you know, who else is supposed to be addressing this, right? Is it their dentist? <laughs> no, it's us. We're the we're the last line of defense on this, right? So 
or the first responders. I don't know what the phrase is. But anyway, the bottom line is because of our lack of training, it's quite possible that people are literally dying. Number two is therapists are incompetent. Research has found this. Many studies show that clinicians are using bad interventions. They uh, Sometimes they don't even assess suicide, even with their depressed patients. And some studies are showing that clinicians are no better than lay people when assessing suicide. I just want to emphasize that last point. Recent research in the past, you know, five, 10 years have found that clinicians like myself are no better than lay people when assessing suicide. Now, part of that is because assessing suicide is kind of hard, which is why I need to talk about it a lot. But another reason is because clinicians are trained. I mean, that is awful. Imagine if a study came out, and there are studies that come out about this, that demonstrate that clinicians are no better at assessing a personality disorder than lay people are. I mean, imagine if you had that in, the, in other professions. Like, uh, dentists are no better at diagnosing a cavity than lay people. Imagine if that got out into the press. We'd be like, well, Why? And then people would say, well, you know, we don't really train our dentists about cavities. Well, the public would be like, what the fuck, people? You're dentists. Figure your shit out, you know, spend the time. Well, if it got out that we are no better than lay people at uh, assessing suicide, uh, if it got out, you know, the public would just, they would, we deserve to be slammed. We deserve to have all of our licenses taken away. What's wrong with us? Uh, so again, results of lack of training, likely people are dying. Number two, therapists are, have been found to be incompetent. Number three, therapists are scared of client death. They're scared of being sued. And because of that fear, they often go into denial about the whole thing with their clients and their responsibilities. Number four, clinicians often don't understand their legal and ethical obligations as a result of this lack of training. Number five, clinicians often lack coordination between professionals, often I think because they're scared to coordinate because they're scared to reveal they don't know what they're doing. Number six is a lot of clinicians are using bad instruments and bad methods. Number seven is lack of proper support from the therapist's employer. So this is another detail is that if you are working at an agency, it is within the employer's interest to make sure that all the clinicians are properly trained and supported. And when you have a culture that doesn't really understand suicide and is afraid of it, then a lot of these organizations have a real lack of support. You know, they have a couple forms that they give out and, the, you know, they, they give it lip service. But deep down, uh, the, the, the clinicians are still kind of on their own. Anyway. Uh, okay. So what are my training recommendations? Uh, well, my training recommendations are we need to have training in suicide treatment um, and it needs to be integrated throughout training programs, whether it's psychology, marriage and family therapy, counseling, social work, whatever. For example, in my case consultation class um, in which I'm working with supervisees who are at internships. So, so these are students in my program who are currently seeing clients at agencies. I, uh, they will, they always have suicidal clients. And so I talk about, uh, all of my suicidal assessment tips and processes. I go, it's usually like a two hour process of lecturing and kind of going back and forth with the students. 
I do this about once every two or three months with with my students. So usually uh, each individual student will be exposed to this about four or five times before they graduate in my class. But this is informal. So I don't have to be talking about this. It's not a it's not a uh, formal part of the curriculum. I, I suspect there are other case consultation classes where they don't talk about it much or um, if at all. So I've just taken it upon myself to do it because as I become more confident and competent in it, I feel this real need to like explain it to people. Um, so yeah, it, so, you know, some people say, well, let's just offer a class, uh, one credit class on suicide. I think that that's fine. But I think what really needs to happen is that in training programs, it has to be talked about multiple times because it takes a while for people for it to stick in my experience. Because uh, with my students and my supervisees, I find that even after two times of me uh, going over all the details, it doesn't really stick in their head. It, it's it's a very different way to think as a therapist, in, in my opinion, because as a therapist, you know, we tend to look at our jobs as we're good listeners, we care about people, we um, respond to what a client is doing in the moment. What we're not typically jazzed about is like, okay, now I have to go into a full formal assessment that involves the law and ethics and your life and your behavior outside of the session. We have to write all these forms. I have to make it seem very fluid and natural. And, um, you know, there's, that's, a, that's not a normal mode that, that therapists are in. Now, some are, some are better than others, but anyway. Then the other thing that needs to happen for training is supervisors need to be trained. Because supervisors need to be attuned to the trainee's needs in the moment. So at agencies, which is where a lot of people start off in their career and often uh, sustain their careers, is supervisors need to be available. They need to be attuned. So they need to be available for quick consultation. When you have an intern and they have a suicidal client, this, this happened to me when I was at internship. One of the very first clients I had disclosed that he was at imminent risk of killing himself. And I naturally had no idea what I was doing. So I just ran out of my office and got my supervisor. And my supervisor actually came into the office and completed the suicide assessment and, and reaction to it. Uh, if my supervisor wasn't – I was you know 24 years old at the time, didn't know anything. If my supervisor wasn't there, I don't know what I would have done. Uh, so you know, supervisors need to be available. And sometimes that involves agencies actually sp- spending money so that supervisors can be at the ready. Supervisors also need to be trained on how to provide a safe space to talk about suicide because, you know, for some client, for some supervisees, they might be kind of scared to talk about it. Uh, Supervisors need to be trained on how to help their supervisees with their countertransference because there's a lot of countertransference, which I'll get into later. Also, supervisors need to be very good at suicide assessment and prevention because they need to model to their supervisees how to address it. So that's supervisors. Also, trainees sometimes have to adopt a completely new paradigm. So this is what I find is lacking in a lot of the suicide trainings because a lot of suicide trainings, it's all the, you know, it's the details and here's, here's the forms and here's what you do. But really, I think a big thing is that, um, as I was kind of talking about earlier, is, is a good amount of the training has to, be, has to focus on drilling it into the clinician's head that they are responsible 
I have a lot of supervisees where I have to drill this into their head. Some I don't, but many I do. Most I, I do. You know, I I have a lot of supervisees, a lot of training. You know, I've been training people for over 20 years. And, and, my, and I, get, I was kind of this way, too, when I started out. You know, when I was an intern, when I was an early professional, I just kind of wanted to go to work, do my job, and... I, I didn't want to have to think about the big issues that were scaring me. And so I would just kind of go into denial. It's like, well, it's not really my issue. Like as an example of this, I have supervisees who will, you know, they get a file. So they're at an agency and they, they get a file from a previous therapist. So they, they just get transferred this client. And they're looking at the file and it says, you know, this kid has borderline and conduct disorder and ADHD and persistent depressive disorder. And they just sort of take that as gospel. And so they, they you know, they meet with the client and they just start treating all these things as if the diagnoses are accurate. But maybe they're not, right? And so I end up having to talk with these supervisees because they'll because they'll often they'll be presenting on a case and they'll be like, well, in the file it says that the kid has ADHD, and I'll be like, okay, well that's in the file, but what do you think? And the supervisee will be like, I don't think this kid has ADHD, and I'll be like, well, well then why haven't you changed the diagnosis in the in the file? You're the clinician, you know, and just getting that into their head of just like you are the pinnacle of the mental health treatment. No, you know, you have a supervisor, but they are not in charge of, of, of diagnosing your clients. You're in charge of diagnosing your clients. If your file was transferred to another physician, uh, wouldn't you want the next physician to make sure that the documentation was correct and that the assessments were correct? You know, you wouldn't want that next that next physician to just be like, well, I'm sure the past physician was right. You know, you want them to be thorough. And so you're the pinnacle. Just because you feel like you're a lowly intern doesn't mean that you're not the pinnacle of the treatment, depending on the situation. So in parallel with that, uh, a lot of clinicians, these young clinicians, novice clinicians, it needs to be drilled into their head that they are responsible for doing the right thing and doing reasonable things to prevent suicide with their clients. They cannot wait for their supervisors to swoop in and alert them to do that. They have to do it. And they have to take on that mantle of like, yes, I am the last person for some of my clients who will prevent them from killing themselves. I might not know what to do because I'm an intern, but I sure as hell am not going to shirk that responsibility. I'm going to take it on and I'm going to seek supervision to help me do this because that's my responsibility. And the last thing here for training recommendations is we need to uh, have continuing education. Uh, It's probably necessary. Um, I know people who are 20, 30 years into their career and don't seem to really know what they're doing. Um, I, I have people who are uh, who consult with me, you know, they're 20 years into their career. And because they haven't had any training or any good training, um, I find I'm starting from scratch regarding uh, training them on how to address suicide uh, in all of its entirety. Okay, so let's go into the terminology very briefly here. You've already heard me not say things like commit suicide, and you've heard me say things like com- complete suicide. We tend not to like the term commit suicide because it, uh, it, um, it implies there's a sin involved. You know, you've committed a sin of suicide. So we tend to use the term completed suicide or killed themselves or they died by suicide or they took their life or even he suicided as a verb. 
Um, the definition of suicide, uh, there are various definitions, some of which I find to be quite funny, but I like this one. Self-inflicted death with evidence that the person intended to die. Now, you know, it makes sense. I think everyone knows what suicide is, but it's nice to put it into words. Self-inflicted death with evidence that the person intended to die. Because you could come upon someone who, for example, had taken a bunch of pills, but unless we know that they intended to die, then we don't know. Sometimes people will die from a drug overdose, and there are speculations that it was suicide, but sometimes we just never know. Did they intend to die, or did they just accidentally overdose? So it's important that we know that there was evidence that the person intended to die. Sometimes um, we just never know the answer to that question. Okay, so again, trigger warning people. Uh, This next section could be highly triggering, so make sure that you take care of yourself. Again, any question, just stop listening, talk to your therapist. So this next section is uh, to mull over the question that I often hear from people. Should we allow people to kill themselves? I mean, isn't it people's right to kill themselves? It's their body. It's their life. Why should anyone prevent them from doing that? Well, let's look at uh, the perspectives and also um, our role as therapists. And again, this is just a brief overview. So I think all of us could know or could intuit that the perspectives uh, on, you know, the, the, the potential answers to this question vary by culture and by person. You know, should people be allowed to kill themselves? Because over time and over space, there are people who consider suicide to be illegal, something you could actually prosecute, or they considered it to be a, a mortal sin. Um, all the way on one end of the spectrum, and then on the other end of the spectrum, people are just like, hey, you know, it's your life, do what you want to do. So there is something that has been called rational suicide. I mean, I think most of us can um, come to the conclusion, including me, that the vast majority of suicides are preventable and are unnecessary, meaning that the person likely will change their mind in the future especially if they're given a proper treatment. I mean, that's something I didn't go into earlier, which is that research shows that when people are given proper treatment and uh, can, treatment at all in some ways, their suicidality goes away. So it, 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 one conclusion is that a lot of suicides are ramping up in intensity towards intent and attempting because we as a society are just failing these individuals. People who are LGBTQIA, who are being bullied at school or by society or on the Internet, uh, that is the primary basis for their despair and their hopelessness and their motivation to kill themselves. People online are literally telling them to go kill themselves. We as a society are failing those to protect those people, and we're failing to uh, fight back against the bigotry. So uh, a lot of suicides are preventable, are tragic, are Um, you know, not only preventable on the individual level, if we actually help that individual, but preventable on a societal level, if we actually increase mental health care and reduce bullying and, you know, all those kinds of things. Anyway, but there is such a thing uh, in the field of suicidology called rational suicide. A little bit of history here. Going back to the 70s and 80s, we had someone named Nico Spiehers. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Spedgers, Spiegers. 
He was a prominent suicidologist and suicide prevention advocate. In 1980, he discussed in a book, I believe, or a lecture, he discussed what would later be called rational suicide, and it involves six different elements. One, the person is experiencing unbearable pain with no relief expected. So this can be psychological pain or physical pain. So unbearable pain, no relief expected. Number two, the wish for suicide has been ongoing by the individual, meaning that it's not a flash-in-the-pan motivation. It's been for a while. Number three, the person is competent to make the decision to take their life. Number four, the decision was not made under pressure and free will was involved. Pretty obvious there. Number five, there was no predictable unnecessary harm to others. There was no predictable unnecessary harm to others. For example, uh, when people, according to this model by Nico Spears, to uh, you know, complete rational suicide, you have to do it in a way that doesn't harm others. Like you don't want your kids the one to discover you, that kind of thing. Number six, every step should be fully documented and given to the authorities. So that's what he dubbed rational suicide. And people are like, huh, that's interesting that he, this suicidologist, this person who it has been known for a career of advocating for suicide prevention is coming out with this thing like, hey, you know, in rare cases, I think we can call this thing rational suicide. How do we adjudicate rational suicide? Well, one, the person is having unbearable pain with no relief expected. The wish for suicide has been ongoing. The person is competent to make the decision. The decision was not made under pressure. There's not going to be harm to others. Uh, And every step uh, should be fully documented and given to the authorities after the suicide. And then a year later, he and his wife killed themselves at the same time. He had a terminal illness and was in tremendous pain. And the wife had a a disability and did did not want to live on without him. So this is a pretty interesting case where a prominent suicidologist was going through something and he was thinking, huh, well, under normal circumstances, according to general wisdom, you know, I can't take my life in a a legitimate way or in a ethical way or in a way that other suicidologists will will accept. So I'm going to come out with this model. I've had to determine what suicides are quote unquote rational. So he, he, uh, this model emerges and then lo and behold, lo and behold, a year later, him and his wife uh, kill themselves. We might all remember five, six years ago, Brittany Maynard, who was an American woman with terminal brain cancer who decided that she would end her own life. This was an example of what Nikos Behirs would call uh, rational suicide. She had terminal brain cancer. From my memory, uh, she was expected to be in tremendous amount of pain and decline and die within a couple months, maybe a month, uh, maybe a little bit longer. But it was 100% certain. She had been through all the other treatments and, and nothing was working. It was aggressive or, you know, I don't know the words. But anyway, so she was experiencing unbearable pain or was going to and there was going to be no relief. So she, she was going to die anyway. She had a wish for suicide that had been ongoing. Uh, it was determined or could be determined that she was competent to make the decision The decision was not made under pressure. There was no predictable, unnecessary harm to others. 
And she fully documented and gave to the authorities her decision because she actually went to the press and talked about it. And it raised a lot of awareness for what we might call rational suicide. So there is a you know section of suicidology that will discuss that. Again, however, there's a lot of evidence that even when people meet all these criteria, when they are given proper support and proper treatment, they no longer want to kill themselves. So that's just another thing to consider. Okay, so that's one way of looking at should we as clinicians allow people to kill themselves. The other way to look at it is through our ethics, laws, and standard of care. Well, our ethical codes provide some guidance. On one hand, we want to honor people's, our clients, we want to honor their autonomy and their confidentiality, meaning that uh, we as clinicians strive to allow our clients to live the life that they want to live as long as they're not harming other people. They should be allowed to live and make their own decisions. We shouldn't uh, dictate that. And we also want to uphold their confidentiality, meaning that if they tell us that they're going to kill themselves, uh, we should strive to not tattle on them because we want to make therapy a safe place. On the other hand, we do have a duty to protect and we do have a duty to provide proper treatment to, to clients, which might involve treating people even kindly, kind of against their will uh, when it comes to suicide. And we also, again, have a duty to protect. Um, overall, we're always trying to balance beneficence versus non-maleficence or do no harm and trying to benefit the client. So our ethical codes are kind of wishy-washy on the, on the matter, as they are with a lot of things. What about the law? Well, the laws differ around the world and in every state. For the United States, each state has its own laws regarding this. And as of an article that came out five years ago or something, physician-assisted suicide for terminally ill is legal in some states, including my state, Washington, also Oregon, California, Montana, Colorado, Vermont, Hawaii, and D.C., um, at least that's what the article said. I'm guessing things have changed. So by extension, it might uh, and probably is considered not illegal in Washington State for a therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist to uh, at least be there along the way with the client. We as clinicians would not be the one carrying out the suicide the way a physician-assisted suicide would be carried out by a physician. So we're less, quote unquote, liable, I suspect. But, you know, we might be there to console the client or be with them through that uh, and even help them with the decision making. So the laws vary and, you know, I think they're ever changing. And then the standard of care. Well, what does the standard of care tell us? Well, therapists do sometimes help with rational suicide, but... As I was saying earlier, the ethics and laws are unclear. For example, the American Psychological Association in 2017 came out and said that they, quote, take a position that neither endorses nor opposes assisted dying at this time, unquote. So the American Psychological Association is saying, uh, we don't endorse, nor do we oppose it, because we don't know what to say. <laughs> we, don't know, we don't know what to do. Uh, so we're really at the beginning of it. Not, you know, the... It's not a huge issue in our field. Therapists aren't frequently asked to be a part of this. I suspect that will increase in the future. And in 50 years, we'll have a much better idea of what the standard of care is regarding this. 
Okay. What about the laws? Let's let's go in. Let's go into some some laws regarding um, what apply to us most of the time. So that was all uh, rationalist suicide. But what are the laws regarding us in general? Well, in Washington State and in a lot of states, and if you don't live in the United States, it probably depends. And it always depends, but. In my state anyway, and I th- in a lot of jurisdictions, clinicians, mental health clinicians are expected to take reasonable actions to prevent suicide of a client. And again, remember, this all applies also to homicide, as I said in the beginning. A, l- a lot of the model overlaps with the assessment and prevention and treatment of clients who are at risk of harming other people. So um, we are, uh, as mental health clinicians in Washington State, responsible to take reasonable actions. We are not, quote unquote, responsible for our client's behavior. We're not responsible if a client kills themselves. What we are responsible for is to take reasonable actions to prevent the suicide. There's a big distinction there, right? I don't have any control about what my clients do outside of my sessions. I don't have the power, but I do have the power over what I do in response to my clients in my sessions and what I recommend and all those kinds of things. So I am legally responsible for taking reasonable actions, which might mean putting a little bit more effort into assessment. It might mean reaching out to collateral contacts, um, but it does not mean that I have to absolutely prevent someone from attempting suicide. So this is a pretty firm understanding from the law, the ethics, and the standard of care. But now you might ask, well, what's reasonable? Well, we don't really know because it doesn't go to court very often, if at all. And we just don't know, you know, what are the reasonable actions? Well, usually it has to do with the standard of care. And what I'm presenting in this whole episode is basically, you know, one version of the standard of care. And I think that most people who are experts would agree that I'm covering all the bases. Um, Okay. So when a client is is generous, so uh, in terms of like, what are we at risk of being sued over, okay, like in a civil suit? Well, there is a, uh, at least in the United States, there's a format for how to, for determining whether or not a therapist is to blame for a client's death or harm to a client. So when a client is generally harmed, like suicide, a malpractice claim might be submitted and it is supported when four things are present. And it's important for clinicians to understand this because um, when you understand this, I think it helps to reduce your anxiety and also give you clarity and focus regarding what you're supposed to be doing when, when you have a suicidal client. So now this is a brief overview. There are a lot of nuances of this. but in, And of course, if you were ever involved in this, you would seek legal counsel. But in general, uh, here are the things. So number one... There has to be a professional relationship between the client and the therapist, meaning that the client or the person has hired you professionally and that it's generally considered that whatever role you're hired for is uh, the standard of care involves uh, taking reasonable steps to prevent suicide. So if, for example, a client hires me as a therapist, then that, you know, it's it's the standard of care for therapists is to uh, be mindful of suicide. If for example, I am hired by a school to teach a class. Well, I'm in a professional relationship with the school. 
uh, I'm in a, a kind of a professional relationship with the students in the class, but I don't know the students. I might not even know their names. I have I, it's it's not a venue for me to um, uh, assess them. It's not typical to the standard of care if I'm teaching a class for an hour about emotional regulation to students that I um, should be heavily mindful of suicidality and among the students. So it's always important to understand, you know, what is the professional relationship? What's the standard of care regarding that professional relationship? Because I know some of you work in some, you know, unique environments. Um, So, but with general therapy, this involves, uh, you know, am I hired yet? And have we terminated? So um, for example, the only client that I've ever had who completed suicide, I had never met him yet. He was on my schedule that day, and that morning he killed himself. He was, uh, I think, 17 or 18 years old, and it was tragic, and it hit me pretty hard, but I I had never even met him before. So by definition, he – and because I hadn't had any phone conversations with the client – about any suicidality or anything like that. I was not in a professional relationship yet with that client. So there was no question as to whether or not um, a malpractice claim would be waged against me. The other situation that often comes up for clinicians is you have a client who has suicidal thoughts and they just sort of drift away from therapy. Like um, they no show or they cancel. And then a couple months later, you're like, huh, that person hasn't contacted me yet. Well, technically speaking, you're still in a professional relationship with that person. And if that client decided to take their life, you could be liable because you did not uh, respond. And the way that you address this is by making sure you terminate officially with clients. So, and, and this is something that I'm, I'm talking with supervisees about all the time. Again, most clients do not terminate formally. Uh, I, to a lot of trainees, this surprises them, you know, because in the books they always talk about, you know, you have a termination session and da da da. But like most clients, anecdotally in my experience, if if not like ninety nine percent of clients, they just drift away. Um, sometimes they don't even know that they want to terminate. They're just they they wake up, you know, they think about going to the session, and they're just like, ah, uh, you know, I don't really feel like it, or you know what, I'm kind of sick today. I think I'll just stay home. And they just don't reschedule. And then a few weeks go by and they're thinking, huh, well, I, I guess I guess I'm not going my th- – maybe I'll go back in a few months. I don't know. And the client just moves on with their life. Well, to the therapist, it's incumbent upon us to have some threshold. You know, I recommend, I don't know, two or three weeks really, especially for people who are – who have suicidal risk factors is you reach out to them through your uh, agreed-upon method of communication and you inform them that they're welcome to come back and make an appointment. But if they don't, then you are going to officially terminate the professional relationship and here are my recommendations for the future. Uh, This is important because if they did something, either homicide or suicide, um, you want to make sure it's clear that you are no longer – Uh, caring for them, that you're no longer responsible for taking reasonable actions. So number one, there has to be a professional relationship. Number two, there is a violation of the standard of care. For example, you didn't take reasonable steps to prevent suicide or you didn't take reasonable steps to prevent homicide. Uh, So there has to be a violation of standard of care. Uh, What is the standard of care? Well, 
that is squishy. And if it ever goes to court, you get expert people on the stand and they explain what the standard of care is. Sometimes there's a debate about that. It's very squishy. It's very upsetting if you're looking for firm rules. Number three, that violation of the standard of care resulted in harm, i.e. suicide or homicide. And number four, there is a direct causal relationship between the violation and the harm. So this is always important because, for example, if you fail to assess or you fail to take reasonable actions to prevent homicide or suicide, and then another clinician, a physician, the psychiatrist, gives the wrong med to your client, which seems to be a major factor in the uh, client's motivation for homicide or suicide, then even though you as a therapist did not do your reasonable actions to prevent the action of your client. And that could be considered a minor factor. It's considered to be a much larger factor that the physician didn't do their job and that that's the reason why the person uh, did that behavior. Uh, I hope that makes sense. So even if you screw up, it has to be demonstrated in court that uh, that screw up has a direct causal link to the behavior in the client. Uh, to the harm that happened to the client. Um, so so that's basically how tort law works. And um, so I hope that, may, hope that helps. To me, when I hear that, what it says is, okay, uh, uh, because when I first heard about some of the laws, particularly in Washington State, it freaked me out because there's all this talk about, you know, we're now responsible for our client's behavior. And when you understand malpractice claims, uh, it makes it so much more, uh, it makes it less less scary because, again, there has to be a professional relationship, which you can manage for yourself. You can make sure you terminate with people officially so that you don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, as long as you standard if as long as you follow the standard of care, then you should be OK, because the other thing is here, if you follow the standard of care or if you take you know reasonable actions and the client still does something to harm themselves or, or other people, then it's you're you're not considered to have um, violated the standard of care, be, or you, you because um, you did everything you were supposed to do anyway. Okay, so let's review everything I've talked about so far. <laughs> Suicide is much more prevalent than people realize, with about nine percent of people having suicidal ideation at some point in their life. Again, about one in eleven, one in twelve people think about suicide at some point in their life. About 3% of people, about 1 in 33 people, will attempt at some point in their life. And about 1.5% or uh, what, 1 in 66, 1 in 67 people will die from suicide. 1 in 67 people will die from suicide in the United States, and that's kind of average for the, for the world. In the U.S., there are more deaths by suicide than deaths by auto accidents. There are two times as many deaths by suicide than death by murder. And there are a thousand times more deaths by suicide than death by terrorism. Virtually all therapists have clients with suicidal ideation. Most clinicians are not trained well or at all. As a result of this lack of training, therapists don't know what they're doing. Therapists freak out. They use bad assessment techniques and treatments. 
They're more likely to get sued and lose their license. And most importantly, people are dying. So that's the review there. All right, let's briefly talk about the history and culture of suicide, because I think it's kind of interesting to talk about, you know, the major bullet points here. The first bullet point is that history, uh, that suicide has been talked about going back to the ancients, like ancient Greece. And, you know, throughout medieval Europe, throughout um, different parts of the world, there have been instances of literature and texts around suicide, often related to religion. So let's skip forward to early 20th century when psychoanalysis and psychology and Freud were emerging. And Freud and others dabbled in writing about it. Uh, there were, um, you know, there was a little bit of writing by early psychoanalysts. Basically, they, they had very psychoanalytic interpretations of suicidal thoughts and suicidal behavior, uh, masochism, this kind of thing uh, that uh, I won't go into. Um, for time's sake, mid 20th century, we fast forward to around, you know, around World War II, just after World War II. Edwin Snydman, who was an American psychologist, Edwin Snydman is considered the father of suicidology. He became interested in suicide while working at the VA in Los Angeles in 1949. He was treating a lot of vets. And he founded the first suicide prevention center in history and founded many more afterwards. So he was the first person that really started looking at suicide because he was looking at vets who had, um, you know, lost people in the war or had disabilities or something. And he was seeing that these people were in a lot of psychological pain and he wasn't prone to psychoanalytic explanations for things. And so uh, he had a theory, but basically what he was, what his theory was, these people are in a lot of psychological pain and they look to suicide to end that psychological pain. So it wasn't very complicated, his theory, as opposed to a lot of the psychoanalytic theories. So if you want to know the, you know, the grandfather or the father of suicidology, Edwin Snydman, in the same way that Freud is and Breuer are the grandfathers of talk therapy. Today, since we've been influenced by all that history, going back to the ancients, we have a mixture of beliefs in our societies. Some consider suicide to be a chemical imbalance. Some consider it to be a weakness of character. Some consider it to be a selfish act or a heroic act or against God's will. Some people see it as a desperate act of someone who is deeply suffering. Some see it as a method to get attention from other people. And there are other points of view. So throughout history, different points of view were more prominent seeming. But today, it seems like we got them all. So you out there, especially you clinicians, you have to consider your own beliefs and your own biases. I know some people who have lost family members to suicide, and they might have some pretty complicated views about suicide because of how much pain the suicide put their family through. So it's important to understand, you know, all the different valences you have and associations you have with suicide. All right. This next section, I just want to go over the common myths because, you know, any good suicide discussion lecture should have the you know, dispelling the common myths. Uh, this isn't all the common myths, but these are the main ones I want to talk about. 
when assessing suicide as a clinician, uh, using the word suicide does not actually increase risk. There are people out there, and most clinicians don't believe this, but some teachers might believe this or parents or something, and they will use, they'll beat around the bush, essentially. They'll be like, you know, do you want to harm yourself? And when you use phrases like that, it can be very confusing to people because it's like, well, what do you mean by harm? So you want to use the word, you know, are you thinking about when you're, when you're assessing, when you're trying to assess risk, just use the word, you know, are you thinking about suicide? Are you planning on killing yourself? Just use that word. It, it the research does not show that has any correlation with increased motivation to do it. If anything, it helps people to reduce their motivation because they're being, they're given a chance to talk about it. Also, people who complete suicide, uh, so these are the myths. People who complete suicide won't talk about it beforehand. So this is a myth. Most people who complete suicide talk to people about it beforehand. Another myth, if someone really wants to kill themselves, there's nothing you can do. So I think I've already dispelled that myth. Another myth here, teens who exhibit suicidal gestures are not really at risk. This is a big one because I get this a lot as a family therapist. There's a lot of teens who are labeled as uh, exhibiting suicidal gestures or borderline clients who uh, will be labeled as doing suicidal quote-unquote gestures. And it's a code word usually meaning that it's uh, people do it to make to do attention, that they're not really that serious. And now that might be true that they might actually be doing it for attention, but that doesn't mean that they're not at risk. That's a very important thing to understand is one can gesture or seem to gesture for years and then boom, they complete suicide. So just keep in mind of that because I, when I, when I, people consult with me about suicide, a lot of the time I detect this sort of dismissal of the client's risk because, well, you know, they're always talking about it and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I don't really, I don't really think that they're going to complete suicide. Let me actually talk about that for a little bit because I haven't talked about that. There's that counter-transference I was talking about earlier in terms of managing it and that when therapists are not trained very well, they tend to freak out and go into denial. Well, that denial can manifest in therapists looking at several warning signs and yet concluding, nah, I don't think they're going to do it. And I think the reason why they do this is because they don't know how to respond and they don't know how to assess and they just don't want to believe that their client is going to die. They're just like, I don't want to think about my client dying. That's awful. And so they go into denial and just say, nah, it's not going to happen. And I see this a lot. And as a person who is supervising or is consulting, I'm, I'm, I watch this behavior and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why do you believe the person isn't going to do it? And they're like, well, you know, I just, I just get the sense that they're just not going to. And I, and I like, okay, let's go over the risk factors. They've attempted three times in the past. They've been hospitalized in the past for it. They say they have a plan. They have erratic emotions. They are aggressive and conflictual with their family. They're alone. They're isolated. They've been bullied. Uh, they suffer from PTSD and major depression and anxiety. They're on a new medication. They might be drinking. They're impulsive. Uh, they uh, lost a dog. Uh, a, you know, one, their dog got ran over by a car in front of their eyes. Um, their grandma died recently. They have all this, and they talk about the fact that you know they want to kill themselves. They are at high risk, 
And there's, you know, if anyone's going to do it, this is one of the people that's going to do it. And the client or the therapist will be telling me, no, you know, I just, I think if you met her, you would be like, eh, you know, I think she's, I don't think she's going to do it. I'm always just astounded by that. Now, the chances aren't very high that the person is going to complete suicide soon because uh, most people, it takes them a while, you know, to complete. And many people have ideation and, and never complete. And many people who attempt will never complete. So sure, I mean, it's not like, boom, you know, for sure, this is going to result in death. But even if it was, say, you know, a 5% chance, a 3% chance that this client is going to die from suicide in the next few months, do you really want to take the chance on that? Um, Shouldn't you do your due diligence? And when you're properly trained and you've practiced enough, it doesn't take much effort. You know, for me, like I said, I am not burdened by the fact that I ha- that I assess people for suicide. It's it's very quick. It's very s- seamless for me because I've just done it so many times. Anyway, um, another myth here is all you need is a no harm contract. So this is something that goes back to this is a myth that goes back to uh, early training in suicide. Uh, this uh, a long time ago the standard of care was or the belief about the standard of care was when I was being trained in in the 90s was that when you have a suicidal client all you need is a no harm contract that that will that will cover your ass essentially so if a client kills themselves so if you you know no harm contract you're talking with your client you're like will you agree to sign a contract saying you will not attempt suicide between now and our next session And, you know, a lot of clients will agree to sign something like that, even if they're uh, serious about attempting. They'll just be like, yeah, well, sure, I'll sign it. Because, you know, what's what's the big deal? If they attempt and die, then they break your contract. They're not going to care necessarily. Having said that, some people actually do care. And um, I, early in my career, would do this. And with some people, they'd be like, uh, I don't know if I can sign that. So they'd be honest about it. So sometimes a no harm, so no harm contracts are fine. Um, but the way that it was taught to us in the early days was like, that's all you needed to do. And then later on, when better practices and better know-how was emerging, they started to really uh, attack the no harm contract. And it, the pendulum swung so far that a lot of people today so-called experts and trainers are saying that a no harm contract is actually unethical, but that's not true. A no harm contract is, is a fine part to a, a safety plan. It just can't be the major part because it's not a, a, a very good um, indicator that a client isn't going to actually attempt, uh, but there's no harm in having a no harm contract and it actually might help. So, um, so in the past, there was a myth that that's all you needed. And then there's a current myth that it's unethical. Both of them are wrong. <laughs> um, no harm contracts uh, can be fine as long as they're a part of a, a much more robust safety plan. Uh, another myth here is suicide motivation increases during birthday, lunar phase, or winter. Um, this is actually not true. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, the holidays are are among us or the the dark days of January <clears throat> are among us. Suicide is a big deal. No, it's actually not true. If anything, there's a slight bump in the spring, um, uh, which doesn't in the summer, spring and summer, which doesn't make a lot of sense to people. But again, you know, 
data often doesn't make a lot of sense to people. Also, lunar phase, lunar the moon phases. You know, the full moon has, uh, and, the, and the phases of the moon have nothing to do with suicide. That the data has shown that. Also, birthdays or um, holidays, these kinds of things aren't aren't they? They're not. They might be a reason for an individual to kill themselves. It's not like one individual won't be motivated by that, but it doesn't show out in the data as any kind of trend. Another uh, myth here is children are not at risk of suicide, you know, like a five-year-old child. Five-year-old people are extremely unlikely to do it when compared to other groups of people, but it isn't unheard of. So uh, make sure as a clinician, particularly if you have, you know, nine, 10, 11-year-old kid who's thinking about suicide, that you take it seriously because they, they sometimes do attempt and do complete sometimes. Uh, another myth is suicidal people, you know what? They just have to think positive. Things will get better. I think we all understand that's a myth. Also, another myth is that only white people are suicidal. It's sort of stereotypical. Uh, to you know, If, it, if you want to think about a suicidal person or if they want to make a movie or they want to have a poster about someone suffering with suicidal thoughts, in my experience, usually it's a uh, white teenage girl. Uh, now, certainly white teenage girls think about and complete suicide, but the typical profile is actually of a white middle class or a white middle-aged male, uh, you know, about the age of 50 to 60 years old, uh, 45 to 60 years old, white male uh, in a rural area. That is the, the poster child, if you will, of suicide. And having said that, plenty of uh, people of color, non-white people, Native Americans should also be the poster child. Um, LGBTQ people should be the poster child, people who are bullied. Um, you know, all people from all walks of life, all demographic groups are at risk of suicide. Some more than others, but they're all still at risk. Another myth, common myth, is that only depressed people attempt suicide. Uh, it's not true. I'll get into the, more of that later. Some people attempt suicide who do not qualify for any diagnosis in the DSM. So suicide is not a does you know some people will attempt and complete suicide uh, without suffering from mental illness at all. Uh, another myth, this last one, is people always leave a note, and that's not true. In fact, most people who complete suicide or attempt suicide do not leave a note which I thought was actually surprising when I read that. Okay. And again, trigger warning, check in with yourself. How you doing? Again, if you have issues of suicidal thoughts, uh, make sure you talk with your therapist right away. And if there's any doubt, just stop listening. You can always come back to it after you talk to your therapist. Okay. Now, why do people attempt suicide? I talked about this earlier, but I thought I'd talk a little bit about the other theories here. So, um, it's important for us to know why people attempt suicide, not only on an individual level, but also on a global level. You know, why do people in general attempt suicide? And uh, so we can better understand why the individual does. We can better tailor our questions to them. So there are current suicidal, there are current suicide theories, theories on suicide. Uh, one is called the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model. Uh, authored by O'Connor in 2011. There's the cognitive behavioral theory of suicide. 
And there's my favorite, which is developed by Thomas Joyner, 2005, called Interpersonal Theory of Suicide. Number one, you must have thwarted belongingness, like I was talking about earlier. Number two, perceived burdensomeness, like I was talking earlier. And three, means and acquired capability. My model, my theory of of suicide is very similar to this. It's called the interpersonal theory of suicide, meaning that suicidal motivation is largely a interpersonal phenomenon. When we feel thwarted from belonging, when we feel like we're a burden on others, then we start, we feel the pain, we start to seek out means and capability. Another model here, the last one I want to mention, developed 2015 by Klonsky and May called the three-step theory of suicide. It involves one, psychological pain and hopelessness, two, lack of connectedness to others, and three, suicidal means. So I kind of combined these two, the interpersonal theory and the three-step theory, into my own model. One, distress has to be present. For example, depression, anxiety, rejection, grief, physical problem you know, ongoing pain, chronic pain, loss, finances, that kind of thing. Number two, perceived hopelessness about that distress. They believe it'll just never get better. Number three, perceived thwarted belongingness. You know, they just feel rejected. Number four, they have acquired means to complete the suicide. They have a gun, they have pills, etc. And number five, they have acquired a capability. They have a plan. They've rehearsed a plan, maybe just in their mind, or maybe they've done it behaviorally. They have a plan for how to deal with their own fear response. You know, people who will jump off of a bridge, uh, typically they don't just walk up to a bridge and jump off. Typically they, they go to the bridge, they walk around the bridge, they, they come back the next day or the next month, they visualize, they, they might get drunk beforehand to thinking it will numb the pain, you know, there's certain, there's a lot of things people have to do to kind of prepare for it. And so uh, when people have the amount of preparation that they feel feel like they need, uh, then they will attempt. Um, Sometimes that preparation can be very fast. It could just be like 10 minutes. Sometimes it could be 10 months. Okay. So now we're finally into the assessment of risk. Uh, This is the main kind of uh, goal of this talk is to help clinicians understand assessment of risk. So what, you know, what do we look for? How do we weigh certain things with each other? Um, You know, what risk level, what do we do? I went over that in the beginning, but this is just more in detail. So again, we assess suicide in our clients so that we can determine the risk level and the risk level determines our response. Mainly, our response involves three different things. Do we need a safety plan? Number one. Two, if so, what should the safe, what safety plan should be in, in implemented? You know, um, so it's like, okay, I know I need a safety plan, but what kind of safety plan? And number three is, do we need to require immediate hospitalization? So that's really the two things, and I think it's important to point that out. It's not this elaborate um, set of options that we have as therapists. Um, of course, we have all of our treatment, uh, you know, 
things that we do where say they have trauma that results in them having PTSD that results in them being suicidal or, you know, we're going to treat the trauma. And so there's a lot of things we do as therapists to treat the foundation once we understand where the suicidality comes from. But in terms of things that are specific to suicide, the, the two main things that we have available to us are a safety plan and hospitalization. And the safety plan, the hospitalization is pretty straightforward, which I'll get into. The safety plan can be quite varied, but they tend to look the same, which I'll get into. Okay. Now, we also want to ask, when do we assess? When do we assess? Do we assess all the time? Do we assess just once? Well, the guidelines that I recommend people follow is in the first session with every client, you always assess. It's just one of those questions you ask. Even if there's no indication, you just want to say, so I ask all my clients as a matter of course, have you ever thought about suicide? Um, and then if they're like, yeah, and you're like, okay, when was the last time? And they're like, oh, you know, 30 years ago. So you haven't thought about suicide in the last 30 years? No. Do you think you will? No. So you just indicate that and you move on. Or they say, well, you know, yeah, I occasionally get depressed and think about suicide. And then you launch into your assessment on that. And also, research shows that clients will generally not report suicidal ideation unless they are asked. So it's important for us to be overt in our questioning. We cannot depend on clients to bring it up. Now, so that's first session. What about later sessions? What if we... <clears throat> What if a client indicates that um, they haven't thought about suicide in 15 years and we put it aside? Um, do we never bring it up again? Uh, well, we might have to. If risk, of fa if risk factors emerge, for example, increase in psychiatric symptoms, particularly mood disorders, or a major loss in their life, or you know, substance abuse increase, or they have a change in medication, et, et cetera, that's when a new set of questions should be asked to the client. Um, you just say, okay, you know, you've had some real difficulties in your life recently and you want to attend to those right away. But, you know, eventually you want to get, so, you know, I just want to ask you uh, because I just want to make sure that I ask, um, you know, due to the divorce that you've been through, I know you've been through a lot of stress. Are you thinking about suicide at all? Just let it out. Just ask the goddamn question. Do it. Because again, people who think about it, they don't necessarily uh, disclose it to the therapist. They're ashamed of it. And so you got to ask. And worst case scenario, they say, oh, no, I'm not thinking about suicide. And you're like, okay. Um, and the last thing here is assess what is your role. I talked about, a, about this a little bit earlier, but just a little bit more detail on that. You want to figure out, you know, how do you fit into the overall picture with this client? Uh, I know a lot of you out there work on teams of professionals that work with clients. So think about, you know, are you the primary mental health clinician? So let's say that um, you're the family therapist and the 17-year-old uh, son has a individual therapist that's different than you. And so you're talking to the family and the mother says, well, you know, he thinks about suicide sometimes. So you might very quickly... Uh, ask some questions, but then you might realize, well, wait a second, he has an individual therapist who is much more um, set up to 
provide assessment and treatment and lead the way when it comes to suicide prevention. I can participate as a part of a team with that individual therapist to the 17-year-old boy, but I shouldn't be the primary because I, I have other fish to fry. You know, I have to take care of everyone here. And if, if we take up, you know, three sessions just focusing on the teenage son's suicidality, then we're not going to be able to address all the other issues. So, so you'd make a mental note and you, and you might even sell the family. Um, okay, so I'm going to actually, if it's okay, I'm going to talk with your therapist about, you know, your suicidality. Or you might ask, you know, have you talked to the therapist? You know, blah, blah. So you, you want to make a mental calculation real quick. Am I in the position where it's my role to actually take this on right now? Um, if when in doubt, just forge ahead. But if you're pretty sure that it's not your role, then obviously that affects things. Um, the other thing to assess is how much time you have left. Let's say that um, you work in a hospital and you have like five minutes with a client and they disclose that they have suicidal thoughts. Well, that has to be taken in consideration because if you only have five minutes, then um, your assessment has to reflect that. And you might have to do a very, very fast assessment. Whereas if you have a client, you see them once or twice a week ongoing and their suicidality it seems relatively low, then you have, you have the luxury of time to uh, really assess it over time. Okay, so before we go into assessing, I want to provide some general tips when you are assessing clients on suicide. Number one is you got to be clear and unambiguous. You know, don't beat around the bush. Ask the questions. Be clear. Uh, number two is collaborate with the client. So uh, for many of you, it's obvious that you should do this, uh, but for some of you, it isn't. It's important to, whenever you can, always collaborate with your client in, instead of trying to corner them to make them tell you something. You know, particularly if you have a defiant teenager or something, you know, do your best to build a relationship, get them to buy into therapy, uh, try to get them to not consider you an enemy because it's not going to help. Um, number three is use all of your good therapy skills. Uh, many of you, I think, know this and intuit that and do this. But for some people, I see that they it's almost like they have two different hats. They have their therapist hat and then they have their suicide assessment hat. And they shouldn't be two different hats. They should be the same hat. When, you know, when a client comes in and they're talking about suffering from grief, most of us understand, have empathy, listen well, all that kind of stuff. And then I see some people when they're like, oh, okay, now I have to do this very professional thing by assessing suicide. So I'm going to put aside my empathy. I'm going to put aside my you know, positive regard. I'm going to put aside my phenomenological listening and I'm going to do this very, you know, uh, medicalized process of determining whether or not this person is at risk. Don't do that. Uh, continue to be empathetic, continue to be positive regard, continue to listen well, continue to be curious and interested in the client's experience. Um, it, that doesn't go out the window. It, it needs to stay there. Uh, number four is build a relationship. You know, uh, most clinicians have suicidal clients in my circle in an ongoing manner. So it's it, most of the people that I work with, not, if not all, have clients who suffer, you know, are struggling with suicidal thoughts and the therapist will be working with them for months and months. So, you know, make sure you build a relationship because one, 
assessment depends on your client being honest with you and open with you and to feel safe with you, to have a secure attachment with you. So in order for you to detect things, you got to have a, a, a strong relationship so that you know that they will reach out to you. The second thing is that having a strong relationship is a preventative barrier to suicide itself. So you're doing two things. You're double dipping with that one. So build that relationship. Make sure it's strong. Make sure that they understand the goals, the tasks in therapy. Make sure that they feel securely attached to you. Make sure that you're attuned to them. Make sure they feel safe and understood. Number five is enter their narrative world to really know their lived experience. Uh, you know, again, I've been talking about this before, but it, it just asses- you know, assessing suicide doesn't mean we throw out all of our therapy know-how. Uh, one of the best things you can do as a therapist is, with all your clients, is to really pay attention to what the client is telling you, and don't uh, you know listen through biased ears. And also, when they're talking about suicide, make sure that you really get a sense of who they are and how they feel about suicide, how they experience it. Don't assume that you understand based on other you know people's descriptions. One, again, because you build that relationship, it'll help them to disclose to you. Two, it'll help them to bond to you, which is a protective factor to the uh, suicide itself. And three, if you're going to treat them, you have to really understand how they see the world. And one of the most frustrating things a client can go through, and I know many of you have this experience as a client in therapy, is when you get the sense that your therapist doesn't really understand you that well and or doesn't care to understand you that well. It can be very, it can be a form of thwarted belongingness, right? A form of isolation. You're in therapy, but your therapist doesn't really get you. And what a wonderful feeling it is when our therapist or when anybody for that matter really gets us. So make sure you really understand when you're assessing suicide, don't just ask the questions, you know, really try to get to their lived experience. Uh, Number six is document as you go. I know a lot of people, they'll come to me in supervision and they'll be like, oh, so I have this client who's suicidal and I'll, and I'll be like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's go through the assessment. And I start asking them all these questions and they're like, oh, I don't remember. And I'll be like, well, did you write it down? They'll be like, no. And I'll be like, how in the world are you supposed to do a detailed assessment without writing it down? How, how you, do you have some sort of superhuman memory? Uh, you got to write it down, man. Uh, one, because there's so many details. And two, because if something happens, you should have those notes. So what I do is when I detect the need to do a full assessment, I get a pad and paper and say, I'm going to take some notes because there's a lot of details here. And you, you just write it all down. Plus, if a safety plan is necessary, then when you have a pad and paper right there, then boom, there you go. Uh, number seven tip, last tip here is always get consultation, particularly if you have a supervisor and particularly if the risk is high. If you are 10, 20 years into your career and the risk is low to medium and you feel pretty confident you have it under control, then consultation isn't necessary. It'd be a good idea. But if the risk is high and or you have a supervisor, then you, in my book, are required to consult with someone else, even if it's just a check-in with a peer. Just, you know, you 
like I might talk to Bob, for example. Bob isn't a, a suicide expert by any means, but um, he is a another clinician to bounce stuff off of to help me think straight. Because in the face of suicide, it's very anxiety-provoking, and we tend to have a lot of counter-transference, even when we're trained well, and it'll cloud our judgment. All right. So as I was talking about in the beginning, when I was talking about the summary, the heart of this whole thing is what do we assess? What are the things that we look for? How do we weigh the different factors when determining whether or not someone is um, low, medium, high risk? So let's get into it. So there are eight different things that I have categorized. Um, We want to assess the problem, number one. Number two, we want to assess past and current treatment. Three, we, we want to assess ongoing risk factors. This is the big one. Number four, we want to assess acute warning signs and behavior. Number five, we want to assess protective factors. Six, assess intent. Number seven, we want to assess plan preparations and rehearsals. And number five, we want to assess the means. Okay, so number one, we want to assess the problem. As I was talking about earlier, you cannot know how to assess or treat suicide if you do not know how the the client experiences their distress and their hopelessness and uh, for what reasons and how they frame it in a linguistic system, how they construct it. It's very important to understand the problem, not only to treat it, obviously, but also to assess it. Uh, you want to enter their world. You want to really listen. You want to really explore it. This could take many sessions to, to get to the bottom of it. Um, again, as I was saying earlier, not only does this help you to assess, but it also helps you to cure them of their problems because when someone really pays attention to us, we tend to feel less thwarted belongingness, less hopelessness. Number two, we want to assess past and current treatment. You want to look at hospitalizations uh, and also chemical dependency treatments medications. It's very important. Many therapists will not know much about medications. That's fine. It's not, it's not necessarily everyone's expertise. But you want to be aware of it with a suicidal client. If your client isn't at risk of things like that, then it's less important. But when it comes to suicide, everyone needs to be watchful of many different factors. And so you want to include, at the very least, just updates. So, you know, how your, how's your medication going? Did, are there any changes? Um, how, does it seem to be helping? What does your psychiatrist say? This kind of thing. Because for some people, they might kind of drop away from their psychiatrist. For many people, they're getting prescribed from their family doctor who isn't necessarily um, competent or it's not necessarily their expertise. And so you need to monitor that, you know. Again, with a lot of your other clients, you might not even know what meds they're on because it's not really critical. But with clients who are at risk of suicide, you got to be more aware of it. Um, so you're also, uh, you're looking at this to coordinate between other professionals. It's very important that you coordinate with everyone. It's also important to know what worked in the past Um, and what did not work, and what's working now and what did not work now. So, for example, you might find that your client is uh, feels not well-served by their psychiatrist or not well-served by their um, 
you know, day treatment center or something. And you got to know that because particularly if you're the primary therapist, you got to know so that you can assist with that. Um, again, also, you got to know if people are, um, you know, prone to things not working out for them in the past. So you don't want to repeat those same treatment problems. Um, let's see. Also, it's important to know changes in treatment over time because uh, research shows that changes in treatment, whether psychological or uh, psychotropic, and changes in providers can provoke attempts. It's very important to know that, is that for whatever reason, you know, some people are susceptible to change or they're, um, you know, they just feel more alone during that transition time. So it's very important that um, we understand where people are in terms of their treatment um, week to week. Number three is we want to assess the ongoing risk factors. You know, this is the big one. Okay, so I know I've had a lot of lists, but I'm adding a list within a list here is, you know, the third thing here is to assess ongoing risk factors, but I have 11 ongoing risk factors. So there's going to be 11 items within the third item of the assessment list, if that makes any sense. Part of the reason why I'm doing all this number system is because I know some of you actually take notes, and I might actually uh, just uh, give a cheat sheet of this available to patrons. But uh, I also do this because there's just so many details to keep track of that I think having numbered lists help. Anyway, so the first thing – so I'll just give all 11 in the intro here, and then I'll go into more detail – Number one, suicide ideation and attempts. Obviously, you want to assess that. Two, mental conditions like mood disorders. Number three, trauma, childhood difficulties, loss, grief. Number four, health factors. Number five, personality factors. Number six, social and family factors. Number seven, suicide contagion factors. Uh, Number eight, behavioral factors. Number nine, marginalization factors. Number 10, time of day, day of week, um, um, blah, 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 minor factors, just worth mentioning. And number 11, demographic factors. Okay, so number one, you have to assess as a factor of uh, that informs risk level, you know, low, medium, high. You have to assess suicidal ideation and attempts. Everyone knows this, right? You want to assess past, current, Thoughts about suicide and attempts. And you want to know a number of details. And I have a eight number system within this number system, which is in another number system. Number one, you want to understand onset of ideation. When did it start or when did this current bout start? Uh, number two, you want frequency. How often does it pop into their head? Number three, you want intensity. What's the intensity of the ideation? For some people, it's just kind of like this low-grade sense that they wish they weren't alive. And for others, it's like an intense motivation of, I must kill myself right now. Number seven, what triggers it? Pretty obvious there. You know, what precedes? Or, I mean, what triggers? You know, like um, being broken up with or being alone or mood disorder issues or drinking or nighttime or, um, you know, when their spouse and them have a fight. Number five, precipitants. This is different than triggers. Triggers are things that sort of cause the, um, the suicidal ideation and, and attempts. Precipitants are just things that seem to precede it, like uh, it could be, again, time of day, or it could be what you ate, or it could be your sleep or something. So it's not something, it's not like, 
I'm going to kill myself because of this reason. It, it just seems to be something that might tip the balances there. Number six is internal and external reactions to their ideation. So when they have thoughts of suicide, what do they do internally and what do they do externally as a reaction to it? For some people, they might try to get rid of the feelings. For others, they might ruminate on that. For others, they might tell someone. You know, you want to know what they do as a reaction to the ideation. This is a very important thing to know, not only for the assessment, but also for uh, treatment, right? Because part of the management of suicide uh, is to um, have people react in certain ways that are more functional, have emotional regulation, essentially just emotional regulation. But it also helps us to understand assess, you know, assessment-wise because say if someone has ideation and their internal reaction is just a deep sense of dread, you know, the thought sort of pops in their head and they're just like, oh, hopelessness and awfulness and yes, I agree, suicide is the answer. That's going to raise the risk level, right? Number seven, how comfortable are they with their suicidal ideation? This is, an, you know, maybe a lesser important question, but it is interesting. And when they have thoughts of suicide, how comfortable are they with those thoughts? And number eight, do they talk about these thoughts with other people? You know, do, do they immediately talk with someone or do they keep it to themselves? People who keep it to themselves are more likely to have higher risk. So some things to keep in mind about uh, assessing ideation and attempts in general. And these are, you know, research shows. Among those with a lifetime history of suicide ideation and, and a plan, 55% will attempt at some point. So this is an important thing to know because I think a lot of people will have clients where, uh, you know, they're treating someone and it's like, okay, yeah, I have a 18-year-old who sometimes thinks about suicide. And yeah, she has kind of a, uh, you know, a mild plan. She had a bigger plan in the past. But, you know, things will be fine. Well, according to research, and it's hard to research this because you have to get self-report from people. People have to be honest. They have to remember. But according to research, 55%, most people with a history of suicidal ideation and having a plan in the past will attempt at some point. So, again, a lot of my stats and emphasis here is you got to take it seriously. 60, another research finding, 60% of the transitions from ideation to attempt occurred in the first year after the onset of suicidal ideation. So um, this is a little bit surprising to me, but I'll also not. Again, if we're looking at this, most people will attempt within the first year of ideation. So this could... Um, this can mean a lot of different things. One is is that attempt is very likely to happen after ideation. If someone has ideation, they're very likely to attempt. So that's important to know. Um, and when we say attempt, we're talking about a lot of different kinds of attempting. We're talking about attempts that are completed, and we're talking about attempts that are not likely to be completed. You know, sometimes people will just grab pills in their in their bathroom and shove them down their throat and none of the pills are lethal. Um, so, you know, it's an attempt, but they didn't do the research, you know, to find out, or it could have been a gesture, this kind of thing. But anyway, so, uh, but most people who have ideation will attempt. And also most people will attempt very soon after the onset of ideation. 
Uh, this also tells us that if ideation begins at the age of 35, we have to be just as concerned as if they had ideation all the way back to when they were teens. Um, another finding here, the strongest predictor of a completed suicide is a previous attempt. This is probably the most important suicide finding. The strongest predictor of a completed suicide is a previous attempt. So suicidal ideation is not a great predictor of a death by suicide. The, and a plan is not a good predictor of a death by suicide. Having ideation and a plan is, a, is an okay predictor of attempting. But so there's a difference between attempting and completed, right? So the main predictor of a completed suicide, which is, of course, what we're mainly concerned about, is a previous attempt. So if you have a client who attempted in the past, then you have to be very careful. So that's always, you know, an, an indication, a big red flag for and, and, a, and we want to put a lot of weight on that. You know, I said when we talk about assessment, how, you know, how do we put uh, weight, you know, what things do we weigh against other things? Suicidal ideation, not a big predictor of completion. Plan, uh, a better indication of completion, but but not as as good as attempting. So if you have anyone who attempted, make sure that you um, understand that and, and weigh it pretty uh, severely. Also, research has found that the first six months after an attempt presents the highest risk of another attempt. So if you have a client who attempted within the last six months, then it's even a bigger red flag that they're going to attempt again. Whereas if someone attempted five years ago, then we don't put a lot of weight in that because <clears throat> the chance of them repeating that attempt um, is a lot lesser than if it was more recent. Another finding here, people can kill themselves without any previously reported suicidal ideation or attempt or anything. So this is just another detail that, you know, concerns all of us is that people have been known to die from suicide without anyone having heard that they even thought about suicide prior to that moment. Um, you know, because a lot of people will say, uh, well, you know, yeah, sure, that person's been going through a tough time. Um, they're they're depressed, but, you know, they've never had suicidal ideation in the past. So, you know, what's the chance that all of a sudden they're going to kill themselves? Well, it does happen. It's not very frequent, but it does happen. Another finding here, people with suicidal ideation do not necessarily attempt. I was kind of saying that earlier. The other thing here is that many, if not most people who die from suicide, it was their first attempt. So that's another thing to think about is um, – there's a lot of people who will attempt a number of times and never complete. Then there's a, a there's, so there's one kind of person who attempts a lot, never, com, never completes, or they attempt, you know, one to five times, never complete. There's another type of person who will attempt uh, and a number of times and then complete at the end of that cycle. Maybe they're preparing the, the first attempts didn't work for them. There's another class of people who uh, they tr they attempt their very first time and complete that very first time. And it's hard to know because, again, we have to go off of self-report and maybe those people who did complete, they had attempted another time, but we just didn't know about it. But research seems to indicate that most people who die from suicide, they died from their first attempt. And again, this is this raises the stakes of our jobs, right? Like, 
some, you know, I've been saying the big indicator is a recent attempt. Well, for some people, in fact, most people, it seems, when they die from suicide, it was their goddamn first attempt. <laughs> so sometimes it just comes out of nowhere and just gives us, you know, an appreciation for going through the process and also humbling to the fact that we just don't know how to necessarily predict this sort of thing. Okay, so that's number one. We want to assess of the risk factors. We want to assess suicidal ideation and attempts. And there's a, a lot of questions, a lot of time is spent in there. Number two is mental conditions in general, uh, particularly depression, bipolar, psychosis, anxiety disorders, PTSD, substance use disorders, borderline, antisocial, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, ADHD, and conduct disorders. So, but mainly it's it's mood disorders, but any of the, and psychosis, and I guess borderline, and I guess substance use disorders. Those are the big ones. Um, PTSD too. Anyway, but so getting into some of the specifics here. Um, 90% of people who complete suicide are found to have had a psychiatric disorder. This is compared to something like, I don't know, a quarter of people. I can't remember the exact stat, but um, 10 to 20% of people have, um, or no, how many? Anyway, a lot more. There's a higher, much higher. So when you compare people who completed suicide versus people who didn't, there's a much higher rate of psychiatric disorders among people who complete suicide. In fact, nearly all people who complete suicide are found to have a psychiatric disorder. Now, on one hand, we could look at that and say that having a psychiatric disorder is a pretty big risk factor, which it is. Um, but another way to look at this is that for some people, uh, they are, it's, you know, some people are diagnosed postpartum, right? Postpartum, <laughs> postmortem. Um, and, that's just another factor. Anyway, another finding here is about 6% of people with serious mental illness will die from suicide compared to the general population rate of 1.5%. So if you have a serious mental illness, meaning uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, this kind of thing, then you're something like four times more likely to die from suicide. All right, let's look at major depression uh, specifically here. Some studies find that if, you have, if you're diagnosed with major depressive disorder, you have a 20-fold increase in the risk of suicide, 20 times the risk of suicide if you have major depressive disorder. Lifetime rates for people with major depression, 16% will attempt compared to the 3% in the general population. Half of the people who complete suicide can be, can be retrospectively applied the label of depression. Um, so again, this is post-mortem. They look at the person who completed suicide and they're like, yeah, even though no one was there to diagnose them, that person had major depressive disorder. So about half of the people who complete suicide had major depressive disorder. That's a really, for some people, that's quite obvious. This means two different things. One is, is that uh, major depression is a big risk factor when it comes to completed suicides. And the other thing is, is that half of the people who complete suicide do not qualify for major depressive disorder. So it means both things, that with major depressive disorder, we need to really watch out for suicide, but we shouldn't only rely on major depressive disorder as a red flag for suicide, because half the people who complete suicide didn't have major depressive disorder. The lifetime risk of males with major depression of suicide is 7% 
while the risk for females is 1%. So for whatever reason, uh, males being depressed are much more likely to complete suicide than females with depression. Um, Women, according to research, who are depressed... For whatever reason, they just it just doesn't motivate them to complete suicide, whereas men are much more likely. Now, of course, the speculation is common that I will talk about and others will as well, is that women are much more likely to seek help than men are. And so when men are depressed, they likely won't seek help. They'll drink more. They will get more externalizing behaviors. They'll be more angry, more upset. And um, whereas uh, women are much more likely to seek help anyway. All right, so that's major depression. I want to really hammer home that if you have a client with major depression or any signs of depression, it's a big red flag that you want to weigh pretty heavily. Uh, bipolar uh, is another pretty uh, big red flag for, for depression. Lifetime, it's even higher for bipolar than for major depressive disorder. Um, there's a lot of speculation as to why this is. For some people... When they're, you know, for bipolar, for major depressive people, they tend to be depressed for longer periods in a more consistent manner. Definitely people can have ups and downs, but it's it it tends to be fairly steady. Bipolar, by its nature, will uh, alternate between different poles of mania or hypomania and depression. And when people are pulling out of their depression, you know, say you're depressed for like nine months and you've just been no motivation, not, you don't enjoy anything, you hate yourself, you're staring at Netflix, you, you, know, you know you're supposed to be cleaning the house, you know you're supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z, and you're not, and you're just like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a terrible human being. And, but you can't even motivate yourself to attempt suicide because it's, it takes a certain amount of motivation to do that. Well, as you start pulling out of the depression and heading into mania, for some people with bipolar, that's the time where they're at a really high risk of dying from suicide because for the first time they finally have motivation. That's one uh, possible factor, but another factor is just having bipolar for a lot of people is just an unrelenting um, horribleness. You know, obviously major depressive disorder can be absolutely horrible, but bipolar, in my experience, tends to take a greater toll on average. Anyway, so lifetime, 35% will attempt and 15% will complete suicide. So that's a lot of people with, you know, that are dying with bipolar. So so what is that? About one in one in seven people or something uh, will die. One of one of seven people who are diagnosed with bipolar will die from bipolar, uh, from suicide. That is an important thing to know, right? Uh, and for whatever reason, women with bipolar have suicide mortality rates equal to those of men, which is really weird. Most of the time, it, when we're looking at depression or just any uh, suicide rate, men tend to die from suicide two, three, four times as more often than women do. But when it comes to bipolar, for some reason, it bumps women up to the same rate as men do. So if you have um, a woman with bipolar, you should be very concerned. In fact, I, a friend of a friend of mine had bipolar, a woman, and she died from suicide tragically when she was young, like uh, in her 20s, I believe. 
Um, all right, schizophrenia. So with schizophrenia, um, particularly people who have command hallucinations. So, you know, schizophrenia is kind of a weird grab bag disorder with a lot of different symptoms. And so um, we have to be a little bit more specific. And particularly people with schizophrenia who have command hallucinations, meaning, you know, these hallucinations are telling them, usually voices are telling them what to do. Uh, these people are particularly at risk of suicide. Lifetime, 6% will complete. So it's similar to the rates of um, serious mental illness anyway. So they're eight times higher risk for suicide, particularly soon after being diagnosed. So there's a lot of reasons why this is. So if you have someone who was recently diagnosed with schizophrenia or any psychotic disorder, you have to be very mindful of suicide for them. And again, there's a number of speculations I could I could uh, provide here. One is, is that when you transition from a life where your brain was working on your side and working well and you had a grasp on reality, and now all of a sudden you've had like um, this up, this sort of um, slow slide into psychosis and you uh, suddenly now realize, wait, my brain is not working for me. It's not on my side. That can be extremely distressful and you can be very hopeless about that. And your uh, clinicians might be saying, look, it's likely you'll always be psychotic and we'll always need to have you on meds. And, and also when people first become symptomatic, it can usually be the worst time for them because they don't have a system that supports them and helps them through their psychotic episodes. And so they can end up in jail. They can end up doing all sorts of horrible things. And so there can be a lot of consequences. And so uh, soon after diagnosis of schizophrenia or any other psychotic disorder, that's a time when people are uh, apparently most at risk. Another disorder here, eating disorders. 21% of people with eating disorders report a history of suicide attempts. So one, about one in five people who suffer from an eating disorder will have attempted more than once. That's a lot of people with eating disorders, ha you know, attempting suicide. Um, and I don't have the stats in front of me in terms of how many people complete. I'm sure those stats are out there, but they're not in my notes for some reason. Um, autism is also another uh, thing to mention. Many people with autism will feel hopeless about how, you know, they interface with other people. They might be bullied. They might be ostracized. They might be confused. And that can lead to suicide for them as well. Um, I'm also including in this risk factor non-suicidal self-injury. This isn't necessarily a disorder, but it's associated with disorders, and so it's worth mentioning in this category. Um, Non-suicidal self-injury, so cutting, burning yourself, this kind of thing, it is uh, a red flag for suicide, but it isn't suicide. And I did a you know recent episode on NSSI. Uh, it was a rerun, actually. But it's um, important for us all to know that um, you know people who cut themselves that's not an indication that they are trying to kill themselves. Usually people are using non-suicidal self-injury as a way of coping with their problems so that they don't have to attempt. Um, but if someone is in such distress that they are using non-suicidal self-injury as a way to cope, then they're uh, much more likely to become hopeless about their distress and demoralized and 
um, disconnected from other people. So um, that's the way to see it, you know, because a lot of people, particularly when it's revealed in schools, teachers, administrators, parents will just completely freak out. You know, oh, my God, he's cutting himself. We got to do this and that. And it's like, yeah, definitely let's look at it. But we, it's, not a, it's not an emergency necessarily. Um, many people with non-suicidal self-injury do not want to kill themselves and never attempt, although it does raise the risk. Okay, so of the different, you know, ongoing risk factors, we've talked about suicidal ideation and attempts. We've talked about mental conditions like depression and bipolar. Now let's talk about number three, trauma, childhood difficulties, loss, grief, these kinds of things. So trauma, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you know what that is. Abuse, war, violence, rape, scary surgeries, first responders, accidents, this kind of thing. Uh, even for people who aren't very complicated about their trauma, you know, like they, um, you know, they're a, a veteran and yeah, you know, they have, they've been through, they don't have PTSD, but, and they're, they don't, and their narrative is not that they hate uh, being in the military, but the, uh, you know, the speculation is that the exposure to trauma, the exposure to terror uh, especially in an ongoing manner, changes the brain and changes the way we uh, think about ourselves and the way that we deal with things. And so that's just something to think about. Also, childhood mistreatment. It is absolutely associated with a risk of suicide. There are a lot of different paths paths or ways of conceptualizing this. One is, is that when you're mistreated as a child, you're made to feel worthless. And so a lot of people will cope with that by developing a self-hatred. They will think of themselves as um, bad people, you know. Uh, they were punished severely growing up, and so they internalize the abuser, and in their mind, they abuse themselves. And they, you know, you're a piece of shit, you did this, you did that. And one of the things that um, can manifest from that is you can uh, want to hurt yourself when you're ashamed or when things are going wrong in your life, which can result in suicide. The other thing is that when you're mistreated growing up, you have a hard time developing developing a self, right? Um, we've talked about that. I've done a whole deep dive on that as well. It's available to patrons. But in a nutshell, we are uh, when we're young, we develop a self by um, our uh, you know caregivers reflecting to us how we feel so that we can interpret our own emotions and giving us, us the space to explore what we want and what our needs are. Uh, when we have that in a normal way, then we develop what we call a self and can navigate difficulty much more easily. When we have a self, then we are able to tolerate difficulties. Like, let's say, um, you know, someone at work gives you a bad review. When you have a self, you can turn away from that person and go, what do I do? And you look to the self and you're like, well, you know, I know that I'm a good person. I have self-esteem. Um, yeah, sure, I made a, made a mistake there, but I don't think their evaluation of me is accurate. Or you could even say, hey, you know what? Their evaluation of me is accurate, but I know that, you know, I gave it my best shot and that's okay. For people who lack a self, they can't, they can't turn to a self to reassure them. They can't re return to self-esteem to build them up. And so when we're mistreated as children, then um, not only will we have self-hatred, but again, we'll also have a lack of self to turn to in, in times of need. 
Um, for example, some statistics here. Among sexually abused teenagers, 63% have suicidal ideation and 25% have attempted. I know a lot of you treat uh, clients who have been sexually abused. And for teenagers who have been sexually abused, 25% of them have already attempted. So it's a big deal. Uh, also, uh, childhood issues, attachment injuries. So essentially having insecure attachment that is associated with suicide. Um, if you know, it's, it's not a Psychology in Seattle podcast um, if I don't at least mention attachment issues at least once, right? Particularly preoccupied attachment style. And so, but there's different research. Sometimes what they find is that um, uh, any insecure attachment style is associated with suicide, whether it be avoidant, preoccupied, or disorganized. Um, and then other studies seem to find that preoccupied is particularly associated with suicide, which kind of makes sense um, in both ways. For preoccupied people, these are people who are usually on the borderline spectrum. We all know that people who are on the borderline spectrum are much more likely to, uh, to attempt suicide and to have at least ideation. But um, another thing, to, but on the other side, we could say that, well, you know, we often look at avoidant people as uh, more stable and stronger, but they're not. They just act like it. Uh, the thing that I like to say is that underneath every avoidant person's sheen of self-control is a borderline person. <laughs> borderline people are just uh, much more overt about their attachment insecurities. Uh, avoidant people are are exactly the same amount of insecure, but they just um, they manage it in a way that it doesn't it's it's not detectable very easily. Anyway, so attachment injuries another important and insecure attachment styles are very important to assess as well. Um, financial crisis this is a big one, very much associated with suicide uh, because our society. We can look at this two different ways. One is is that our society or certain societies put a lot of weight in our ability, particularly for men, to be financially secure, to provide this kind of thing. And when we lose our jobs or when we lose a lot of money gambling or when the stock market crashes or something, then we will be in a lot of despair about our purpose in life and about our prospects will become hopeless and we might not see a way out of it. Um, say someone gets in a lot of debt or something and suicide starts to creep in there. So one is, is that we just have a social construction around that kind of thing. The other is the other way of looking at it is that we will, uh, we have a, we evolved to have a certain, um, uh, sort of selection for people who are who put a lot of emphasis on our ability to produce things for safety. You know, in the old days, you could say cavemen who um, cavemen and women who didn't have food stocked up for the winter might have been more might have felt more despair as a result of that. Right. So you know, maybe it's that. Who knows? Um, and the final thing here is grief. Obviously. If you go through a difficult loss and you're experiencing a lot of grief feelings, then um, that is going to cause the despair that could lead to hopelessness, that could lead to suicide. Uh, research shows that losses like this um, are associated with suicide attempts and completions, particularly if someone close to them died by suicide, uh, because not only did they die 
And sometimes people will say, well, I want to join them or I can't live without them, that kind of thing. Um, but also if someone died by suicide, someone close to you, then it, it you know, s- plants that seed of just like, well, you know, if they did it, then I guess it's kind of normalized and, and I respect them and love them and I want to do what they did, you know, because I, I, I want them back. And so I'm going to do the same thing that they, that they did. So if you have a client who had someone that died from suicide close to them, then you want to be very uh, watchful of that. Other losses to take note of, divorce, um, money loss, job loss, ability loss, like a disability, like having um, – Arthritis is a you know you lose the ability to move it the way you used to, and so those are important things to watch out for as well. All right, this fourth factor that we want to look at is health factors. This is these are things like brain conditions, like any condition that has been known to affect mood and behavior. Things like Parkinson's, medication side effects, stroke, traumatic brain injury chronic traumatic encephalopathy, et cetera. Um, many of you therapists out there aren't physicians, so you don't know about these things, but you should have a, an understanding at the very least when you are assessing clients and their medical conditions. You want to ask uh, you know, what they've been treated for, what they've been diagnosed with, and then you know, consult with someone about how it might affect them. Um, also, illness terminal illness, cancer, heart disease, back pain, these kinds of things can also be a factor in suicide motivation. Chronic pain, this is a big one. People with chronic pain are two times more likely to die from suicide. Chronic pain is the worst. Uh, one, because it hurts. Two, because it's chronic and it's you can be hopeless about it. You know, I, I had some back pain for a while myself, and uh, I have a uh, an old football injury actually where I, I have a broken bone in my back that I said, long story short, I have a, um, a disc that is massively out of whack and uh, it looks very bad in an x-ray. Um, and when I started to have pain in my back, it wasn't, it didn't hurt that much, but the, the hopelessness about it would set in because I thought, and, you know, people, you know, physicians were like, well, it's possible that you're just always going to have back pain. You know, back, lower back pain is, is just a thing. You know, a lot of people have lower back pain. And so I was like, so uh, this is I'm going to be living this with this, living with this for the rest of my life. And it could just get progressively worse over time. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. You know, doctors are talking about surgery with me and they're just like, well, you know, surgery is. Uh, kind of a crapshoot. It's usually only done in severe situations because it usually doesn't, or it often doesn't work. And you can, it also make things worse. And there's, you know, side effects that can happen because of it. And so it, we don't want to try surgery. And then, um, you know, so usually it's just management of the pain. And so I can attest to the hopelessness of that feeling of just like, okay, well, you know, I'm in pain now it's, and it's not great, but you're telling me it's just going to get worse and um, there's no cure and there's no solution to this. Like, oh boy, uh, fuck my life, you know? And, and my pain wasn't even that bad. And it went away after about a year. Uh, I did a lot of physical therapy. Who knows? Maybe it just decided to fix itself. I don't know. But um, occasionally it, it crops up. But 
Um, but man, am I happy that it's gone? I mean, it would hurt all the time. Uh, I'd, if I walked for any longer than, you know, 20 minutes, like I'm at the mall or I'm on vacation, you know, you do a lot of walking when you're on vacation and it would just, um, get real bad. I, I was in, uh, Paris a few years ago with Stacy and, uh, you know, what you need to go to the Louvre, you're, it's like this gigantic complex of, of art museum. And so you're on your feet all day long for many hours. And, um, my back was just killing me and, um, Stacy's feet were killing her. <laughs> uh, just a little, you know, hot tip for, uh, hot tip. <laughs> That's naughty. Um, a little tip for, uh, vacationing or going to the Louvre is, um, wear very comfortable shoes and maybe bring one of those portable seats, you know, those little fold out, those tiny little seats that you can sit down, man, because there's just nowhere to sit in these places. Anyway, so chronic pain, big uh, risk factor for demoralization, hopelessness, thwarted belongingness, um, and suicidal motivation. Also, poor sleep, particularly insomnia. If you've ever suffered from insomnia, even if it was just for one night, you understand it is demoralizing. It is awful. Just staring into the darkness, hoping you fall asleep, knowing like, oh, God, tomorrow is just going to be awful. And there's also something about nighttime that kind of fucks with our head. We tend to be uh, people tend to be much more dark, have much darker thoughts and much much more unregulated negativity late at night, at least me and people around me. So having insomnia, having poor sleep can lead to suicidal intentions for in a number of ways. One is is that it's demoralizing, right? You're just like, I, I'm always tired. I can't fall asleep. This is awful. Uh, another reason is because when we have poor sleep, then we tend to have um, much more problems regulating our emotions. We have much more uh, problems thinking straight. Um, we're much more likely to be, likely to be depressed, um, this kind of thing. So uh, there's a lot of roads to to suicide from poor sleep. And so it's very important that we pay attention to that and treat it. Number five uh, factor that we want to look at category is personality factors. And I'll just list off a whole bunch here. Emotional regulation deficits. Very important to assess for that. You know, how how well... Do people regulate their own emotions? Uh, Negativity. This is a personality trait in some where they just tend to be fairly negative. It's it's not a choice that they make. It's it's more of just the way that they were raised to think. Uh, Hopelessness, obviously. Despair, obviously. Perceived burdensomeness, perceived thwarted belongingness. I've talked about that before. Feeling a lack of control over their life. This is another thing I haven't talked about yet. When one doesn't have a internal sense of control, uh, when they feel like their life is out of their own hands, then people get demoralized. They have despair. They have hopeless. You know, when when you feel like you can't actually do anything about your life, you're much more likely to head down a road of, of suicide. You know, like when I had my back pain. I was given the impression that if I did enough physical therapy, that there was hope. And so um, I I did that. I did all this. You know, my physical therapy people, my physicians, they had all these different ideas about what to do. And I tried all of them. I had hope. I had like, you know, there were times when I didn't, you know, after nine months of doing things and nothing was working, I was like, well, I guess I don't have hope. But, you know, I, I was really um, 
benefit. I really benefited from the fact that uh, it hadn't been that long from the pain, that kind of thing. But if if it had gone much longer, and I felt like I was not in control of my own destiny, that my back pain was it was, and this horrible thing was just going to happen regardless of anything that I did, and there was just nothing I could do about it, then that's much more uh, of a hopeless situation, right? Also, aggression and severe anger towards others. This is a big one. And we don't, obviously, we don't see this with everyone, but we do see it with a lot of people. Um, sometimes people will complete suicide as a way of getting revenge. Um, again, not everyone, but a good, good percentage of people will attempt as a way of getting back at people. You know, the 13 Reasons Why TV show on Netflix is kind of like that. She was wronged, she was abused, she was uh, mistreated. And uh, part of the reason why she wanted to kill herself, in my interpretation, is that she wanted other people to know what they had done to her. And so that's why she did those elaborate suicide notes of those cassette tapes, because she wanted everyone to know. She wanted everyone to suffer as a result of, of her death. You know, it's sort of like, I'll show them. I, I've known people. I haven't had any clients that were like this, but I have known people who were like this. Uh, you know, personally and or in the news or something where they are hopeless, they've been mistreated, they thwarted belongingness and uh, they've been bullied or whatever. They've been um, divorced and they want to get back at people around them. And, and so they're, they're like, one, if I kill myself, that's it's like, I'll show you I'm, I'm going to kill myself. The other thing is. Uh, sometimes they'll kill other people in the process of dying. And this is one of the things that I talk about. Whenever we talk about these mass shootings, a good percentage of them, the primary, in my uh, conceptualization, the primary foundation for that act of murder is suicide. They wanted, it started with a motivation to kill themselves. They also were very angry at society. They had a lot of aggression towards people. And so like, well, if I'm going to die, I might as well take a bunch of people with me, right? So suicide is a very important thing to look at, um, not only to save the person who was thinking about suicide to save their life, but potentially to save other people's lives. Um, Impulsivity is another personality trait that's, that's very associated with suicidal risk. People who just act impulsively. They just, they just take actions. They just do things. And, um, you know, this can be associated with psychopathy or ADHD or something. Deep shame is also a personality trait that can be related to suicide. Low self-esteem, lack of judgment. This is related to impulsivity, but not exactly the same. When people tend to exhibit lack of judgment in a, in a, in a lot of areas, like they um, get fired from their job a lot because they don't know when to be quiet or they don't know when to to make sure that they show up to work on time. You know, just a general lack of judgment can also be associated with suicide. Existential crises, um, also associated. Perfectionism, there's a, you know, the, the strong desire to pursue, uh, to, to pursue excessive high performance standards and being overly self-critical of one's own performance. You know, so being highly driven and being very self-critical, these uh, personality traits are also related to suicide risk. And finally, rumination. Very important to to keep an eye out for clients who ruminate a lot. You know, they perseverate, they're fixated on thoughts that don't lead to any active problem solving. Um, you know, essentially the rumination on negativity magnifies their negative emotions and their hopelessness, which can lead to suicide. 
All right, number six factor that we're going to look at is social and family factors. So relationship difficulties, interpersonal conflict, thwarted belongingness, isolation, humiliation. This is something I haven't mentioned yet is, you know, being humiliated for some people can be a big precursor to thoughts and completions of suicide. Humiliation at like being being uh, cheated on, being divorced when it wasn't your choice, being fired from a job. Maybe um, you're a teenager and um, someone posted a very embarrassing video of you or you are outed as a trans person before you wanted to be. Humiliation is a uh, an incredibly horrible thing for people. Uh, for some people, uh, in some contexts, it doesn't really affect them, but for some, it, can, it really can. Also, uh, parents who have mental conditions like depression, bipolar, psychosis is also associated with suicide for the children, adult children as well of people with mental you know, conditions and their parents. Uh, divorce and separation can also lead to not only for the parents, but also for the kids, whether the kids are adults or not. And that's something that's often unexpected is that we tend to associate children who are distressed from divorce as being children. You know, they're five, they're 10, they're 13. But I have known clients and I know people personally who have had their parents get divorced when they were, you know, when the person that I know, when the child was like 30 years old, 35 years old, it can be just as distressing to them. Uh, in fact, it can be almost more distressing in some ways because as a adult child, you uh, have always had them together. You also, um, I don't know, there's just, there, you, might, you might care more about their state when you're 35. You know, you might just care more about how they're doing in life and seeing them get divorced can, can be very distressing at any age, basically. But so that's another risk factor to look for. Not as high as say they've had a recent attempt of suicide or they're depressed, but it's just something to keep in mind. Family conflict. Uh, one study found that when you are a child or a teenager who is depressed and you, in, and you also add family conflict on top of that, you are 27 times more likely to die from suicide. Now, you know, studies find different things. Maybe it's not that high, but, but one study did find this. Depression in youths with family conflict, 27 times more likely to die from suicide. That is concerning. So make sure you watch out, um, not only for depression, but if you add on family conflict. And that, that's one of the things that I guess I haven't emphasized is that, and research has show, show this, shown this, is that it's, it's important to get a list of all the risk factors that might play a role in someone uh, completing suicide because research shows that uh, these things are additive, meaning that when you have uh, two risk factors, then your risk tends to be lower than if you had 10 risk factors. So you have depression, you are isolated, you aren't sleeping at night very well, you have family conflict, you were abused as a younger person. These things tend to add to each other so that your suicidal risk is compounded by the piling on of the factors, which makes sense, right? You're depressed and everything else is going well. Well, then you're not as hopeless, but you're depressed. Your family's fighting all the time. You're alone. No one wants to be your friend. Um, 
you were sexually abused as a child and made to feel worthless on the inside. You know, all these things converge on suicidal ideation. Family chaos and perceived lack of parental support are also other social things. You know, the the big thing here is like, is, is are maybe three different categories here. One is is like, is the individual is your client having troubles with their current relationships? Are they getting into fights? Are they being rejected? This kind of thing. The other category here is: Are people around them fighting, even though it's not involving them? But are are people around them having difficulties? People that they care about. And the the third thing here is: Are people around them uh, treating them badly? Are they being bullied? Are they being humiliated? Are they being thwarted? That kind of thing. Okay. Number seven is social contagion factors. So. Sometimes this is called copycat suicide or suicide cluster or the Werther effect. If you want to get the full discussion on this, listen to my other deep dive, which I go into much more detail, but I just, just to condense it down here. Um, about One study found that about 5% of suicides among young people were influenced by suicide contagion, meaning that um, someone close to them died or someone close to them attempted, either a best friend or someone they knew or a family member, or like a famous person, right? Like, um, you know, Robin Williams kills himself, and we see a bump in suicide completions right after that. So if you have a client who is suffering from ongoing suicidal ideation, and a famous person kills themselves that your client pays attention to, then you really want to look at that very closely. Suicide contagion is a very uh, is has a lot of weight to it, so you really want to pay attention. Uh, other st- other research here: worldwide, vulnerable people can be influenced to attempt suicide. So it's, it's not just some people think like suicide contagion is an American thing because you know, but that's not. It's it's you know, suicide. All humans seem to be affected by suicide contagion. Um, essentially the theory goes is that when people are vulnerable to suicide and that's important, you know, someone who kills himself, you know, when Robin Williams killed himself and say that someone was a super fan of Robin Williams, but they weren't suicidal to begin with, then they're not really at risk of killing themselves. So if you're already at risk of killing yourself and then someone close to you or a famous person kills themselves, then what it does is it tends to, uh, the theory goes, is it tends to make suicide more feasible to the individual. It's just like, well, if they did it, then I guess I could do it too. There's just, we're, we're, we're highly social creatures. We don't like to think of ourselves this way, but we're extremely affected by what's going on around us. It really changes the way we see something. If everyone is wearing bell-bottom jeans, then we wear bell-bottom jeans and we think we look hot. If no one is wearing bell-bottom jeans and we put on bell-bottom jeans, we think we look ridiculous. And it's not just like we think we look ridiculous in other people's eyes. We literally look ourselves and go, you know, as an example of this is maybe to provide some levity to this is when I grew up in the 70s and all you had to do was look at basketball in the 70s, people wore shorts that were very short. Now, I wouldn't call them short shorts. I would just call them shorts. Uh, in the seventies, that, that, that was normal to me. Everyone wore shorts that were short. They were basically like running shorts, right? 
uh, whether you're basketball, whether you were just hanging out at home in shorts, every, there were no such thing as longer shorts. In the 80s, that's when you had what they started calling board shorts or, or surfer guy shorts. and they were, But they were still just a little bit down the leg. We're talking like a quarter way down the leg. By the time we get to like the 90s, people are basically wearing, you know, people are calling shorts below the knees. In fact, I remember my sister saying something like, she's like, I don't want to see any man in shorts where the where the pant legs are above the knees. And I remember being like, well, to me, if shorts go below the knees, then those are just short pants. <laughs> like those aren't, those, that's just how I see shorts. And so I, throughout my life, um, whenever I buy shorts, particularly running shorts, I always buy really short shorts. What I, what I consider to be just shorts, but other people consider them very, very short, short. Um, in fact, my cousin, Mandy, some of you might know her because she was on the podcast a lot in the past, uh, will totally make fun of me. You know, the Arrested Development never nude thing, because I actually used to have really short uh, cutoff jeans. And to me, they're just shorts. But other people, oh, you know, I don't want to see your upper thigh. And well, when I grew up, you know, that was just the way things were. Everyone saw everyone's upper thigh. <laughs> and and so it when I look at myself in the mirror in short shorts, I'm like, okay, looks normal. I'm not thinking I look hot, but I, I'm thinking it doesn't look weird. But to other people, it, it looks like I'm walking around in, in like a thong or something. So why is that? Well, because when I grew up, that was normal. And when other people grew up or in other, other areas or other times, it was considered to be disgusting. Uh, you know, I'm guessing there are certain beaches in Europe where men wearing Speedos is like totally not a big deal. In Seattle, if you were a Speedo, people would call the cops on you for indecency. Uh, it is it, it, now what people will say is like, well, you know, Europeans are stupid <laughs> or uh, people in the 70s are stupid to think that those shorts were were anything other than disgusting. Uh, so we tend to look at our own perceptions as like scientific fact. When in reality, it's just a goddamn opinion and the opinion isn't even fucking yours. It was given to you by society. Just like the fact that, you know, short shorts don't look weird to me. It's because society gave me that social construction. I did not, um, you know, emerge from the womb uh, with that opinion. I was given that opinion by the 70s society that I lived in. And if you are younger than I am, then in all likelihood, you were given a different conception. So it's not empirically gross to wear short shorts. It's just the conception that the conceptualization that you have been given. So suicide is the same thing. When we are given a conceptualization, when we're given a construction of suicide in which it's just like a normal thing, then we're much more likely to do it. Whereas when we're given a uh, construction where suicide is really not an option in our society, then we're much less likely to do it. This is one of the reasons I suspect why we see variation across the world. In the Middle East, we see Eastern Middle East, you see a much lower rate of suicide. I think, I don't know, but I suspect it's just, you know, my, you know, very uneducated notion of the general culture in the, you know, Eastern Mediterranean, which of course is um, a lot of different, different, uh, dis, you know, desperate, disparate cultures, but people tend to look at suicide as uh, not an option in, in that part of the world. Whereas in East Asia, Southeast Asia, it's considered much more normalized and therefore you see higher rates. So um, 
you as a clinician need to make sure, one, that you assess for that. You know, ha- what sort of concept- conceptualization do they have of suicide? Because that can very much change things and, and give you more reason to believe they're higher risk. But also it gives you a, re- a, a treatment direction. You know, one can change their mind. It, to, to use my earlier analogy, I suppose if I really set my mind to it, I could become convinced that short shorts are disgusting <laughs> if a therapist decided to make sure I really understood that. Um, so, or at least I could adopt the notion that it's possible it's disgusting or something um, and vice versa. Anyway, some studies here are that um, uh, when someone close to them attempts suicide, they're, they're much higher risk of suicide. Also, when there's media coverage of a suicide, in, in my deep dive, I did a whole, uh, my other deep dive, I did a whole section on like what the media is supposed to do when there is a suicide. There's a whole, there's, there's been a lot of research and a lot of recommendations on this and media outlets aren't, aren't following these guidelines. But essentially what the media needs to be doing is when there's a suicide, one, they probably shouldn't even mention it. And if they have to mention it like you would if it was Robin Williams, then you should be very careful about what you say. You shouldn't glorify it. You should provide um, a lot of talk on how to help people uh, prevent themselves from killing themselves. And research actually shows that, that when, um, when, they, when the media actually is responsible in their depictions of, or their reporting of suicide, suicide rates can actually go down for a period of time. Because uh, there isn't a lot of positive talk about suicide. There isn't a lot of options given to people. Um, whereas when the media talks about suicide the way they do 99.9% of the time, it almost inevitably leads to, uh, to people completing the act. And, and it is one of those things where as a clinician, and once you see it and you start seeing news reports of suicides, y- you really get upset about it, or I get upset about it. Because these news people are doing things that literally are resulting in people dying. And um, they and they don't even know it. Like the 13 Reasons Why TV show, um, when it first came out, I was of the belief where I was like, well, so if you don't know the 13 Reasons Why, it's this Netflix TV show where um, a teenage girl kills herself. It, that's how it starts off. And then um, this guy discovers her tapes and people listen to her tapes and it's her suicide note to all these different people and it, they, we, t- we learn why she killed herself. This TV show um, on its surface I thought was actually a positive thing because it raised wa- awareness about suicide um, and bullying and sexual assault and this kind of thing. And I thought that there's a lot of really good lessons that could be learned uh, from the show for teenagers. And it's, it's a made-for-teen show. It's not, I don't think, merely made-for-adults. Um, I think it's particularly appealing to teenagers, let's put it that way. Um, so at first I thought it was a positive thing, and it was actually written by my friend, Brian Yorkie. Uh, the screenplay was adapted from the book. And so maybe I was biased in that way. But, um, but I, uh, over time, have come to uh, the realization, because they actually did show a, uh, a bump in suicide after that TV show came out that was pretty significant. Um, in the in the month or two after that TV show came out, there was a um, an uncharacteristic bump in suicides among young people and young adults. And now that could have been due to a lot of things. There's no way to know if those were uh, caused, if it was causation or correlation. But it seems very likely because it was a very popular show. And 
I've now come to realize that whenever we talk about suicide, we have to be really careful. You know, that's why I'm sprinkling in a lot of trigger warnings to people. That's why I'm saying, you know, if there's any doubt, talk to your therapist right away. That's why I'm very, um, you know, clear to, to say that uh, suicide is preventable. And if you are thinking about suicide, then um, it's likely that it's just a flash in the pan and you just have to get through that moment by calling the suicide hotline or calling 911 or talking to your therapist or talking to anyone. And you'll, they'll get you through that tough time and you'll live and you'll be thankful that you got through that time later on. Um, so there's just a lot of uh, messages that aren't, that aren't given. You know, in the 13 Reasons Why TV show, they didn't really give those messages. They've started to add these disclaimers at the beginning um, for, I think, good reason. And that probably is good. But so, but the other thing is, is that we have a problem in our society because we rarely talk about suicide at all. And so I don't really want to fault 13 reasons why for bringing up the topic. Um, what I really want to do is fault us. If we're going to yell at 13 reasons why, we have to yell at all media outlet one because meet because newspapers and you know news shows and the internet certainly isn't responsible when it comes to suicide either. So it's not like thirteen reasons why is any different than that. The other thing is is our society in general, culture in general, just ignores it completely. As I've been talking about, you know, the stats on this, I hope it's a little bit shocking. It's like, wait, so you're a thousand times more likely to die from suicide than you are from terrorism. Uh, in the United States, how often are we talking about the wall and terrorism and, you know, uh, uh, presidential tweets and stuff? How and, and, and are we paying enough attention to suicide, particularly for young people, since it's the second leading cause of death for young people? Um, it's just bizarre. You know, the, the things that we pay attention to, the Ebola scare, that kind of it's like, why are we paying attention to that? Like, do you know, in, in the amount of time that we were talking about Ebola for a couple of months, you know, 4,000 kids died or 4,000 people died in the United States from suicide. So, you know, what are we doing about suicide? Um, not that we shouldn't do anything about Ebola, but we should be doing a thousand times more things about suicide. Anyway, um, all right, so that's suicide contagion as a factor, and that's a pretty big one you want to pay attention to. Number eight are behavioral factors. So some of these are hold a lot of weight and some of them don't. Um, one is disengagement from services. So if you see a client who disengages from services, whether it's from you or from a psychiatrist or something, this is a big red flag for suicide, particularly if they had significant suicidality heading into that decision. Also, noncompliance with medication. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons for this being associated with suicide. One is, is that when you go off your medication or when you change your medication, um, even if it's a, you know, an increase in medication, the risk of suicide goes up just because of the change. The other thing is, is um, when someone decides to go off their meds, say they're bipolar, they are in some ways kind of giving up. Not always, but sometimes they're giving up. They're just like, fuck it. You know what I mean? I, I don't like the side effects. Um, I'm giving up. Um, another reason why it could lead to suicide is they could just kind of be fed up with the mental health system in general. And their demoralization could just be so high. They're just like, well, no one's really helping me. So fuck it. You know, I'm going off. I'm not, I'm not going to go to therapy anymore. I'm going to go off my meds. And that attitude could, could be one of demoralization that could just indicate a higher risk of suicide. Um, and as I said earlier, a recent hospital discharge. So if you have a client who went to the hospital for any reason and comes out, then for whatever reason, there's, there's just higher risk of suicide. 
Other behavioral things here, having a gun. So if you have a gun, if someone has a gun, they're much more likely to die from suicide. It's the most common method of completed suicide in the United States. Half of all suicides are from a firearm. Um, About a quarter are from suffocation or hanging. 16% are from poisoning, meaning, you know, medications usually. 2% are from cutting and 1% are from drowning. So this is actually something that I think a lot of people... Um, might not have intuited because a lot of depictions of suicide in movies and TV are cutting. People will slit their wrists. You know, whenever you talk about suicide, oh, I'm going to slit my wrists. Well, uh, very rarely do people do that. And for, I think, some pretty intuitive reasons, uh, to cut into your arteries would be really hard to do, right? Uh, Whereas to pull a trigger, it's much easier um, in terms of the distress involved. So, If someone has a gun, um, you really, really want to pay attention to it. And it's such an easy thing to change. Um, And and this is something actually that I've dealt with people who are even just mildly suicidal. Um, I had a client not too long ago who went through some distressful times and was, you know, I asked him, so so, as as a model for assessment, I had been treating him for uh, something for a long time, for a few years, and suicidality was not an issue, and we never talked about it. Depression was not an issue. Then he went through a divorce, and he was in a lot of despair, but he didn't seem depressed, and he wasn't mentioning suicide. But I knew enough about suicide to ask him, and so I asked him, and he said, I hate to admit this, but yeah, it has kind of crossed my mind. So I did an assessment. He was at medium risk level, meaning that he, you know, didn't really have a plan and didn't have an intent, but he had, you know, some pretty big waves of of suicidal ideation. And he had a lot of despair and he, you know, was going through a big loss that he didn't want to go through. And there was just a lot of indications. And he had a lot of guns in his house, you know, he's one of those kinds of guys, which is, you know, a lot of people in the United States. I can't remember the exact step, something like, Oh, here it is. Um, 37% of American adults report owning a firearm. So, you know, a third of people have a gun in their house. And, uh, and of those people, they often have more than one gun. And so with this client, I said, okay, um, the first thing we need to do on your safety plan, so this is part of the safety plan, is we need to get rid of your guns. And he's just like, oh, well... I like my guns and, you know, I, I don't want to get rid of them. And I was like, okay, that's so, so a big part of the gun inner, cause most therapists are liberal and don't like guns and not all therapists, many, I know therapists who love guns in fact. Um, but, uh, but many therapists, especially in Seattle don't like guns and have a hard time talking about it. You got to get into their world. And so that means that you don't want to talk like a liberal, essentially. <laughs> you don't want to talk like an anti-gun person. You want to you enter their world. And, and one of the ways that research has found that, you know, in order to help people with um, their gun management while they're suicidal is to not mention anything about the Second Amendment. Don't mention anything about anti-gun. You want to talk about responsible gun ownership is the main thing because most gun owners like the the notion of being responsible with their guns, um, meaning that they're locked up, kids don't have access to them. Um, you know, when you're drunk, you don't pull out the guns. You know, there's there's 
there's a lot of culture around that. So you want to enter that world. And so what I did with him is, you know, I really emphasize, look, you're at risk and you're, you're having some pretty big mood swings and I don't want you to die. And I'm here to tell you that, um, you know, if there's a 1% chance that you're going to die from suicide in the next week or two, um, I don't think it's much to ask for you to get rid of your guns. So what can we do? And he's like, well, um, and, and the other thing I would say is like, you don't have to sell your guns. You just have to give them to someone else. Cause usually gun owners will have a family member or a friend that will gladly take their guns, um, as not only as a, just a cultural thing, just like, look, I'm moving. I don't want to have the guns in the, in the moving van. So hold on to my guns for a while or, but also just because your friends and family don't want you to die from suicide. It's it's also a way of alerting other people to your suffering. And so he gave his friends, his guns and, and um, you know, for, uh, I don't know, a few months or something. And when his suicidality waves subsided for extended period of time, um, we talked about it and he got his guns back and he was fine. Um, so also research shows that reducing access to guns is one of the few empirically supported ways to reduce suicide rates. So when it comes to actually preventing suicide, which is a part of our overall effort here, one of the best things we can do is actually reduce access to guns. So if there's anything you're going to add to the safety plan, you got to add the guns to the safety plan. Very important. Um, and just think about it, you know, if someone, their preferred method of, of suicide is guns and they don't really have another plan and they don't have access to a gun. Well, by the time they got access, you know, if they really went through all the steps to get access, they'd have to recall their friend. If their friend has their guns or they have to go to the store and buy one that takes, you know, at least a little bit of time. And by the time they go down that road, they usually will have changed their mind. And that's one of the things I want to emphasize if I haven't already is that uh, when you actually hear people talk about their ups and downs of intention to die, they will, sometimes people will say like, I had a four hour period where I was like, yep, it's time. And a number of things kind of got in the way. And then I no longer wanted to do it anymore. So, um, and I might actually tell a story about that, um, later on. Um, also, 90% of the people who use guns to attempt suicide will complete that suicide. So as opposed to like cutting or poisoning or hanging or drowning, when people use guns, it's very likely to work because it's just such a violent, sure way of killing yourself, right? To shoot yourself in the head. Um, now, this does say that 10% of people who use guns don't die from suicide, which is another horrific thing to think about. But... Um, but the vast majority of people who actually use a gun to kill themselves will succeed. Um, so that, that's if someone has a plan to, ha- to use guns and or they have guns, big red flag for higher risk. The other thing here of behavioral factor is substance use problems. As, and I've been talking that already. When people, particularly heavy alcohol use, is very much a huge red, red flag. Whenever you're assessing for suicide, you should always ask people to be honest with you about how much they're drinking. Even if they're like, well, I only drink once a week. Well, how much are you drinking? What happens when you're drinking? Very important to ask those questions. About 20% of people who died from suicide had a blood alcohol level of above 0.08, which is the, you know, 
legal level in Washington to, to drive um, above, you know, 0.08 and above, you can get a DUI. Um, so 20% of people who died from suicide when you actually, you know, looked at their blood, they, they were pretty intoxicated. Now, there's a lot of reasons why substance use problems can lead to suicide. One is withdrawal problems. You know, when, when you are withdrawing from alcohol or heroin or something, even if it's just your normal ups and downs of hangovers, um, that can be very demoralizing, very depressing, and can lead to suicidal thoughts. Shame of substance use, the ups and downs, that just a deep shame. You know, if you've been struggling with alcoholism or even cigarette addiction for years, it can be very demoralizing and very shameful to people. Also, struggles with sobriety, also negative consequences like, you know, you could lose your job, you could end up in the hospital, you could have big blackouts. These can also cause people to say, fuck it, it's over. And also mood swings from from substance use. So uh, you're going to put a lot of weight on guns and you're going to put a lot of weight on substance use problems, particularly alcohol. Internet use is also a behavioral factor you want to look at. Not a huge weight here, but, you know, internet use, a lot of internet use has been correlated with suicide. Is that correlation or causation? It's hard to know. Certainly if you're depressed and suicidal, then you're much more likely to just stay home, isolate, and spend a lot of time on the internet. But there is some speculation as to why using the internet can actually cause suicidality. When you're using the internet a lot, it can kind of create a feedback loop where you're very isolated and you don't have a lot of uh, in real life friends. Also, it can decrease your exercise. It can increase depression and anxiety in some people, depending on what sort of echo chamber they're in, which can lead to depression and anxiety and, and demoralization, which can lead to suicide. Uh, you know, a, a common example to think about are, again, some of these mass shooters who find themselves in an echo chamber of hate and, you know, black people are taking over the country and they're, they're in some sort of white supremacy, um, you know, rabbit hole and they're isolated, they're depressed and they start to get whipped up into a lot of aggression because of the Internet. And they're like, man, the world is coming to an end. You know, my race is being invaded and taking over. You know, I might as well kill myself or I might take people with me. So Internet use is something to look at, but it, it's not a huge factor in most people's suicides. Also, music and film preference. Again, similar to inter internet use, is a correlation, is a causation. Also, not a huge amount of weight to put on it, but something to assess. People sometimes uh, will draw, you know, these sort of dubious connections between uh, music and film. Like, oh, you know, he was really into death, you know, death music, and that's why he committed suicide. Or that's why he uh, completed suicide. Um, and uh, uh, you know pretty silly arguments there. But there is some evidence that there's an association between suicide and a preference for film with suicidal or sad content. Again, correlation or causation here, right? If you're suicidal, it stands to reason you might be attracted to movies and TV that uh, and and music that involves talk about suicide, right? Uh, but it's also possible that those kinds of depictions could normalize in the same way that suicide contagion does. Um, there's also evidence that when suicidal people see suicide portrayals that focus on coping skills in uh, particularly movies and TV, then this will actually reduce their suicidal thoughts. So it's not that suicide is being talked about. It's the way it's being talked about. And that's a big thing I want to emphasize. Media, TV, music, film, 
we shouldn't avoid suicide because it's a part of life. What we should do is make sure we depict it in a way that at the very least is neutral and at best actually helps people to not be motivated to kill themselves. Cigarette smoking, there's a slight association between cigarette smoking and suicide. Hard to know exactly why. We could speculate. Also, gambling. This is a big one. About 25% of those with a gambling problem have suicidal ideation, and about 10% have attempted. So this is a lot. So it, you know, if you know someone who has a gambling problem, then one out of four chance they have thought about suicide because of their uh, gambling or they're suicidal. So there's, there's a lot of road. Is it correlation or causation? If you're suicidal and you're depressed and, and you feel like, well, what's the point? You might be like, well, screw it. You know, I'll just put all my money down on, you know, the table. And if I win a bunch of money, maybe that'll solve my problems. But also when gambling becomes a problem, it can be very demoralizing because not only is it an addiction that can, you know, be very depressing because gambling almost always leads to you losing money. There's, uh, I've gambled quite a, as an Asian person, <laughs> I've gambled quite a bit. And, um, I can tell you that, uh, the house always wins. Eventually you might win a couple of things, but, um, if you keep going, eventually the house wins. And so, uh, whenever I go gambling now, it's always like, well, I'm only going to gamble a little bit and I'm only going to gamble what I am willing to lose. And I will likely lose. <laughs> um, so, but for some people, you know, they don't really understand that statistic uh, reality, that prob- probabilistic reality. And so they lose a lot of money and it can be very demoralizing. But remember, I talked about how financial ruin can cause a, people to have a lot of suicidal intention for whatever reason. And so it, it kind of compounds there. All right. Number nine factor you want to look at are marginalization factors. Things like socioeconomic stress, lower education, unemployment, poverty, these are associated with suicide. They're not huge things to weigh overall. They could be a big deal to some clients, but um, again, it's not as important as, say, having a gun or being depressed, but something to look out for, socioeconomic stress, Uh, particularly if it's acute, like suddenly they were fired or suddenly they are experiencing poverty. Uh, Homelessness. Uh, Suicidal ideation among the homeless is 10 times more. And people who are homeless are 53% likely to attempt suicide at some point in their lifetime. 53%. Being homeless, most homeless people will attempt suicide at some point in their life. Now, it's probably at least partially for many due to homelessness, but of course, all the other things that that are that lead to homelessness and are associated with homelessness, the marginalization, the unemployment, the poverty, the abuse that ap- often happens on the streets, the mental illness that might have led you down a road of uh, marginalization that led to you being homeless in the first place. So if you are one of those people who are um, working with homeless people, you probably know this. Suicidal ideation is 10 times more likely. And uh, they're also uh, something, what would it be like? They're 30 to 40 times more likely to die from suicide. LGBTQIA, three times more likely to die from suicide. 
for I think obvious reasons, our our society sucks. Still, we like to think of ourselves as progressive, and we we've, we've moved on. We have not. Uh, particularly for young people, the bullying and the marginalization is still there, um, regardless of where you live in the United States. Um, it's awful to be, you know, anything other than certain privileged people. Racism, sexism, other isms can also uh, result in higher risk of suicide and bullying. And this is probably the underlying uh, feature of a lot of these marginalization factors is, you know, if you're bullied for being gay, if you're bullied for uh, you know being poor, if you're bullied for not being very good in school, or you're just bullied for for no good reason. Um, most people are bullied for no good reason. I would say all bullying is for no good reason. But if you're bullied for no discernible reason, then you're much more likely to be at risk of suicide. Many stories we hear about this, right? You know, someone was bullied online, cyber bullied, and they killed themselves. We could also even look at the Columbine murders as being attributed to bullying. Also, being an inmate, being convicted, being having gone to prison um, and being released from prison, nine times higher suicide rates than the general population. Again, being a uh, you know convicted felon is going to uh, reduce or going to increase your marginalization. It's going to reduce your en- employment opportunities. But also, you know, what are all the things that led to you, uh, con- you know, being convicted of a felon in the first place? Maybe you were mistreated growing up, you have attachment insecurity, you have a personality disorder, and so correlation causation there. Also, having a low IQ, particularly in men, can result in uh, a higher rate uh, or a higher risk of suicide. Not a huge uh, association there, but something to look at. And also being overweight, particularly for women, can um, I know some of you don't like the term overweight, but, um, you know, I, so I'll just acknowledge that. But but uh, particularly for women can be associated with um, suicidal risk. The reason I'm putting it in the marginalization category, because that's my speculation, is that for men uh, to have a lower IQ and for women to be larger, uh, we look at that in our society as a very bad thing. And people are bullied, they're made fun of, there's jokes about them, you know, stupid, stupidity is something to be made, made, made fun of, being fat is, for, you know, something to be made fun of. Um, I haven't seen the, the Cats movie, but I have seen the play, and, um, you know, there's apparently some fat shaming going on in that movie. Um, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, and so uh, for people who you know, don't have the required uh, characteristics of a privileged person, then they're likely to be underprivileged and marginalized and made to feel worthless. And that can be um, a motivation for suicide for some people. Number 10 factor are things like time of day, uh, day of week, time of the year, and the moon cycle. These are uh, very, uh, you know, uh, low associations with suicide. Um, uh, but again, as I was talking about earlier, most suicides happen in the morning. There's a slight bump in on Mondays. There's a slight bump in the spring and, and summer, and it doesn't vary by the moon. So, you know, maybe something to think about. Um, not usually that important. Again, the reason why I mention it here is because a lot of people talk about it, but it's actually not uh, something you really want to focus on. And the last factor category here are demographic factors. So gender is a important thing to pay attention to. 
Females attempt four times more often, and males complete four times more often. So it's a pretty stark difference between men and women if we're looking at binary definitions of gender here. Uh, women are four times more likely to attempt. Uh, so that's a pretty pretty big difference, right? Uh, but of the you know minority of of men who are thinking about suicide, when they um, do take an action, they're four times more likely to complete it. And one of the ways to look at this is they're actually in some ways six teams, men are sometimes, one way of looking at it is they're like 16 times more likely to complete. Yeah, statistics doesn't really work that way, but it kind of does. Anyway, um, 70% of the suicides in, in the United States are white males of all ages. So when we think about suicide, we really should be thinking about um, uh, men and their propensity to be alone, their propensity to use very violent means, to uh, like guns, and uh, we need to pay attention to that. Now, 70% of suicides in the United States are white males. Part of that is due to the fact that, um, that we have a lot of white males in the United States. <laughs> so um, that shouldn't be, you know, half of, of the United States are white and, um, you know, half of them are men. And so, um, but... You know, if you have a client who has, uh, you know, high, medium to high risk of suicide and they're a male, then that is something to definitely put a lot of weight on. Um, not that women should be ignored, of course. Ethnicity in the United States, uh, some s- statistics here. There are different figures by different studies, but in general, American Indian and Alaska Natives are much more likely to die from suicide, um, in particular Native Americans on reservations. They are 10 times more likely to complete suicide than the average. And then uh, also pretty high, close, cl- a close second to American Indians and Alaska Natives, are Caucasian white people. Um, and their rates have almost doubled in the last 20 years. Just think about that. For, for everyone, it has increased. For all ethnicities, it has increased. But particularly for white people in the United States. Now, of course, you know, certain politicians would capitalize on that and say that it's because we're racist against white people. Um, I think it's probably due to a lot of things. One is, is that for all people, suicide is going up. But also because I think that there's a lot of poverty among white people. A lot of uh, white people are um, not up to speed. You know, there's communities in the United States where there's a lot of white people, say, you know, rural uh, Louisiana or something, and they aren't up to speed on what is currently the economic trends, you know, of tech and this kind of thing. You know, one of the things that you notice in Seattle is that the tech boom in Seattle is just huge. I mean, there's so many Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Facebook people walking around downtown Seattle. And uh, the thing that you notice is a lot of them are people of color and a lot of them are not white. And so there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to why that would be. Um, I think a lot of Asians, South Asians as well, are attracted to jobs of of tech for, you know, just cultural reasons. Um, Not that they were born that way, but because, you know, we tend to look to our idols, um, people that we identify with, and there's there's a lot of Asians in tech. And so you tend to look at them and say, oh, okay, well, so one of my people is up there. Maybe I could follow in their footsteps. Anyway, it's complicated. But um, 
But anyway, so that's one reason. Um, but anyway, uh, white people, pretty pretty high rates. And then in the in the lower categories of of rates is Asians, African Americans, and Hispanics. Um, they also are almost fifty percent more likely to die from suicide in the last twenty years. But um, but their rates are are pretty low. So again, it's something to think about. If you have a, a Native American who is on a reservation and has some suicidal signs. You know, you really want to pay attention to that because um, they are much more at risk than, say, if they were Asian. Um, age is another thing to look at. Uh, a lot of people consider suicide to be a teenage thing, but actually uh, they are uh, not very likely to die from suicide compared to other um, groups of people. Um, all age groups have been rising over the last 20 years. So that's something to think about. So for people that are younger than 15 or 16 years old, uh, these people are extremely unlikely to kill themselves or attempt. Um, it does happen at times, but it is um, of the age groups, they're significantly less likely. The other age groups, as soon as you hit about 15, uh, going all the way up to you know elderly ages, your rates are pretty similar. There are, there, there's a bump in middle age, 46 to 64. Um, so if you want to think of a slight bell curve, you want to think about teenagers, young adults are the least likely among the older people. You know, as soon as you hit 15, uh, your, your rates start at a certain level and then they rise up to a, to another level when you're 25 to 44 and then it peaks at 46 to uh, 64 and 65 plus, plus it starts to come down. Although the line is pretty flat. So the thing to think about is that age doesn't really play that much of a factor in your risk of suicide. Uh, and you might have some bias against that. You might think teenagers don't complete suicide or maybe you think most suicides are teenagers and it's just not what we find in the studies. Some studies find that when we, uh, when people enter the 85 plus range, they are the most at risk. Um, you know, it kind of, uh, some intuition there come, you know, speculation around like, well, you're 90 years old. You likely have a number of health problems that you've been told are not going to get any better. You might have dementia, uh, depression is very common among older people for a number of reasons. One is, is like you might have trouble with mobility. You might have trouble with, um, you know, many strokes, this kind of thing. Plus, a lot of the people that you've loved have probably already died. I mean, I saw my grandmother go through this. I uh, was pretty close to her in her 90s, and um, we would reminisce about the past, and I would, you know, show her pictures, and she would look at the her, you know, a picture of her and all of her friends when she was 20 years old, and she would look at all the pictures. Everyone, she'd be like, everyone is dead except for me. You know, like 30 of my close friends growing up, um, and many of whom I was friends with for uh, into my adulthood, all of them are dead except for me. I mean, just imagine that, like everyone you know, in, including um, your own uh, children. So, you know, if you're 90 years old, there's there's a chance that some of your kids have already died of some common causes of old age as well. Okay, so we've talked about gender, ethnicity, age. Now let's talk about region of the United States. Again, something we don't usually talk about. Um, to my non-American listeners, this might not make any sense or any relevance to you, but to 
the two-thirds of you out there who are from the United States, maybe this will help. The main thing here is that rural areas are much have much higher rates of suicide. And in some uh, examples, it's really a stark difference. Um, so if you are a therapist who works in a rural area, then you want to be uh, particularly mindful of uh, that fact. Uh, there's a lot of factors as to reason why. One is that uh, people who live in rural areas are much more likely to be suffering from poverty and unemployment. They're much more likely to have difficulty accessing mental health services, and there's more guns. So um, there's, those are the main reasons why. Now, if we look at states here, and you know, just think about from your own bias or your own guess. It's like, okay, what you know, what what places have the highest? What states have the highest suicide? What states have the lowest? It, it's not very intuitive to me, anyway, or at least it's not talked about very much. Maybe it makes sense to you, but the lowest suicide rates, and there's some pretty big differences. Like uh, the low, that the lowest is in New York State. So some of you might be surprised by that because you might be like, well, New York City, that's where all the violence happens and all the horribleness. But no, New York State has the, has the lowest uh, suicide rate overall in the United States. Um, part, part of that might be because a lot of the people live in the city. Um, and so there's not, you know, of the percentage of people, they have a pretty low percentage of people living in rural areas in New York State, as far as I can guess. The highest uh, rate of suicide is Montana. So, uh, and again... If you, I live fairly close to, you know, quote unquote, close to Montana. I've driven through it a number of times. It is, it's just a vast sea of rural areas. <laughs> the quote unquote cities in there are very small. Um, and so uh, Montana has a rate that is almost three times as high as New York. So that's another thing to think about is like, um, do these people live in cities? Do, do they live in rural areas? Do they live in a rural state? This kind of thing. Um, so the lowest 10 in order from lowest to, you know, 10th lowest is New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland, California, Connecticut, Illinois, Delaware, Rhode Island, Texas, and Texas and Virginia are tied for, for 10th lowest. So that might be surprising. You know, a lot of that's Northeast with California thrown in there and Texas. And then at the top 10, you have, again, Montana has the highest rate of suicide. The next is Alaska, which, again, fairly remote, fairly rural. Then you have uh, Wyoming, and then you have New Mexico. New Mexico has a lot of Native Americans, uh, so that could be a fact, and a lot of drug problems. Um, that could be a factor there. Idaho is fifth. Utah, South Dakota, again, very remote for, for a lot of people. West Virginia, Arkansas, Colorado, and Nevada are tied for 10th uh, highest. Colorado is a bit of a weird one there, um, but so the thing you, you you might notice is a lot of these top regions for suicide are the mountain time zone. Um, you know, so it's just another thing to think about when you see the United States. The sort of hot zone for suicide is the mountain time zone, and then some in the middle here. You got Minnesota, Hawaii, Washington, Maine, Oregon. Washington State is is again you know right about in the middle, uh, which. Most people wouldn't intuit. They'd be like, oh, you know, Washington State, that's where people kill themselves because it rains all the time. Well, no, we're, we're pretty average when it comes to that. And again, Montana doesn't rain there very much at all, honestly. And um, lots of lots of suicides there. Wyoming, 
Idaho, New Mexico, New Mexico, sunny all the time, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yet lots of suicide. So a lot of our biases about, about suicide, you know, it's happens in the winter. It's when people are, you know, a lot of rain around. No, it doesn't seem to be correlated. We just have a weird culture around, you know, propagating those myths. It, now, if we look in Washington State, now to the few people who listen who are actually from Washington State, you might be interested. Lowest is in Seattle and King County, as I was saying before. So for clients living in Seattle and King County, they're less likely overall on average. The highest are uh, the highest counties in the state of Washington is Skamania. Very high rates of suicide in Skamania near Vancouver. Uh, it's a fairly remote area, mostly white people. Okanagan County in North Central, Stevens County in the Northeast. Uh, for those of you who don't know Washington, that's that's where Twin Peaks was supposed to be. It wasn't where it was filmed, but uh, where Twin Peaks is supposed to be, there's a pretty high suicide rate, again, because of its remoteness in all likelihood and, and what's associated with the remoteness. And Clallam County, which is essentially where for, where Twilight takes place, Forks, Washington, Clallam County is, you know, the Twilight area. <laughs> uh, so some famous areas in Seattle are associated with suicide. Also, another demographic factor you want to look out for are veterans in the United States. 20% of suicides in the United States are veterans or current service members. So that is an incredible figure. One out of five suicides in the United States are military vets or current service members. One out of five suicides. But... When we look at this other figure, it kind of makes sense because 10% of the U.S. population have been in the military or are in the military. That is not something that I thought. One out of 10 people in the United States have been in the military. So when we think about that, just the sheer number of Americans who have been in the military, then we're like, okay, well. But so basically what we're looking at is if you're in the military, you're twice as likely to um, uh complete suicide. Now, why would that be? Well, the obvious reasons that we point to are war traumas, PTSD, but a lot of people who serve in the military do not have PTSD, particularly people who don't serve in, you know, in actual battle or they're not uh, being exposed to that. Not that battle is necessary for PTSD. Uh, it's not, but, um, but there's a lot of other reasons. One is, is that uh, there can be a lot of bullying that happens in the military. Also, in my experience, uh, uh, there's a lot of people who go into the military who have had previous difficulties in life. There's a certain uh, sort of profile of people that are attracted to the military having experienced difficulties. Um, and so I think that might also be a factor, you know, just speculating. Um, also, another factor here of why people might die from suicide is that only 53% of service members with major depression or PTSD seek professional help. So most people in the military who have depression or PTSD, they don't even seek professional help. And of those who do receive help, only about half get adequate help. So there's a lot of problems in the military. They're trying to change this, and there are programs to change this. But there's still it's still around is there's a lot of stigma in our society in general, and there's particular stigma in the military. There's also problems of access and there's also, uh, you know, actual problems of risk of losing your job. If you are a, you know, of a certain rank or something and it becomes known to your command command structure that you are suffering from a mental illness like PTSD or major depression and you're thinking about suicide. They could uh, demote you or prevent you from being promoted. 
So that's a problem. You know, that's going to cause people to clam up and therefore not get help and therefore be more at risk of dying. Um, another demographic demographic thing to look at is school related factors. Uh, kids who are isolated from their peers are at school are more likely to die from suicide. Also, poor schools, kids from poor schools, makes sense, right? Also, interestingly, kids at private schools. So, public school kids are, on average, compared to the other kinds of schools the least likely to die from suicide, which most people would not intuit, right? You'd be like, well, private school kids, you know, they're privileged, the schools are more tailored to their needs, uh, supposedly. And so, you know, they're probably less likely to die from suicide. No, uh, a lot of studies are showing that private schools are more likely. Now, not a huge factor. It's not like if you had a kid that went to a private school, you should immediately assume that they're going to die from suicide. But, you know, I think it's an interesting thing to look at. Culture is another thing to look at. Some cultures consider suicide more acceptable than others, and you know they might consider it a um, you know a noble act. Um, so, for example, in Japan, suicide can be the ultimate means of taking responsibility for making a mistake, or um, you know shaming a group you belong to, like your family or your workplace. Like you know uh, you get fired from your job or you are ashamed to your family in some way. And in Japan, it's it's considered uh, somewhat more so, the United States anyway, a noble act to take your own life. Um, it's somewhat held up as, as a positive thing. Like, well, okay, you know, he humiliated his family, but, you know, he took his own life, and so he redeemed himself. Um, now, the United States, certainly there are... Some people who have that culture, there's a lot of Japanese people like myself um, in the United States. So uh, it's not only in Japan, but um, it's just something to think about. Uh, when you're assessing your clients, you want to ask them how suicide is talked about. Another demographic thing that I'm throwing in here, again, pretty low weight, but a noisy environment has been found to be associated with suicide. Makes sense, right? You live in the middle of a noisy neighborhood. Maybe you have airplanes going over your head every five minutes. There's actually a neighborhood in Seattle uh, near the airport. Uh, I used to do in-home therapy in that neighborhood for some families, and it was just, uh, I couldn't believe it. I, I just thought, like, yeah, I would I would want to, I'd think about suicide too. I mean, just... Every five minutes, an airplane would would go like it. It seemed like the airplane was like thirty feet above the house. I mean, just just this rattle. Like the you couldn't put things on shelves because it would rattle so much. Things would fall off the shelf. Um, obviously, there's not a lot of houses that are in that sort of situation. But as a clinician, you, you want to pay attention to that. You know, maybe there's something you can actually do about that. It's not easy to get people to move, but um, you know, maybe. Uh, if, I don't know, they have a noisy neighbor or something. It's just something to to pay attention to. Also, disabilities. I talked about this before. Vision loss, hearing loss, learning disabilities are associated with suicide. Makes some intuitive sense, right? You have sudden vision loss or sudden hearing loss. It can be demoralizing and you can feel hopeless. In the same way that when I had back pain, uh, I was demoralized in some way. Imagine just you're blind, and that is going to be a massive change to your life. It's going to be a very hard thing to adjust to, and suicide might creep into your thoughts there. All right, let's review all the factors that we want to look at at the, cat the 11 categories that I have here. Number one, suicidal ideation and attempts, particularly those who had a recent attempt. 
Number two, you want to assess for mental conditions, particularly mood disorders and psychotic disorders. Number three, trauma, childhood difficulties, loss, grief, particularly recent losses and traumas. Number four, health factors, particularly chronic pain and terminal illness. Uh, Number five, personality factors, uh, for example, negative emotions, aggression, perceived burdensomeness, perceived thwarted belongingness, and rumination. Number six, social and family factors, particularly relationship difficulties, family conflict, and isolation. Number seven, suicide contagion factors, for example, a friend, celebrity, or TV show depicting suicide. Number eight, behavioral factors, particularly noncompliance or disengagement from services, having a gun, and alcohol abuse. Number nine, marginalization, particularly poverty, unemployment, LGBTQIA, and bullying. Um, There are others, of course. Uh, Number 10, not a huge weight to this. Time of day, day of week, time of year, moon cycle. Uh, Moon has nothing to do with it. But there are some correlations with time of day, day of week, time of year, but not anything to really pay attention much to. Number 11, demographic factors, particularly males, particularly white people, Native Americans, particularly if they're on a reservation, uh, veterans, and those with disabilities. Research shows that the following factors are the most uh, related to suicide. Um, some of this will be a review, but just another way of listing these things. Being male, owning a gun, having a prior attempt, having a plan, having hopelessness, having perceived burdensomeness, having a physical illness, having a mental health disorder, having past trauma, childhood adversary, had childhood adver- adversities, bereavement and grief, relationship difficulties, employment or financial crisis, aggression, impulsivity, lack of control over one's life, disengagement from services, noncompliance with medication, and recent hospital discharge. Okay, so that is the completion of number three, assessing factors. (laughs) So we had one, you know, what do we assess? We want to assess the problem, number one. Number two, we want to assess past and current treatment. Number three, we want to assess the 11 categories of uh, ongoing risk factors. And then number four, we want to assess acute warning signs of behavior. Mainly, we want to assess uh, for detect hidden intent. You know, if someone is acutely at risk of suicide and they tell us, then we don't really need to look for warning signs because they're telling us they might die from suicide soon. But if they're not being forthcoming, particularly if you work in an environment where um, you don't have that kind of relationship with someone, pay attention to the following things. Wrapping up loose ends, giving stuff away, contacting old friends. Completely withdrawing from other people, having dark thoughts, an increase or an ongoing aggressive thought behavior pattern, uh, for example, aggressive tweets, and out-of-character behavior like using drugs that they don't usually use. Number five, you want to assess protective factors. There are a lot of things that can be said and research shows that will help people to not attempt and not complete. Things like social support belongingness, someone with them 24-7, having self-esteem, emotional regulation, coping skills, resiliency, a hope for the future, uh, knowing that risk factors are changeable. So it's having hope for the future. Emotional intelligence, similar to emotional regulation, physical activity, good sleep, responsibility for children or pets, life satisfaction, strong therapeutic relationship, Reality testing ability, meaning that they're not disconnected from reality. Uh, They have a reason to live. 
they are repulsed by death and suicide. You know, it just sort of repulses them. It's, oh, I don't want to die. I, you know, I, th- well, I mean, I have, I have thoughts of dying, but, you know, no, that's gross. I don't want to die. You know, whatever their repulsion is. Having a stable life, um, access to health care, cooperation with treatment. So, you know, helping people to cooperate with you. Get them. Don't reject them, even if they're trying to push you away. Uh, restricted access to lethal means. That's pretty obvious. No mental illness or low symptoms, internal locus of control, religiosity, self-forgiveness, extroversion, and a meaning and purpose in life. So uh, some of these we can't really change, like we can't make someone religious. But some of these we do have effect over. Good sleep, physical activity, we can certainly talk about how to do that. Emotional regulation is something we can absolutely do. We can set up people to be monitored or hang out with people 24-7. Uh, We can help them to cooperate with treatment. You know, there's a lot of things we do have control over. And so you don't want to just talk about all the risk factors. You want to pay attention to the protective factors as well. Number six, you want to assess intent. How intent are they to die? We usually want to use a scale with this because typically this will be tracked over time. You want to explore the client's reasons to die versus their reasons to live. Very important to get into their narrative world. Sample questions to assess intent are... If there was an if there was another solution, would you take it? You know, they're like, suicide is a solution to my problems. And if you're like, you know, hey, if there was another solution, would you take it? If they're like, no, I still want to die, then that indicates greater risk. And if they're like, well, yeah, if there's another solution, sure, I would take it. That's a inroad to hope and change. Uh, what would it what would it accomplish if you were to end your life? It's a good question to ask. You know, you want to die. Um, what would it accomplish if they're if they're like, well, I don't know, I just have this urge to die. Well, that says one thing. Whereas if they say, well, by me dying, my suffering will end and I won't be a burden to everyone around me. Um, it'll just it'll make the world a better place and I'll be better off for it. So that says another thing right there. Right. Um, so we want to ask, you know, what does it accomplish? Also, do you feel as if you're a burden to others? Because when people feel like they're a burden, then they're likely to have intent to suicide. Um, how confident are you that this plan will actually end your life? So this gets at sort of the preparation part that we'll get into in a second. But people who are at the beginning of their process of suicide will not have really worked out the method in their head. And so they'll, they'll say, well, I don't know. I, I thought I might take pills. And then you ask them, well, how confident are you that the pills will actually end your life? And they're like, well, not not very confident because I actually don't really know what the dosage is and, you know, I haven't really looked it up. So that kind of tells you something of just like when someone's really intent on dying, they will look it up. Um, So that's one thing to ask. What have you done to begin to carry out the plan? Again, it has to do with that preparation rehearsal. Um, Have you rehearsed? Have you made other preparations? Other questions, what, what stops you from killing yourself? It's a very important question to ask, you know, because they might be like, well, um, you know, I don't want to do that to my parents, then that that says one thing. Whereas if they say, well, the only thing that stops me is um, that I'm waiting until my kid graduates from high school. Uh, that tells you something else. Also, have you ever written a suicide note? It's another thing to ask people. So that's assessing intent. Number seven, you want to assess plan preparations and rehearsals. We've already kind of got at some of the questions there. You know, do they have a plan? And if so, what is the plan? Um, you know, what's the feasibility and the lethality of the plan? And number eight, you want to assess the means. 
Do they have access to the means of their plan? Uh, that's important to know. They could have a plan to use a gun, but they don't have a gun. So it tells you something about um, their risk. Not always, but it's something to think about. So again, to review, number one, assess the problem. Why do they want to kill themselves? You got to understand the foundation. Number two, you want to assess past and current treatment to know what works and what doesn't, also to help treatment planning and safety planning. Number three is assess the ongoing risk factors. Those are the 11 things, you know, demographic, uh, contagion, all those kinds of things. That helps us to assess risk level. You Number four, assess acute warning signs and behavior, particularly for people who might be hiding their intent from you. This helps us to access imminence. Number five, you want to assess protective factors. This counters the risk factors. Number six, you want to assess intent to calculate risk. Number seven, you want to assess plan, preparations, rehearsals. This also helps to calculate risk level. And number eight, you want to assess means. This also helps us to calculate risk level. Okay, so once we have assessed for all eight of those areas, we need to determine our the risk level, which determines our response. Again, number one, we detect the need to assess. Number two, we assess the problem, the risk factors, and the protective factors. Number three, we determine the risk level. And number four, we take reasonable actions to prevent suicide. So let's talk about the risk levels. There are different definitions. I talked about this in the introduction, but just to go into a little bit more. There are different definitions of risk levels. You know, some say, um, you know, you need to have a, if you have a plan, that means minimum risk. Some say that a plan means higher risk. So just understand that there's, you know, different definitions out there. Um, It's just important that you have a system that works for you. So again, as I was talking about in the introduction, I have five levels. Number one is no risk. So these are people who have never had suicidal ideation or no recent suicidal ideation and definitely no plan, no intent, no behavior. Number two is low risk. And these are people who have suicidal ideation or thoughts of not being alive, but no current plan, intent, or behavior. A lot of people are in this category. Number three, medium risk. These are people with suicidal ideation and a plan. Uh, you know, meaning that they might have some intent, but not recent intent, but they have a plan has crept into their thought process. They don't, but they don't have any recent intent or any intent and or behavior, you know, recently, usually we're talking about within the last year or so. Research has found that people with intense suicidal ideation, but low or no intent are relatively low risk of suicide. So, Unless someone has a uh, plan or intent, then um, we're still doing okay in terms of uh, risk. And so just because they have suicidal ideation and a plan, that doesn't put them in high risk for most people's systems. And that we, I want to put them in medium risk. So they're saying that, yeah, I think about suicide. I'm suffering a lot. And yes, a plan it has developed. But you know what? I don't want to die anytime soon. Uh, They might say that they could die from suicide at some point in the future, but not in the near future. Um, So we're going to put them in medium risk. But remember, most planners move from plan to attempt. uh, So often it will progress. So you have to monitor closely. Uh, Number four is high risk. These are people with suicidal ideation. They have a plan and they have intent, but they convincingly indicate that they won't attempt soon. So they're saying, yep. I think about suicide. Yes, I have a plan that, you know, I have a couple plans that I've developed in my mind. And yes, I intend to die from suicide. But you know what? I'm not going to do it anytime soon. You, you know, you can count on that. But I can't guarantee that I'm not going to do it 
you know, in the, in the, in the future, you know, a month or two from now or something. Um, now, when people are at high risk, we want to be very uh, closely monitoring, very mindful of imminent risk factors that can push them into the highest uh, risk level of imminent risk. Like they go through a breakup or a change in meds or something. Or they start to cover up their intent because that's another warning sign. Um, so these these people at high risk, they tend to be in tremendous amounts of, of pain and despair. They tend to be very hopeless. And they have been contemplating suicide as a way out of their pain is, is usually um, what's happening for these people. Um, but you know what? They haven't fully committed to the act. Um, it definitely pops in their head. They definitely are thinking it's an option. It's a, it's a very attractive option to them often, but they haven't committed to the plan and they're, they're just like, you know what? I just don't want to do it yet. I think, you know, it's still, I still think it's possible for me to pull out of this or I don't want to do it to my family or, you know, there's usually something that sort of keeps them from, from taking that last step. Um, now, if there's any question about whether or not they're high risk or imminent risk, because the, these are the two levels we want to be most concerned about, right? High risk and imminent risk. If there's any question, you know, someone's at high risk, and you're like, well, you know, I don't know, are they imminent risk? Are they high risk? Uh, you know, just assume that they're imminent risk because you want to be safe. This, sorry. And the top level of risk is imminent risk. So these are people with suicidal ideation. They have a plan and they have imminent intent, either overt or, or covert. So or overt imminent intent, say, meaning that they just tell you. Um, and a lot of clients will do this. I've had clients do this where they're just like, yep, I, I can't really guarantee I'm not going to attempt after this session. Um, I'm in a really, really bad place. And I, you know, right now I don't want to do it sitting in your office. But, you know, later on tonight, you know what? It might really just overcome me and I might do it. So that's overt. That's preferred, right? Because they're being forthcoming. And again, if you have a good relationship, they're more likely to do that. But there are also covert signs. Um, and so if we have intense suicidal ideation plan and intent, and we start seeing these covert signs, then we want to categorize these people as imminent risk. Again, these are attempts to hide the imminent intent uh, or covert evidence of preparatory or rehearsal behavior, you know, like you you hear about them, um, I don't know, walking on a bridge or something. They might be refusing to comply with a safety plan or with mental health care. They might have out-of-control psychiatric symptoms, like they might be psychotic or manic or severe depression or something. They might be very emotionally volatile. They might have aggressive behavior, these kinds of things. So you want to watch out for those covert signs of imminent risk. But as I've said before, it's really hard to predict suicidal behavior. Uh, in fact, a recent meta-analysis had concluded that risk assessments are not that good at predicting suicidal behavior. Uh, research shows that it's really hard to differentiate between suicidal ideation and attempting suicide. But we just have to do our best um, that we can and accept our limitations. So, so even though I'm talking about this, this whole system that I've, you know, cobbled together from all the other literature. Um, we just have to recognize that research shows, meta-analyses shows that um, uh, as clinicians, we're not that great at, at determining whether or not someone's actually going to attempt. But here's the way of looking at that, is that even though I am not very good at 
predicting whether or not someone is going to attempt, meaning I'm not that good at assessing risk level or the nuances of risk level. If I play it safe, then in, in, in say I'm like, well, you know what? I don't think this person is going to attempt. But you know what? I know enough about research to know that I'm not a very good predictor of attempting. So you know what? I'm going to bump them up to a higher level, and I'm going to act as if they're a higher level just in case. Uh, so it's just another kind of way to think about it. It depends on how you want to do it. Um, so again, we got no risk, low risk, medium, high, and imminent. And the main things to hear are low is um, suicidal ideation only. Medium risk is you got a plan as well. High risk, you have intent as well. Imminent means you have imminent intent. Um, okay, so just a trigger warning again. Check in with yourself. If you're at risk of suicide, um, you really want to you know, stop listening potentially if, if that would help. Talk to your therapist. Um, cuddle with your dog, talk to your support people, and make sure you're checking in with yourself. Okay, so now that we have determined risk level, well, what do we do with it? Um, well, so before I move on, as you know, you know, I talked about these very at length, these eight different areas to assess, you know, the ongoing risk factors, the demographics and all the kind. Of, and you might have seen that I didn't really include that in the assessment of the risk level. Um, those things are... Because a lot of this depends on the, the, the assessment of risk level. A lot of it depends on the self-report from the client, right? So the client says, yep, I have a plan. Well, they have to tell us, right? Well, uh, we also want to consider all the other risk factors. You know, if, if I have a uh, 10-year-old who, is, uh, who doesn't have access to a gun and has plan and intent to die, then that is a different picture than if I have a 45-year-old who is in chronic pain who, uh, you know, has a traumatic brain injury from uh, the war in Afghanistan and has three guns in their house. That, but that person doesn't have intent. That's something that might change our risk level, right? So even though this vet who has guns doesn't have intent, that that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't bump them up to high risk or even imminent risk. Whereas a 10-year-old who doesn't have access to guns, has a plan, has intent, and their plan is to use guns, uh, I'm not necessarily not going to have them at high risk, but I might have them as medium risk because they're although they have a plan and they have intent, uh, the chance that they have access to the means, the chance that they'll actually go through with it is is lower just because of their age. Now, again, we want to play it safe. We want to bump people up. Definitely 10-year-olds do attempt and complete suicide. But that's where all those other factors come into play. Often what all the other factors affect is bumping people up. So if you have a client that says, um, you know, I... Uh, have I have suicidal ideation, but you know what? I don't have a plan. I don't have intent, and I don't have any behavior. So this would be a low risk person, right? But again, let's say that they live on a uh, on a American Indian reservation, and they just went through a breakup, and their uh, best friend completed suicide a year ago. Well, you know what? Even though that person just has suicidal ideation, I might bump them up to high risk just because of those risk factors. So usually those risk factors will pull up people in, on, on the scale of things. And conversely, if they have very good protective factors, then it might reduce them. So, for example, if someone has suicidal ideation and a plan but no recent intent or behavior, then we put them at medium risk. 
But let's say that they, um, I'm doing family therapy and uh, the parents are very compassionate, very caring, and are involved and monitoring the kid. Let's say that the kid feels self-esteem about schoolwork and has friends. Well, you know what? I might actually bump them down to low risk because even though they have a plan, the chance that they're going to go through with it is is low because they're just around people all the time. Now, I don't know if I would do that because I might just keep them medium risk. Why why risk it? But those, those are the kinds of uh, things that we think about when we're assessing risk. Okay, now that we've determined the risk level, how do we respond to that risk level? Again, I went over this in the introduction, but just a little bit more detail here. With no risk, meaning they don't have any recent suicidal ideation, we don't need to do anything. Maybe ask about suicidal ideation if something happens, maybe check in every once in a while. But uh, if they don't have any risk, then there's, there's the standard of care is that we assume that unless something strange happens to indicate that suicidal ideation might uh, have arisen out of nowhere or at, you know, because of a reason, then there's really no reason to even monitor. Uh, number two, low risk. This is someone who has suicidal ideation but no current plan, intent, or behavior. Uh, in this situation, you want to monitor the suicidal ideation, and, but there's no need for a safety plan really. But it's okay if you do, right? There's, there's no harm in doing a safety plan. But there's not really a, a need for a safety plan. But you do need to establish a treatment plan that involves making sure the, the risk doesn't increase and also a, 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 safety, a treatment plan that involves monitoring their suicidal ideation. Number three, we have medium risk. This is suicidal ideation with a plan but no recent intent or behavior. Uh, definitely a safety plan needs to be developed that involves emotional regulation and support and also establish a treatment plan that involves monitoring and lowering risk. Number four, you have high risk. This is suicidal ideation with a plan, with intent, but they convincingly indicate that they won't attempt soon. You need a robust safety plan. It needs to be extremely uh, strong, meaning that you might have to discuss the safety plan for half of the session for you know a few months or something. Uh, hopefully, the safety plan involves 24-7 monitoring. Uh, I always go to 24-7 monitoring when someone is of high risk. Um, you know, I, I want to get the family members in there. I want to get their friends in there. I might need a release of information to talk to the support system, get them involved in the safety plan. A lot of times, I'll have them sign the safety plan as well. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. One, like I've talked about before, one is is that um, it's really hard to attempt or even want to kill yourself when you're in the presence of people who care about you. Um, also, if they do attempt, it's very unlikely that people are going to sue me because I informed everyone around them properly, and they're not going to think that um, it was it was my fault. You know, so there's a lot of good things that come out of um, involving family and friends. Now, sometimes that involves, um, you know, getting the client to agree. You know, like, I don't want I don't want you to talk to my parents. I don't want you to talk to my friends. So I, I've never had a client decline my um, offer for this. They might decline it first, but they don't ultimately refuse. Um, usually, it involves me telling them, "Look, uh, I am not going to tell your parents about any of the things that." You don't want me to tell them. You know, I'm not going to tell them you smoke weed. I'm not going to tell them you're having sex with your girlfriend. I'm not going to tell them that you skipped school that day. Um, I guarantee you I'm not going to say that. I, that's not the point. What I am going to say is that you're suffering and that they need to do some things to help you. 
and I'm going to tell them exactly what to do to help you. And um, if there's anything they do that annoys you, I'm going to tell them to stop doing that because that is stressing you out and that's causing you to want to kill yourself. You know, usually teenagers will say, oh, that sounds great. Let's do that. Um, If it's an adult, they usually resist um, much less. So it's just a matter of finding that person who actually they will agree to um, be involved. Now, this isn't without its complications because you might have a parent who has a complicated relationship with their adult child and having the parent move in to the adult child's apartment or house might be complicated, you know? So uh, you have to consider those things. But usually it's better for the adult child to, or the teenager to deal with the inconvenience of having this person in their life uh, to keep them safe, to get them through the the difficult time. Because remember, the you know suicidal intent is usually it usually spikes and is uh, temporary, so uh, a lot of sacrifices are uh, okay to make during those times in order to make sure that the person doesn't die. Uh, so yeah, you want a robust safety plan at high risk, very detailed, lots of good things in there, lots of things that you know work, and you uh, will hopefully push for you know twenty four seven monitoring from a from a support person. And also, as with medium risk, you want to establish a treatment plan that involves monitoring and lowering the risk. Number five, imminent risk. These are people with suicidal ideation and a plan, and they have imminent intent either overt or, or covert imminent intent. For these people, we want to hospitalize them. We want to require hospitalization. So these people, we believe either they're telling us or there's signs that they are going to die soon, maybe later today. So with these people, we have to require hospitalization. And I've done this a number of times, and many of you have out there as well. If you don't know where to send them, you know, you're in private practice and you, you don't or this is the first time it happens, you don't know what to do, you want to call 911 or you want to call your local crisis line. In Seattle, we are our crisis line is the King County Crisis Line at 206-461-3222. It's a it's it's a wonderful organization with very um, competent trained people. A lot of our students will volunteer at the crisis line and, um, you know, get their experience that way. So if they agree to go, which a lot of clients will do, especially if you have a good relationship with them, you have the responsibility to uh, be reasonably certain that they will go immediately. So for some clients, you'll be able to trust them. You know, uh, you have a good relationship with them and they're telling, yeah, I, I don't know, man, I think I might I might attempt in the next week or so. I'm really I'm really in a bad spot. And you're like, OK, um, you are at imminent risk, and in order to save your or to you know be on the safe side, we need to have you go to a hospital. Uh, and, and here's what they will do: um, they will monitor you, they will assess you. You don't have to take any meds if you don't want to, you know, unless there's something strange happening, like you're having a psych, psychotic episode or something. So um, you know that you'll probably be there for about a week, and I, I need you to go there because um, this is particularly important when. You don't have a guarantee that anyone's going to be able to watch them or they've exhibited, you know, very erratic behavior. Like uh, another situation that I ran into once where uh, I had a client who had ongoing suicidal ideation and had a lot of emotional issues where they would have um, emotional spikes of despair and anger and aggression. And um, they would uh, lock themselves in the bathroom and their spouse would call me and very concerned, you know. Um, he or she's in the bathroom. They lie. I don't know what to do. 
So in these situations, even though we don't really know what's going on, uh, I will bump them up to imminent risk because there are signs of imminent risk and, again, better safe than sorry. So um, for these people, again, I will require hospitalization. Um, So for some people, like I said, you'll say, you need to get to the hospital. And they'll say, okay, I'll go right away. And you can trust them. And so, uh, you know, use your own judgment there, but um, usually that's enough. Uh, It's best in a situation like that if you can actually get a family member, like you get their mother on the phone, you're like, okay, uh, your adult daughter is going to the hospital. I'm requiring it for this reason. We've already talked about the safety plan. So this is why you want to involve the family so they're not shocked in this moment. And you say, um, I need you to make sure that your daughter gets to the hospital, okay, um, because of these reasons. So handing it over to someone in the family can definitely help. And you can, and then you tell the parent if somehow something goes wrong and you lose track of your child or your, or your adult child decides not to go to the hospital, you need to call 911. And don't be shy. Call 911. Don't call me because I'm not a crisis person. Call 911. Um, Again, as I was talking about before, you, you never want to put yourself on, on the safety plan because unless you're a crisis worker, which most of us are not. Um, so, uh, okay. Uh, all right. If they decline, so so let's say your client declines. They're like, you know, you're saying I detect imminent risk or you are at imminent risk and I, um, I, I'm requiring that you go to the hospital. And they're like, but I don't want to go to the hospital. You can't make me. Well, then you tell them, look, um, I have determined that you are at imminent risk here and here are the signs and I care about you and I don't want you to die. And I know enough to know that suicidal intention is temporary. So if we can keep you alive over the next couple of weeks, then there's a good chance that later on you will be thankful that um, you went to the hospital. You, you don't you're not enthusiastic about it now, but you likely will be happy that you took that action. Um, so that's why I'm doing this. And I have to tell you, if you decline, I have no choice but to call the police, to call 911, or to or to call a county-designated mental health professional to come evaluate you to see if they need to involuntarily hospitalize you. Um, and I explain the whole thing. I'm just like, um, I, I have no choice. I am ethically and legally bound to call the police or the or other authorities if you refuse to go to the hospital. And I'm really sorry about that, but my hands are tied. I, I, I don't have a choice in the matter. And in some ways you do kind of have a choice, but um, but in a lot of ways you don't. So it's not really lying to say that. Usually with people, after you make that threat, they will comply because they're just like, oh, so if I refuse, I have to go anyway, <laughs> or the, the police are going to come. Uh, I don't want to do that. Yeah, okay, I'll go to the hospital. And you're like, okay, will you agree to um, allow your parents to make sure you get there? Okay, that's fine. Uh, If they continue to decline or they leave your office, you know, they just stand up and walk out, then immediately call 911. 911, (laughs) what did I say? Call the police or call the county designated mental health professionals. So in... Washington State, and maybe other states as well, we have what we call county-designated mental health professionals. These are um, officials that are – there's not a lot of them, but they're on call. They've been through special training. They have special expertise. And what they will do is they will – they will – you call them and they'll do a mini intake. You know, so you'll say something like, 
So I have a client who I have determined is at imminent risk of suicide because of these five main reasons, and I required hospitalization. They refused and actually walked out of, out of my office, and that was two minutes ago. And um, I w- need to alert you to I believe they're at a I believe they're at imminent risk of harming themselves of killing themselves. The county designated mental health professional will say, okay, where you know where do they live? What kind of car do they drive? All this kind of thing. And then if they believe that they don't need the police to be there, they will just go themselves. It's usually two of them and go to the home, knock on the door. Or they might determine that they need police officers to come with them, depending on what you say. And then they will go to the client. They'll find them, track them down. And, um, you know, they do their own assessment and they have the power to involuntarily uh, put people in hospitals for 72 hours in my state. Um, at the end of the 72 hours, there's typically an evaluation to see if that should be extended. Um, so that's how that works. Um, okay. So again, at high risk, meaning they're not imminently, they're very high risk, but they're not imminently at risk. We want a robust safety plan that hopefully involves mon- 24-7 monitoring that's not in a hospital. And at imminent risk, then we have to bump up to hospitalization. We don't want to trust the the family to to monitor people at that level. Plus, you know, if someone's at imminent risk, they might, you know, lock their parents out of their house and um, attempt in the meantime. Okay, to review, um, we got no risk, no need to do anything, low risk. You don't need a safety plan, but you can have one, but you want to establish a treatment plan that involves monitoring and keeping the risk low. Medium risk, you definitely need a safety plan. High risk, you want a robust safety plan and 24-7 monitoring and imminent risk you want to require hospitalization. Okay, what about safety planning, though? You know, what do we do when uh, we have safety planning? Okay, so some tips about safety planning. You want to make it collaborative. Very important. Do not just preach to someone what they should do with the safety plan. They're much less likely to follow the safety plan if they believe it came from you. So you want to drag it out of them. And this could take some time. You know, some people might be like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And so you want to do your best to um, to help them to take ownership of the safety plan. Uh, you also want to use the client's language. on the, So you, when you're making a safety plan, you're writing it down. So you don't want to use your clinical language. It's actually one of the most annoying – the older I get, the more annoyed the more annoyed I get with the way therapists write things down. There's this culture in terms of the words they use, and it's really annoying to me, um, even as a supervisor to read it. But it's particularly concerning to me when I see a clinician using jargon and terms when they're communicating with their therapist. And so, um, don't do that because it, unless the client is a therapist and understands the words. Um, you want to strengthen the relationship as well. Uh, safety planning depends on a strong relationship so that you're working together. You actually want to use what works for the client to reduce risk. Don't just say, well, you know, take deep breaths and blah, 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 unless you know that it works for the client. Now, this requires some work on your part. You have to um, walk them through different options and then check in with them in later sessions to see if they actually worked. You can't just splatter a bunch of things on a safety plan and um, assume that it's going to work. You actually have to have them test it out. 
you also want to explain how to use the plan. You know, don't just write stuff down. You want to, you know, take it step by step. Okay, you need to call this crisis line, and and you want to give them the phone number, that kind of thing. Um, Again, you want to write it down. You want to have everyone sign it. You want to have, you know, particularly you and the client sign it, but also if other family members are involved, you want them to sign it as well. You want to give a copy to everyone, and you want to place a copy in the client file. Also, you want to plan where the copies will be kept in the house because say you have a 15-year-old client that has a safety plan. Um, he shoves it into his backpack. He can't find it when he needs it. So you know, you put it on the fridge. You put it on the mirror, that kind of thing. And over time, you want to revise it as needed. Uh, I talked about this a little bit before, but I want to emphasize it. Do not include a check-in with you. Do not involve you in the safety plan unless it has to do with um, things that you do in session. But I can't tell you how many freaking times I am dealing with uh, the fallout with a supervisee or a consultee because they have included themselves in the tr- in the safety plan. Now, if you are an on-call worker and that's the sort of job that you do, then I guess you could do that. But even then, I'm I'm not jazzed about it. Here's I talked about this before, I believe. This is a long episode, so I, I could be thinking I said it when I didn't, but just to it's bears repeating. <laughs> is it's very common for me to get a panicked phone call from a supervisee or a trainee or a consultee. You know, about I have a client who, uh, you know, talks about suicide all the time and we had a safety plan. And, you know, she said that um, she was really concerned about her risk level. And so, um, you know, I told her to call me the next day to make sure that she was doing okay, Or I told her to text me and make sure she's doing okay, And she didn't call me today. So what do I do? And I'm like, you put yourself on the on the safety plan. (laughs) Uh, did you, do you, did you write down, did you agree on a contingency plan if they didn't call? No. Well, now what do you do? Right. You had, you were very concerned about a client, um, and you put a check in with you. I know why you did that because you care and you also uh, believe that if they're connected to you, they're, they're less likely to attempt. It's all rational thoughts. But the problem is, is you can't do anything you know, say they they call you and they're, you know, they're a little shady about maybe they seem drunk or something and you don't know what's going on. Well, now what do you call the cops? Um, what if you call the cops and they're like the client really hates you because you do that? So you got to establish that all up front. Um, also, what if you say, OK, I, I want you to check in with me in between now every day between now and the next session. Again, I get why you do that. You care. But. Um, what if they check in with you at three in the morning and you're asleep and their check-in over text is, I'm going to kill myself tonight. Well, now if they do kill themselves in the next day, they're going to look at your safety plan and, you know, the officials and maybe the family, and they're going to say, so you were on the safety plan, you put yourself in the safety plan, but, um, but you didn't respond when they tried to contact you at three in the morning and you'd be like, well, yeah, I was asleep. And sometimes depending a judge an official might look at that as like, well, you shouldn't have put yourself on the, on the, uh, on the safety plan because you gave the impression that you would be available 24 seven when you did that. So 
why did you do that? You know, you should have you should have said, don't call me, call the crisis line or something. So again, uh, uh, I don't recommend doing that for that reason. Also, it's very stressful as a therapist to be dealing with a suicidal client twenty four seven. I mean, you as a clinician need a break. It is very stressful to be like, oh, God, are they going to check in today? It's, it's 5 o'clock. They said they were going to check in at 5 o'clock. Where are they? You know, okay, it's 530. Are they dead? You don't want to be doing that with yourself. That's not how you want. I see a lot of people doing this to themselves. Don't do it. You want to do your job during the session. You want to do it well. You want to establish a safety plan. You want to, you know, call the family members, call the friends in session Uh, You want to bring them to the session, but as soon as the session is over, you want to walk away and not have to think about it because you are not in a position to do anything about it. And so uh, very important, okay? Uh, I can't – there's a lot of really super caring therapists out there who make this mistake. Do not do that. Okay, so what are the different components of a safety plan? I have 11 component categories here. Number one is you want to have, a, and I talked about this earlier in the introduction, but you want to have a plan for likely triggers. So you want to identify the triggers that will likely increase motivation for suicide. You want to have on the safety plan how to avoid them, how to cope. Also, number two, you want to identify things to avoid. This is similar to triggers, but it's a little bit different. Um, you know, substance abuse, for example, might not be considered a trigger, but it is something to avoid because we know that it increases likelihood of, of attempting in it, and you might actually know specifically for that client. So you want to list things that they should avoid to reduce risk and explain why. You know, like let's say you have a client who is at medium risk of suicide, and you have the safety plan, and you ask your client, do you ever drink? And the client's like, eh, you know, I don't know, once every three months I'll, I'll have a few drinks with friends or something. And so – and. And even though for them, alcohol isn't really a trigger, you want to you might want to put on the safety plan, no drinking at all, even though um, with this client, we haven't seen an association, but it's better safe than sorry. So because um, you don't want to have someone who is at medium risk for suicide, you don't mention this, uh, they go out, they drink, they, they get significantly intoxicated, and it pushes them over the edge. So there's certain things you want to put on there. Uh, and it could be tailored to the client as well. Number three component of a safety plan, you want to involve support people and um, in the safety planning if possible. So not only um, on the safety plan itself, but you want to get them into the office. You want to get them on the phone. Again, you want to get a release of information. Um, if you're a family therapist, you don't need that, of course. Um, you want to call them. I've, I call them in the middle of the session. When I have people who are you know of high, at high risk of suicide, yeah, I convinced the client, look, I need to involve a support person. So who's close to you? And they're like, well, I guess my dad. I'm like, okay, so it's okay if I talk to your dad and I say these following things and I don't say these things. Is that okay? Yeah, it's fine. Okay, sign the release of information. Thank you. Um, I actually, I need to call your dad right now. Do you think he's? You think I could call him on? on do you think you could call him on your cell phone and then I will take your cell phone and talk to him? Um, I just do it right there because again. I don't want to worry about this. You know, I what if what if I end the session and I call the dad and the dad never answers? And then, you know, three days later, I'm like, shit, like my client is out there not being monitored 24-7. What do I do? You don't want to be in a position like that. You don't want to end the session 
um, without the safety plan looking pretty wrapped up and good. So I, I'll call the I'll call the collateral contact right there. I'll might talk with the person on the phone for fifteen minutes, or I might check in with them and say, "Let's make an appointment for us to talk later." That kind of thing. Uh, this is a huge protective factor, as I've been talking about. Um, they can hang out with them. They can make sure they don't uh, do bad things that will lead to suicidal intent. They, um, it, it, I, and I always tell clients this too. I'm like, the reason why I'm having your dad move in with you for the next couple of weeks is because in my experience, it is extremely hard for people to want to kill themselves when they are uh, in the presence of other people. Uh, suicides almost always happen when people are alone. So um, I, I tell people that and I say, you know, it might be a little annoying for your dad to live with you for a couple of weeks, but you know what? Your life is is more important than your annoyance at this point. Number four on the safety plan is you want to, uh, you want to list effective coping skills. So these are things that you know work. Now, in the beginning, you might not know what works, so you might want to jot some things down as a brainstorm, but eventually you want to revise the safety plan and have at least five things on there that actually work. And they need to be things that they can do right away. You know, a lot of people say like, well, going hiking helps me with my suicidality. Okay, great. Include that in the safety plan. But it's not a feasible action to take on, you know, a daily basis. So they need things they can do right away. While they're at work, what can they do? While they're at home, while they're in their car, what do they do? Um, Self-talk, mindfulness, self-compassion, directing the mind towards other things, distractions, hugging someone, hugging a pet, watching a fun movie, watching TV, being with friends, listening to music, going for a walk, playing sports, hiking, playing video games. Um, These are all possible things that people can do to cope with an increase in suicidal intention. Number five is you want to list supportive people. So hopefully your client has a number of people they can uh, talk to when they are upset. And sometimes this requires a little bit of coaching. You know, they might be like, well, I don't want to bother other people. I'm already a burden. So you might have to change that point of view. Um, You want them to reach out to those people. And again, what I might do is I might have the client actually call or text these individuals in the middle of the session because I might not be confident that they will actually reach out to those people outside the session. So I want to break the ice by um, having them, you know, I'll say like, you know, who who do you think you can turn to in a pinch? And like, oh, well, my brother. Um, does your brother know that you're going through a tough time? Well, kind of. Does your brother know that you're at risk of suicide? Oh, no, no. I've never told my brother. Um, do you feel comfortable telling him? Um, and the client might be like, yeah, you know, I feel comfortable. I'll be like, um, so I'm only a little bit uh, confident that you're going to actually reach out to this person in the moment if you need to. So I think a good thing to do is I think we should break the ice right now. I think you should call your brother right now in front of me and tell them that you're in session and that um, you, you know, want him to be a support person that you're going to reach out to when you have an increase in suicidality. How does that feel? And they might be like, really? Call my brother in the middle of session right now? And you're like, yes, it's that important. And so that's a big thing that I want to model for everyone is that you want to really emphasize because, you know, a lot of clients will not take their own suicidality very seriously in a strange way. And so you want to ramp up the tension and be like, I am afraid for your life here. 
Um, this does a number of things. One is it alerts the client to the dangerousness, which is good. Two is it gives the you know the impression, the very congruent, real impression, the authentic impression to the client that that you really care. And that's a protective factor. So um, you want to list those supportive people, and you, you might even want to have them contact them in the middle of session. Number six is you want to remove access to means. This is pretty obvious. You want to get rid of guns, pills, knives, et cetera. Um, I've had families get rid of every single knife in the house, which is not convenient. <laughs> you have no cutting knives. You have no uh, you know, steak knives or anything. The sharpest thing is like a butter knife. And uh, that's rough. This is also applies to people who will self-harm, use non-suicidal self-injury. Um, yeah, it's a pain in the ass. But you know what? Better safe than sorry. Um, you might want to have a support person go through the house and make sure that it's clean of anything that could be done to harm people. One of the things that families need to do, and I recommend everyone do this regardless, is periodically go through your house and find all the medications that are laying around. I mean, if – it's a, it's very typical for a household uh, to have a lot of old medication laying around that are fatal, not only in a suicide situation, but also, you know, accidents happen. Um, so, you know, and you want to dispose of them environmentally by contacting your hospital or your, you know, medical provider. There's recycle centers. Where you don't want to necessarily dump them down the toilet because um, they end up in the water supply and in the ecosystem. Um, so yeah, you want to access, you want to remove access to means. And this, this might, you know, for some people, this, this just means you just tell the client, um, get rid of your guns, get rid of your knives in a more robust situation. Like if they're high risk, you actually want to contact that support person and say, look, I need you to go to the house and make sure there's nothing in there that they could use to, to attempt. Um, now some people would be like, well, you know, they could always walk down the street and jump off a bridge. But the stats show that 96% of attempts happen at home. So nearly all suicide attempts are at the person's home. They do it in their own home. Makes sense, right? They're the most comfortable there, blah, blah, blah. Um, number seven thing on the safety plan is you want to put on the safety plan when you are in doubt. So, you know, you're talking to the client. Client, when you're in doubt, you need to call the crisis line or call 911. Um, do not take a risk. If you have a uh, spike in suicide or as the mother, you know, you see uh, some erratic behavior in your child, do not hesitate to call 911 or the crisis line. Again, I might have the client and or the support people break the ice by calling the crisis line right there in session because I want people, you know, a lot. There's there's a lot of weird <laughs> things that people do. It's just like, well, you know, I don't want to bother the crisis line people or, you know, what what are they going to do if, if I call them? So you want to dispel all those fears and get them used to calling the crisis lines. You don't want to practice calling 911 because that's um, a violation, but you want to have them practice calling these crisis lines. There are other ones, you know, I mentioned the my, our local crisis line, but there's also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which all you got to do is Google it. Um, 1-800-273-8255. There's also the Trevor Project, which is 1-866-488-7386. You can also include an after-hour service if your agency has one. Um, So again, you you need to have these these numbers in there uh, because they're really helpful. And research shows that these actually do prevent people from killing themselves. Someone could be absolutely determined to die that day 
They call one of these suicide lines. They talk for a couple hours and they're better and they're fine. That's what that one person that, you know, that one person that had that story of suicide said, you know, just call someone, pick up a phone. Again, don't include yourself. Number eight on the safety plan, establish contingencies for no-shows, cancellations, or not responding to your communications. I talked about this in the intro, but it bears repeating. Um, You know, if they no-show, you have to have, especially if they're high risk, uh, you want on the safety plan, you want to be like, okay, so client, you're at a high risk of suicide. Um, if you don't show to an appointment or or you cancel an appointment with me or you don't respond to my phone calls, uh, I have to assume that you are at risk of dying. Um, maybe you just decided not to come to therapy or, you know, or maybe you are actually going to kill yourself that day. I don't know. So in order for this to be a true safety plan, we have to have a plan for what I'm going to do there. What would you like me to do? Now, the client might be like, uh, well, what do you mean? You know, what if, I, what if I just don't want to come to the session? Then you have to say, well, you have to actually talk with me on the phone and, and really reassure me that you're not at risk of dying. You can't just, um, you know, call my secretary and, and cancel it. You have to we, you and I have to talk or you have to email me or, you know, you have to have some communication about like, I'm canceling my appointment because um, there was something came up at work, but I, re- I want to reassure you that I'm not at risk of suicide. Um, I'm just canceling the appointment. You know, you need to have stuff like that in there because, again, I get frantic phone calls from supervisees and uh, consultees saying, I had this safety plan um, and my client, you know, they didn't show up to the session. What do I do? And I say, you know, did you establish a contingency plan on the safety plan? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, I guess you got to call 911. <laughs> and that's not a position you want to be in with your, with your clients. Um, number nine is you want to contract for safety. Again, I, you know, some of you know this. I talked about the, the pendulum shift in the past. We thought that's all we had to do. And then there's been a recent pendulum shift of people saying, like, it's unethical to contract for safety. It's not. It's fine. Um, I use it all the time. Again, I use it. uh, It's one of the 10 things that I do on a safety plan. And I think it does help. Um, You know, it can't hurt it anyway. So uh, I think it does help. It it also kind of helps to assess the imminence. You know, if, if when I have assessed for suicidality, um, the conversation around contracting for safety is a good assessment tool. You know, I'm like, okay, so I'm hearing a lot of concerning things about your suicidal thoughts. Um, are you willing to sign a contract saying that you won't kill yourself in the next month? Can, are you willing to do that? And if they're like, um, yeah, you know, in the next month, that's fine. Okay, so that tells me at least it's an indication that they're not at imminent risk, right? But if they say, eh, I don't know if I can sign that, well, that's an indication of imminent risk. Number 10, the last thing here is you want to establish a clear plan for future sessions. So this is um, one, a effort to tell the client, look, there is hope here. We have, a, I have a plan for you. We're going to work on these things and, and we're going to get you better. So you want to instill that hope. Uh, the other thing is, is kind of a cover your own ass thing of the safety plan needs to include some sort of overall comment of like where treatment is going and what you're doing as a clinician to actually reduce the underlying reasons why they are thinking about suicide. Um, you know, you might put on the 
on the uh, safety plan, things like, I will attend two sessions per week until we determine that my risk level is no longer high. So the contract is in the client's language, right? So another thing is, is, you know, the client will comply with the psychiatrist's recommendations. So it's not just like a bunch of things they do when they're stressed out. There, there can, there's comments on there because it is part of the safety plan, right? They, part of the safety plan is they need to comply with their psychiatrist. Um, they need to come to sessions two times a week. So, you know, you, you want to have that in there. Also, it's generally um, a good thing to increase the number of sessions per week if possible, uh, especially if you're working at an agency and, um, you know, uh, they're paying for all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, because that will help. But you want to put it in the safety plan and in the treatment plan. You know, uh, this is temporary. For the next month, we're going to meet for twice a week. You don't want to necessarily say it'll be always because it might not be for always. I know I said that there are 11 components to a safety plan, but apparently there's only 10. (laughs) So, again, to review all the things on a safety plan, you want uh, a plan for likely triggers. You want to identify things to avoid, like drinking alcohol. You want to involve supports in the safety planning, like they are actually there while you're doing the safety planning. You want to list effective coping skills. You want to list support people that they will actually reach out to. You want to remove access to the means. You want to include things in there that says when the client is in doubt that they will call 911 or the crisis line, uh, and also when the support people are in doubt. Because remember, the safety plan involves these other people. Uh, number eight, you want to establish a contingency for no-shows, cancellations, and not responding to your communications as a therapist. Number nine, you want to contract for safety. And number 10, you want to establish a clear plan for future sessions and future treatment. Okay, at this point, I want to check in with the reality of suicide and of people, and I want to read some more stories from lostallhope.com. Um, so these are people who have recovered from suicidality. Again, if you're uh, triggered by this, make sure you monitor it. Talk to your therapist first. Um, and I'm very serious about that. I'm not just saying that as a blab thing. I'm being very serious about it. Suicide contagion is a thing. Pay attention to your feelings and your motivations. Um, so this is a story from the internet. Um, I'll, I'll read it. I don't think that I'll ever be able to thank you enough. Nothing has ever touched me as much as your story. So this is someone reading about an, another story on this one website. I don't think I'll ever be able to thank you enough. Nothing has ever touched me as much as your story. I'm a 14-year-old boy who has been depressed ever since I hit the major stages of puberty. Just a few hours ago, I searched up on Google the best way to commit suicide, and your website was the top result. I read every single letter of every single page. After I finished reading, I cried for the first time in over four years. I wasn't... It wasn't a cry of sadness or anger or anything like that. For the first time in four years, I was truly happy. You helped me discover that suicide isn't anywhere near a consideration for a solution to my problems. From now on, I'm just going to live my life happily the way that I want to live it. Please excuse my language, but fuck what anyone else thinks. I am who I am, and I'm proud of it. Thank you. So that's someone who was in a pretty bad spot and went online and found this website that had a lot of stories of people talking about suicide and their recovery. And this guy cried tears of happiness for the first time and now is just like, nope, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna kill myself. So just think about that. Like someone's on the brink and 
they just find some other stories online that um, normalizes it, gives them the strength, and they're back in business. Another story here. I was again at the bottom of that dark hole. I knew from previous experience that these periods pass, and I do feel better eventually. However, I was so sad, tired, and angry about a barrage of criticism from my family that I wasn't sure that this time I wanted it to pass. Life held no prospect of future happiness for me. My husband wasn't around to talk to, so I decided he'd, he'd stop caring too. I wanted a pain-free suicide. The last thing I expected to stumble upon was a factual website explaining what would and would not be suitable, while at the same time reflecting just on how I felt to be researching inside. Um, This site was so supportive. I'm going to bookmark it. Thank you so much for having the idea and making the effort. Another life has been saved and made better by your generosity of spirit and funds. You've lifted my spirit enough to face more life. So this is people were, you know, talking to this guy who runs this website called Lost All Hope. Uh, Lost All Hope is a website that um, was made by, uh, essentially it was like a blog by someone who was committed to suicide. And he um, decided later that he was uh, not going to attempt. And he decided to include a lot of, information about suicide, but also a lot of stories from people that they, that submitted. Another story from this website. Earlier tonight, I was looking up methods to painlessly kill myself when I found your site. For years, I planned several methods for killing myself, not, really, not realizing that suicide is not painless and that it is even dangerous if I were to fail. The three months I had already tried, the three, sorry, the three methods I had already tried were hanging pills and drowning. Obviously, I didn't succeed because I'm still here. Thank you for making this site because it helped me to see that were I to try again, I wouldn't just be hurting myself, but my daughter would lose her mother. I called a hotline you put on your help me page, and now I feel I feel just enough to keep myself alive just a little while longer. I don't think I'll ever beat my suicidal thoughts completely, but at least I know of a place I can go anytime I have those thoughts again. Thank you. So this person, you know, you just you just feel the pain, right? They've already attempted with hanging pills and drowning, and they go to this website uh, that has information on suicide, and they see this hotline, and they're like, okay, I guess I'll call. They call the hotline. They feel connected, and they're like, you know what? I'm not going to do it. So I hope this, you know, helps people understand that, like, we have to reach these people, you know, Everyone basically knows that they can Google things, right? <laughs> um, which is another thing I think we need to think about is that we need to meet people where they are, which is on the internet. And uh, I don't know if we're doing such a great job. Uh, in fact, this website, um, lostallhope.com, is is run by someone who is also, you know, uh, had also thought about suicide. And although it's great, and I, th- I think, you know, obviously it helps a lot of people, where is the robust internet um, presence by therapists reaching out to people who are thinking about suicide? It's non-existent. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are people trying, but um, you know, all of us are like, well, you know, I'll see them in my office. What are we doing as a government? What are we doing as legislators? What are we doing as famous people? You know, this is all things we need to think about. Okay, 
so getting back to my um, uh, notes here. All right. So let's talk. I get a lot of questions, particularly from family therapists, about, well, what about confidentiality for minors? Do If I have a kid or a teenager who has suicidal ideation, don't I have to tell the parents? Um, this is a question I, I often get. And, and you'll get a lot of different answers from people. Some people will be like, no, no, it's confidential. And you'll get another answer like, no, no, ethically and legally, you have to tell the parents. So the answer to this question is it's complicated. The laws, ethics, and standard of care varies by state, by profession, and by context. And the laws and standards have generally not been adjudicated in court yet, so we don't really have clear rules about this. Um, so just know that that we don't, you know, are you supposed to tell the parents when you have a kid who is thinking about suicide? Um, it's complicated, is the thing. But in general, we should strive to involve the family in the child's treatment in general, whether it has to do with suicide or not. There are many benefits, particularly regarding suicide prevention, as I was talking about earlier. Um, you know, you, you, you want to get the family involved from the beginning. Now, some people don't like to do that because um, the child doesn't want the family involvement and that kind of thing. But again, that unless there are some kind of mitigating circumstance, like the parents are like, you know, I've, ha- I've had teenage clients where the parents were sexually abusing the kid. Um, obviously, um, involving the parents in the treatment is um, not necessarily a good thing, right? Uh, depending on how the kid feels about it. And so the uh, uh, involve so sometimes there are situations where us as clinicians we don't want the parents involved at all. But you know usually the kids are afraid of allowing them to be involved because they're afraid that the parents are going to screw things up. But usually they don't. Usually involving the parents just helps things, particularly around suicide prevention, right? So um, getting the parents involved is is usually a good thing, even if the kid doesn't want it. Now, you don't want to go against what the kid wants because the kid has rights. So, But the, the issue is, is a matter of convincing them. And again, as I was talking about earlier, usually you just have to say, okay, um, it's totally up to you. You are in control. I will not contact your parents if you ultimately say no, but let me try to convince you um, because I want you to stay alive. And if I involve your parents, it, 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 I'm, I'm more confident that we're going to get you through these tough times. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell them that you smoke pot. I'm not going to tell them that you skip school. I'm not going to tell them about your complaints about them unless you want me to. So uh, there's a lot of things I'm not going to tell your parents. It's just not going to happen because I want to protect your privacy. Uh, What I do want to talk with your parents about is the way that they treat you because they sometimes treat you badly and that can actually result in you wanting to kill yourself and and having more mood issues. Um, I'm also going to tell them how they can help. Um, and how they can support you. Um, and, and if they, you know, if, if I involve the parents and then after the session they kind of freak out, you tell me about that, I will go back to your parents and I will say, don't freak out. <laughs> you know, I'm here to advocate for you. And, I, and this is something I would always tell, tell teenagers. I am an adult and I am on your side. And I am a professional family therapist. It's, it's my job to be able to talk to parents. I know how to talk to parents to get them to listen to me. I'm very good at getting parents to understand me and to listen to me and to comply with me. Um, I'm, I don't have power over them, but um, I'm very good at, at persuading parents. I'm much better than you are. <laughs> you know, you as a teenager have been trying to persuade your parents to do X, Y, and Z. Um, I'm telling you, 
uh, I'm much better than you at convincing them to do that. Um, be, one, because I'm a professional family therapist, but also because I'm an adult and they're more likely to, to listen to me than they are to you, uh, which is sad but true. And so um, so I say all that kind of stuff and, you know, nine times out of 10 or maybe even, you know, 19 times out of 20, the client will say, okay, sure, let's give it a shot. Um, and man, does it help with not only treatment in general, but also with uh, suicide prevention. So um, – and with covering your ass and with anxiety because how anxiety-provoking would it be if you had a kid who was high risk of suicide but wasn't, you know, at imminent risk of – and, you know, you didn't hospitalize them and y- you have not told the parents. And what if the kid attempts the and the parents find out that you knew that he or she was suicidal and didn't call them. I mean, that is a very anxiety-provoking situation because, you know, imagine you as a parent, you have a kid, a 17-year-old or a 13-year-old kid in therapy, and your kid attempts suicide, and then it's revealed that that the therapist knew that the kid was at risk of suicide and didn't contact you. Um, As a parent, you're going to be pissed off. You're going to be like, wait, why didn't you tell me? You know, and you don't want that as a therapist. You don't want an angry uh, parent because you know we don't know if they don't have grounds to sue you. Uh, because uh, depending on the state, again, depending on the context, depending on the judge in terms of how they react to things, it's not exactly clear. So it's so much better if you can massage the situation. Um, it's one of the great, wonderful things about being a family therapist because we're we tend to be better at at doing that kind of work. Again, there are situations where we don't want to involve the parents for clinical reasons and for advocacy reasons, um, but usually um, those aren't present. Um, so uh, talking about Washington state law, just kind of, you know, most of you don't live in Washington state, but just kind of give you an example. This is as of 2020, uh, the year 2020. Um, so for ages 0 through 12 clients, you should probably tell the parents unless there are special circumstances. So – um, you know, uh, kids who are, you know, younger than 13, they 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 don't have the same rights as people who are 13 and up. So you can kind of think of it as there's three different categories of clients. You have 0 to 12, you have 13 to 17, and you have 18 and up. Um, and 18 is kind of a transition zone, too, because often they're living at home, right? And sometimes that's a consideration. Um, so uh, age 0 to 12, generally speaking, you should probably tell the parents if the kid is suicidal. Um, there's a very, very low likelihood that the child will um, sue you for breaking confidentiality. Um, and there's a, a even more low likelihood that you will actually be found in violation for breaking confidentiality in that way. Again, um, you never want to just forge ahead. And this is something that I think um, is sort of missed as the nuance to a lot of novice therapists is – you know, they'll be like, okay, I have a 10-year-old client who doesn't have rights to confidentiality. You know, I can tell the parents everything. So I'm going to tell the parents everything. Um, no. At the very the, – the bottom line is our clients deserve privacy and confidentiality for, for a lot of reasons, um, for a lot of ethical reasons. Just because we can tell the parents doesn't mean we automatically do. Uh, so – but there are situations if, a, if you know, a client is homicidal or suicidal. Uh, generally speaking, yeah, even if the kid doesn't consent, you should probably tell the parents. Now, age 13 to 17 in Washington State as of 2020, um, they, teenagers generally have the same confidentiality as adults, meaning we tend to respect their wishes for privacy. But there's an exception 
we need to act and because according to the law it says we need to act in the minor's best interest um uh, not every profession has this language but um, we need to act in the minor's best interest when deciding whether or not to disclose information to the parents um, so what does this mean um uh, it can mean a lot of different things. And again, we haven't uh, gone to court. You know, there hasn't been a test case in court, so we really don't know what this language means. But in the law, generally speaking, depending on the pres- you know, the profession in Washington State, we have this idea of just like, look, yes, teenagers deserve confidentiality. But if they're suicidal, we need to act in the, uh, the minor's best interest when deciding whether or not to break confidentiality and talk with the parents. Um, so it's unclear. You probably want to consult with someone, um, but know that it's complicated and we actually don't know how the laws would be adjudicated in situations like that. So again, it's just so much easier if you can get the kid to comply with your um, efforts of reaching out to the parents. You get in a much more sticky situation when um, you just sort of go, you know, what I what I see a lot of trainees do is, you know, they'll be like, so can I talk with your parents about the fact that you're thinking about suicide? And the kid, you know, usually they're like, no, I don't want you to tell the parents. And then the therapist just says, okay. And they, they just never pursue it any anymore after that. Well, if, if and that's fine in a sense, but that really complicates things, again, particularly if the client is suicidal. Because your, your hands are tied behind your back. And if you comply, you actually could get in trouble by the parents. So... It really helps not only your own process of, of treatment, but also I think the benefit of the client and the family if you uh, get everyone else involved. you know, um, If you're an individual therapist and you don't like working with families, refer them to a family therapist and tell them, look, this kid's suicidal. I really want you to you know, work with me on a safety plan with the parents. You know, get a family therapist involved. Um, when in doubt, you know, with, with minors and confidentiality, consult with an expert. And number two, um, uh, when in doubt, you probably should inform the parents, um, you know, because there's a lot more risk to not informing the parents of that and better safe than sorry, right? I'd rather have a teenage client who was a little upset at me about talking to the parents than to have a dead client, right? Okay, documentation. Um Documenting well in your client in your client files has a number of purposes. One is you want to keep track of the details, right? You got to keep track of details of treatment. Number two, you know, details like um, today they reported that they are on a three out of ten on the scale of suicidality, that kind of thing. Because and I'll often look back to those notes because it helps. Um, and you can actually use it for hope and treatment. You know, like the client comes in and they're an eight. And they're like, um, yeah, I've been an eight for the past two weeks. You know, it's really tough. And you might say something like, well, I think in the past, you know, you did have a spike of eight, but then you went back down to a two for a while. And they're like, I don't remember that. But you look to the client file and you can say, actually, I see a three-month period right here where you told me you were a two. So this might be just another temporary spike. And if we just get ourselves through it, then you'll, you know, in all likelihood, you'll go back down to a two. And if you have it all written down, you can have those conversations. If you don't write it down, you then you're kind of left going, what? What did that person say? Particularly if you have 40 clients, you know. Um, you also want to document well because there's a pretty good chance that other professionals are going to be involved. Um, psychiatrists, this kind of thing. And particularly if they attempt, particularly if they go to the hospital. Um, when they go to the hospital, sometimes the hospital will just ask for the 
for the client file. And so um, you, you want your documentation to be pretty good. Also, your file is more likely to be, quote unquote, pulled or requested by the client or other people. So you want your documentation to be pretty buttoned up and also to cover your ass. If the client does attempt and or die, you want a um, clear paper trail of evidence saying that you were taking reasonable steps to prevent suicide. Okay, what do you document? Well, if there's no risk, then... You, you just have to doc- document how you determine there's no risk. You know, For example, the client indicated she has never thought about suicide. So um, there should be something in there about that. You know, Just because there's no risk of suicide and they don't have suicidal ideation doesn't mean you don't have to document that because um, in the omission of any information, they, just, they, don't, know, they don't know what's going on if, if anyone comes upon your file. Um, the other thing is, is if there is risk, if they're you know low or higher risk, you want to uh, document what triggered your concern f- of suicide. For example, you might write something like, "The client indicated that they had thoughts about suicide in the past," or "The client endorsed several depressive symptoms," which indicated to me I needed to do a suicide assessment. You know that kind of language. And again, you see my language is pretty down to earth. You know. Um, the client endorsed several depressive symptoms, which indicated to me I needed to do a, a um, suicide assessment to reduce the risk and to, you know, involve the treatment plan in the suicide uh, risk uh, lowering. Anyway, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad note, but I hope you get my point. Um, okay, so we need also to write down all the things that we assessed, right? So this is kind of a review of, the, of what I was talking about earlier, but um, just to give some examples of what you might write down. So again, there's those eight areas that we assess. Number one, we have to assess the problem, right? So for example, you might say, uh, the client said, quote, I sometimes think about suicide because I feel alone and hopeless. So uh, sometimes it's good to put it in the client's words. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, it depends on the situation. But um, you want to have that problem in there. You don't want to just say the client thinks about suicide. You want to talk about why the client thinks about suicide. That indicates you're really paying attention to the foundation of it. Number two, we want to assess past and current treatment, remember. And, for example, you might want to say the client reported that a past therapist helped him by reminding him that his family would miss him. And the client indicated that this seemed to work for him. Another thing you might write down is the client reported she is currently taking X milligrams of Zoloft per day as prescribed by her psychiatrist to reduce symptoms of depression. She reports it effectively reduces her symptoms to a manageable level. Um, so this is these are all the possible things you might say that are an indication of your assessment of past and current treatment. Number three, we want to assess all those ongoing risk factors. You know, those, those 11 uh, different areas here. So um, – For example, I might write in my file, the client said, one, he thinks, so this is all the risk factors, right? The client said, one, uh, he thinks about suicide about five times per week, particularly when he's bored at home. Two, he drinks one to three beers three times a week. Three, he does not own a gun and does not have access to a gun. Four, he attempted once before 13 years ago by taking pills. He soon told his stepmother who, who took him to the hospital. He was in the hospital for one week. Number five, he does not have a plan. Number six, he reports feeling hopelessness at times. Number seven, he was sexually abused by his mother as a child. Number eight, 
He does not show signs of impulsivity or aggression. Number nine, his job is stable. Number 10, his emotions are stable. So I, you know, after I assessed all the ongoing risk factors, I was jotting it down, and then I wrote it in my notes in this list form. This is very important because I, I find a lot of people's notes, they don't talk about these things. You know, they'll just be like, I assessed for medium risk of suicide risk. And I'm and I'm looking at it and I'm like, where's the evidence? You know, show me the money here. So how did you come to that conclusion? So, you know, you got to list all that out. Um, number four, you want to assess acute warning signs and behavior. This is, you know, for imminence. Uh, for example, you might want to write, although the client said she is not, uh, although the client said she, she, I wrote this wrong. Uh, although the client said she does not plan on attempting suicide, she is showing the following signs of hidden intent. Number one, she said she gave her sister all of her photo albums. Number two, she is behaving differently in session lately. For example, she arrives late and doesn't have much to talk about. Number three, I thought I detected alcohol in her breath during today's session, which is not normal for her, and so on. So this is uh, me documenting the potential imminent risk factors. Number five, we want to assess the protective factors. For example, I might say, I talked with this, with his stepmother on the phone and she agreed to monitor his behavior and look for signs of suicidal intent. She agreed to follow the safety plan. The client said he is confident the safety plan will help him to remain safe. He said he doesn't want to die because he loves his family and his dog. So those are the protective factors there. Number six, we want to assess intent. For example, I might write, she said she has been mostly committed to suicide off and on for the past seven years, ever since her father died. Over the past month, her intent has been between a two out of seven, with 10 being imminently at risk of suicide. She said a seven indicates that she was fairly sure she was going to attempt, but no firm plans to carry out the plan at that moment. Today, she indicated she was a 4 out of 10, meaning she has a loose plan, i.e. pills, but low intent. So that's my, you know, I did the full assessment of the intent, and that's my brief summary of that in the, in the documentation. Number seven, we want to assess plan, preparations, and rehearsals. For example, I might write, he said his suicidal plan has changed over time. Currently, he occasionally thinks about jumping into traffic. He said he has never rehearsed any of his plans for suicide. He said his intent has never risen to that level. You might want to write a little bit more than that, but depending on the situation. And number eight, the last thing that we're assessing here is the means. For example, I might write, she said her family has four guns in the house. She said they are all locked up, but she knows how to gain access. I recommended she allow me to talk with her family to tell them to put the guns in another location to reduce the risk of her attempting suicide, and she agreed. End of note. Okay. So those are the eight areas that we assess, and we have to um, document that. And then we have to indicate risk level, right? And you have to indicate how you determined that risk level. Very important in your documentation. For example, I might write, I determined he is at high risk of suicide due to the following risk factors. One, he has suicidal ideation. Two, he has a plan. Three, he said he might attempt at some point in the future. Four, he has attempted twice in the past. Both attempts were more than two years ago. Five, his depressive symptoms are moderate. However, he does not have a rise. 
However, he does not rise to the level of imminent risk due to the following protective factors. Number one, he has agreed to, he has agreed to allow his wife to monitor him 24-7 between now and our next session. Number two, he and his wife have agreed to follow the safety plan. Three, he said he does not intend on attempting between now and his next session with me. Four, he has agreed to take his medication. Five, he has agreed to go to the hospital and or call 911 if his intent increases to an unsafe level. So that's a pretty good, you know, summary of I could have written more, but that's probably sufficient. So you realize that it it's not much, right? I'm not even though I talked about a lot of different factors and protective factors that we have to assess, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to write pages and pages, you know. I I would I think that this is pretty, um, uh, you know, adequate. Now, sometimes you might have forms that you fill out that actually um, are just a bunch of checkboxes um, that and therefore you don't have to write all this out. But um, I find that it helps to write it out so that um, people understand what, what's in your head. Um, the next thing you have to document is your response to the risk level, right? Uh, so you, you might write something like, um, you know, the client is at high risk, meaning that they have they have suicidal ideation and a plan and intent to kill themselves, but they convincingly indicate they won't attempt soon, as you know previously discussed. So we establish a robust safety plan that involves that I included in the file. You know, um, see that page, and I also involve twenty four seven monitoring by the wife. Um, you also want to make sure that the copies of the safety plan are given to all the people concerned, and it's also in the file. You want to make sure you document your treatment recommendations to the client, any referrals you made, and any consultation or supervision you obtained. And this is important. So if you – let's say you consult with a colleague. You just – you go next door. You know, your friend is a therapist, and you sit down. And you go, you know, I have this client. They're suicidal, and I did this and that. And you run it by your colleague slash friend, and your colleague says – um, yeah, you know, it sounds like you did everything. Maybe try this and that. You want to document that because if it comes to pass that this client does attempt or die from suicide and your your file is pulled um, and there's no evidence that you consulted with anyone, then that's going to ding you. So you want to make sure it's on there. So you want to say, is it okay if I document what we just talked about? Um, they're like, yeah, sure. So you go to your file and you say, on this date, I consulted for 15 minutes about the client's uh, signs of suicide, and um, I we I told you know this person how I determined the risk level and what my response was, and this colleague determined that I responded well um, and reasonably and within the standard of care, and and the colleague suggested that I do X, Y, and Z um, next in the next session or something like that. So. Um, you got to document that. A lot of people don't document it. A lot of people, they have those conversations, which is great. But, you know, sometimes you might not go to court for two years, three years or something. It's, it's often the case, honestly. And you might not remember. Plus, even if you did remember uh, and you go to court and you're just like, yeah, I, I, con- I consulted and the, you know, opposing lawyer is like, well, where's the documentation? And you're like, oh, I never wrote it down. Well, the opposing lawyer is going to be like, well, then how do you prove that you actually had a conversation with anybody? So it's it's important to have that that documentation. It's, it's very, very helpful. Okay. So let's talk about treatment. You know, I briefly went over the treatment earlier. You know, what how do we treat suicidality? Um, I talked about the five different categories, and I'll give some more detail here, um, you know, more in detail. Number one, we have psychotropics. Um, 
There are only two evidence-based medications that have been shown to lower suicidal behaviors, and that is lithium and clozapine. Uh, lithium is usually used for bipolar and depression, and clozapine is usually used for psychotic disorders. So uh, these two medications have been shown to reduce uh, suicidal behaviors in some people. Uh, they, they sometimes don't work at all for people, so it you know it just kind of has to be you know trial and error a lot of times with prescribers. Antidepressants like SSRIs, you might think, okay, well, they should help, right? Because they help with the depression. They've been found to not reduce suicide attempts in people with mood disorders for some reason. Um, one reason is because uh, SSRIs aren't that great at reducing depression. <laughs> they can be great, but they also have, a, you know, for the, for the people it works for, it works for, but there's a lot of people it doesn't even work for. Um, also, antidepressants may um, actually cause suicidal thoughts. And that's been proven. And now on a lot of these SSRIs, it comes with a big warning label. Um, for whatever reason, we don't really understand why, uh, taking an antidepressant can actually in- cause people to have a massive spike in suicidal thoughts. And I've seen this before, and it's weird. Um, I'll have a client who uh, has only had very mild suicidal ideation over time. They change a medication to Prozac or something like that. And all of a sudden, it's just like an obsession that's running through their head. Suicide, 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 suicide. It's weird. So, you know, be very mindful of that. Because as a clinician, you know, I know some of you are psychiatrists and medical people. So obviously, you know to do this. But even if you're not a prescriber, um, this is, you know, some prescribers, they don't pay attention to this. They, they don't, they might not even know that they're supposed to do it. And so, you as the primary mental health clinician might actually have to monitor that from the outside. So it does help for even you non-medical people like me to become uh, aware of psychotropics, Um, meaning I'm not a medical professional and I understand psycho... I've taken a lot of classes on psychotropics and psychopharmacology and consulted with a lot of people. Anyway, Um, now what if the suicidality is caused by something that's not depression? Like it could be caused by anxiety. Well, sometimes anti-anxiety medication can reduce your anxiety issues, which can in turn reduce depression or uh, suicidality. Let's say suicidality is exacerbated by insomnia or caused by insomnia. Well, you can prescribe sedatives or hypnotics as a way of helping people sleep, which can help them to sleep, which helps them to not have suicidality. <laughs> I said that in a weird way. Um, okay. So that's psychotropics. Number two treatment is what I'm calling last resort biological treatments. You know, all these are last resort for mainly treatment-resistant depression. Uh, The reason why they're last resort is because they they tend to be highly invasive, expensive, high side effect treatments, and they have limited effectiveness. So we have electroconvulsive therapy, which is, you know, electrocuting your brain. We have the vagus nerve stimulation, we have deep brain stimulation, and we have the drug ketamine. Uh, ketamine we could con- consider to be a you know top five psychotropic for some prescribers, but it has a lot of side effects and has limited um, uh, results, and so uh, so I, I have it in this category. But particularly electroconvulsive, vagus nerve, deep, you know, deep brain. Stimulation and vagus nerve stimulation involves putting a device in your body permanently, you know, some kind of thing that is uh, under the skin, right? 
And so obviously this is a big deal and, and should be considered carefully. And also it, it tends not to work for most people. In fact, um, some people believe it's a lot of placebo effects anyway. So, um, so, but those are things that people do. Number three are peer support programs like online, like I was, you know, that one website I was talking about, or in, in person. Uh, there are suicide prevention support groups. There's also group therapy. There's also church uh, support groups and alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous groups that can help. So, you know, the thing we want to do with suicidal people is we want to get them connected to other human beings. We, we really don't want them to isolate. When they're with other people, when they feel that sense of belongingness, the suicidality will just wash away. Um, so it definitely can help for a lot of people. Number four, treatment we want to include is a, a crisis line. You know, oftentimes we don't really think about this as treatment, but it absolutely is. You know, when um, you know, people have a spike in suicidality. It, it often is temporary, and it's three in the morning. What are they going to do? There's no, um, they can't get a, they can't get electroconvulsive therapy right away. Um, they can't go to group therapy right away. What can they do? Well, they can call one of these lifelines: National Suicide Prevention Line, Crisis Line, these kinds of places. Trevor Project research shows that contacting a crisis line does reduce the risk of death by suicide. It absolutely works. So it should be considered as part of the the treatment. And number five, of course, is we have psychotherapy. It's hard to summarize, um, you know, what sort of psychotherapy do we do for suicidal clients? Because basically all of our therapeutic skills are involved in treating, treating suicide and all clients with suicide are different. So it we can't really say this is what you do with a suicidal client. Um, but there are some things to say, like there are some, quote, unquote, evidence-based treatments for suicide. Um, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, is is a big one, right? It's specifically designed by Linehan et al. to uh, reduce suicidality, and he has been, has been shown to do that. There are certain cognitive behavioral therapy techniques that um, are useful too. That's a close cousin to DBT. And also interpersonal therapy has been found to reduce suicidality. Um, But that doesn't mean that um, let's say you're a therapist out there and you don't do CBT, you don't do DBT, you don't do interpersonal therapy. That doesn't mean that you have worthless techniques for reducing um, suicidality because, again, it's hard to generalize. It's hard to know. You know, use the skills that tend to work with all your clients. You know, it'll probably work with suicidality as well. And let me get into the specifics in terms of my uh, approach, which I think it'll become clear. Um, so I talked about this in the introduction, but just going a little bit more into it is um, my, my approach involves 15 diff- 16 different components. Um, this is aside from the safety plan. Number one is you got to have a strong relationship with your clients, um, meaning that you want to convey care and compassion to them. You want to enter their world. You want to really listen. Um, don't just say, well, you know, suicidality is this thing that happens. You know, you want to really get into that world. Like, why do you think about how do you what is it like to think about suicide for you? The other thing is, is you don't want to freak out. You know, you want to be uh you don't want to distance yourself from the client with your own anxiety. You want to stay present. Number two is you want to normalize. You got to give the impression that they're not alone. As you know, I was talking when I was reading those people's stories. It's pretty clear that when they actually read other people's stories of surviving suicide, um, that had a tremendous therapeutic effect on them and would eliminate their suicidal intent in the moment. So it's important that you normalize. Maybe you even have like other stories of people who have survived suicide. Maybe even you self-disclose a little bit about it. Number three is you got to increase hope. Um, for example, you, you know you might 
say something like, you know, your mood was a lot better last month. It's likely that your mood will return to that if you just give it some time. Number four, point out strengths. You're a survivor. You're generous. You're a good person. Um, the world needs you. You know, your kids need you. That You know, you want to point out strengths. Number five, you want to identify and manage triggers. Pretty obvious there. Uh, you know, like say marital conflict is a big trigger. Well, maybe you got to get the couple into therapy to help them with that. Number six is you want to build connections with other people. You want to have the client build and cultivate connections. A lot of suicidal people are very isolated. And so you want to help them to go on a campaign to increase their relationships and their connectedness. Number seven, you want to educate them about suicide. You want to help them understand suicide so they can conceptualize their own experience. Namely, you want to help them to understand that it usually subsides and that usually people regret attempting. Um, it's very important that they understand that. Uh, there's a lot of different things you could get into about attachment or trauma or, you know, there's just a lot of things that you can educate your clients about that will help them to consent. You, you want essentially what you want your clients to do is to think about suicide the way you think about it, because um, a lot of people will walk around thinking about suicide like, well, it it's reality, you know, because when people get really lost in that in that experience, they're they become convinced of some very of a very particular kind of narrative. And so when you teach them about how you see suicide and how you treat it and your experience of, you know, how it, you know, fluctuates over time in your clients or something, you know, that can help. You know, you just have to tailor it to the client. Um, you want to increase self-awareness. So this is un- helping them understand their sensitivities and understanding their needs. Like, um, like you say you have a male client who ha- is avoidant attachment and he often thinks about suicide and he doesn't really know why. And you suspect the reason is is because he's never uh, accepted the fact that he needs other human beings to love him and he distances himself from other people and smokes pot all the time. And for him to understand his needs is a very important part of him um, not only getting better but also to uh, reduce his risk of suicide. So uh, self-awareness, that kind of thing. Number nine is increase emotional regulation. Pretty important there. You can spend a lot of time on that one. Um, and it's hard. You know, we tend to think of it as, oh, you know, just emotional regulation skills. No, you know, for some people, particularly who lack a self or have ongoing negativity, this is a tough nut to crack, but you got to spend time on doing it. It, pay, it pays off. Number 10, you want to address cognitions, negative self-talk, managing their rumination, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people with suicidal thoughts will believe they're a burden or they think um, they're a terrible person or they're, um, you know, they're a, they, they don't deserve to live, these kinds of things. And so you want to work on those, particularly if, you know, they went through a lot of abuse growing up, they're going to have a lot of self negative self-talk that can, can contribute to suicidality. Number 11, you want to increase self-compassion. You got to get them to love themselves. You know, a lot of it is like, hey, I hear you beating yourself up about this. Or, hey, are you paying attention to your own needs here? Um, or, you know, you're suffering a lot. This is actually kind of a big one. This kind of applies to a lot of clients, actually. We are taught in our society to deny our own suffering, to just move on. You know, stop complaining. Don't be a crybaby. It's a big message in our society. And that is not helpful. <laughs> when we are suffering it does no good to ignore it. Uh, it. It just causes more suffering. So we really want to help people to, to slow down and say, 
I am suffering and I see it. And with that sight, I can now have compassion for myself. I'm just like, man, you know, uh, as a concrete example, it's like someone falls down on the street and they skin their knee and they jump up and they're like, I'm fine. And they don't want to be humiliated and they have blood running down their leg. And um, they just, and people are like, oh my God, you have, you're bleeding out of your knee. And you're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And you just keep walking. Well, that doesn't do you any good. You know, okay, you're acting real tough, but you got to stop. You got to clean your knee. (laughs) You have to put a bandage on. I mean, what if you need stitches? I mean, pay attention. Um, And then if the person is allowed to pay attention, then they're going to be like, oh, I need stitches. I need to go to the hospital. You know, I need to help to, you know, make sure I don't get an infection, that kind of thing. Um, I need to make sure I don't get blood on my shoes, that kind of thing. So there are, uh, once people are given a, chance to see their suffering, then they're also given a chance to take care of themselves and they're given a chance to uh, allow themselves to be taken care of. So it has a lot to do with that kind of thing. And and it takes a, a lot of doing. You have to be kind of a charismatic therapist to even shift people around. You know, I always say at the end of the show, take care of yourself because you deserve it and uh, take care of other people and allow yourself to be taken care of. I know you've all heard me say that a billion times uh, or, you know, a thousand times to be specific, but um, depending on how long you've been listening to the podcast, if you're a real fan, you've been listening since the beginning, just joking. Um, Not really, but uh, I always say you deserve it, but you know, we could say that. (laughs) I could say that to you. You deserve it. And you know, that helps. But sometimes, you know, with some clients, it's like, they're like, yeah, I know intellectually I deserve compassion from others and I deserve to take care of myself. But, you know, in reality, uh, I'm just being a crybaby. You know, you'll you'll hear this this counter evidence, you know, sneaking in you. And so it takes some doing with people. And, um, you know, things that generally work is for you as a therapist to focus on their suffering. You really have to point it out and say, I see your suffering. I notice that you're suffering. Here are the signs of your suffering. Here's why you're suffering. I know you're suffering. You're, you're essentially pointing at the person's knee and you're like, you're bleeding out of your knee and you might need stitches. You're, you're pointing at it and you're just saying, I see it and I'm not afraid of it. And I'm not, and I don't think you're a crybaby because you're bleeding, man. <laughs> like, so you're pointing at their suffering and you're just like, I know that you're suffering. It's a strange thing that you would think that clients would naturally just talk about it in therapy, but they usually don't because they're ashamed of it. Number 12 is acceptance. So a lot of times radical acceptance can help. So, uh, you know, accepting the fact that they have back pain or accepting the fact that their mother had died or accepting the fact that um, they have anxiety or something. You know, when people fight against these issues, sometimes it can increase suffering. Number 13 is you got to reduce those risk factors, you know, work on their anxiety, increase their impulse control, abstain from alcohol, that kind of thing. Number 14 is you want to enhance protective factors like journal about reasons to stay alive or walking the dog or um, connection with their God or something. So you want to enhance those in therapy because that can protect them against uh, suicidality. Number 15 is you got to manage your countertransference and remain differentiated. You cannot freak out, as I was saying earlier. It's important, you know, we all have, we all have 
countertransference around suicidal clients. Um, it's scary to us. Um, it's also I also see that people will get attached to the idea that you're going to save them, you know, a savior complex. It's like, ooh, I have a suicidal client. My client really likes me. I'm going to save this client from their suicidality. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, being dedicated to your work and believing in yourself. There is something wrong with believing that um, you have the power to save people um, in a way that is not um, justified. There's nothing wrong with believing you you have some power to help people, but um, – uh, maybe if I talk about the consequence. So I see some people, they're just like, my client really likes me. And um, my client thinks about suicide, but my client really likes me. So my client isn't going to attempt suicide. They don't say this directly, but they kind of say it in their language that, you know, it sort of comes out in the way they're talking. And what ends up happening is it's like, I need this client to be safe and I'm scared of this client killing themselves. So I'm going into denial about the fact that they might die from suicide, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Also, projective identification can be a play in terms of the transference, countertransference. Listen to all my other episodes um, on that. Also, countertransference-wise, you want to watch out for burnout, withdrawal uh, from the client, emotional withdrawal, anger at the client, rejection of the client, helplessness, hopelessness. Um, these are very common. You talk to anyone who treats suicidal clients and, you know, um, major depressed clients. And as a therapist, you will frequently feel burnout, uh, helplessness, hopelessness, despair yourself because you're you're sitting with that suffering that the client is going through. So um, it's normal to feel those feelings, but you want to have a way of man- managing it. You want to have an outlet for it. You want to talk to your own therapist or supervisor or something. Because if you don't, you'll get burned out and you'll push yourself away from your clients. And the last thing you want to do as a therapist is, um, and I talked about this in the introduction, is you want to address the underlying issue. And this is a big you know, element here. Um, this could be the focus of therapy. So, for example, if they were raped uh, repeatedly as a child, then you're going to do, and they have PTSD, then you're going to do trauma therapy. And so um, if that's the under, what you believe to be the underlying issue that contributes to their suicidality or they have attachment issues and they've never had a secure attachment in their life, they have preoccupied attachment, well, you're going to treat that preoccupied attachment or they've never had a – they've never had meaning in their life. They were never allowed to develop their own meaningfulness or purpose in life. Well, you're going to do uh, work with them in that. Maybe they have complicated grief or a lack of self or they've been marginalized or they have marital conflict, or they, um, they're a teenager who has parents who are treating them badly. So you're going to address that as well. And that you know, is a thousand different things that you would address, um, but you got to pay attention to that. So again, to review, you got psychotropics, number one. Number two, you have last resort biological treatments. Number three, you have peer support programs. Number four, you have crisis line. And number five, you have psychotherapy. Okay, so let's end this episode, this long deep dive, by providing a summary of everything I've talked about so far. So, suicide is much more common than people realize. It's a problem all over the world. In the United States, which is kind of average for the world, suicide rates are rising. About 9% of people have had suicidal ideation in their life. About 3% will attempt at some point in their life and 1.5% of people will die from suicide. That's about 1 in 67 people that will die from suicide in the United States, and 
in similar societies all over the world. In the United States, there are two times as many deaths by suicide than by murder, and 1,000 times as many deaths by suicide than by terrorism. Virtually all therapists treat suicidal clients. The majority of suicidal deaths are preventable, yet therapists lack training in suicide assessment, prevention, and treatment. Many, if not most, therapists are not trained in suicide or they are inadequately trained. This lack of training results in therapist incompetence, therapist freaking out, and ultimately unnecessary deaths. So we need to improve our training and our overall culture in our profession. My model of why people attempt suicide involves five different elements. Number one, it begins with distress. For example, depression, anxiety, rejection, grief, a physical problem of some sort, loss, financial problems, etc. Number two, perceived hopelessness about the distress. Number three, perceived thwarted belongingness, being rejected, alone, believing that no one cares. Number four, acquired means, for example, getting a gun. Number five, acquired capability to follow through with the means. So, uh, you know, a solid plan, rehearsing the plan, even if it's just in your head, and a plan for the fear response that most people predict will kick in once they decide to follow through on the plan. When there is an indication of suicide risk, we need to adequately assess our clients to determine the risk level, which determines if we need a safety plan, and if so, what safety plan to recommend, and three, if we need to uh, require immediate hospitalization. So it's always, we're trying to figure out, um, you know, what the risk level is, what's this, and then safety plan that corresponds with the risk level and or required uh, hospitalization. We need to assess eight different areas, in my uh, opinion. Number one, we need to assess the problem. Why do they want to kill themselves? This gives us the understanding of the foundation. Number two, we want to assess past and current treatment to know what has worked, what hasn't, and to help with treatment planning and safety planning. Number three, this is a big one. We want to assess the ongoing risk factors. This helps in assessing risk level. Number four, we want to assess acute warning signs of behavior. This helps us to assess imminence. Number five, we want to assess protective factors. This helps with risk level. Number six, we want to assess intent. Seven, plan preparations, rehearsals, and number eight, means. These are all help help us uh, assess the risk level. After we assess, we need, to de- we need to determine the risk level so we know how to respond. The main things to consider are suicidal ideation, plan, intent, behavior, attempts, particularly recent attempts, mood disorders or an increase in symptoms of any disorder, Difficulties with past trauma, childhood abuse, experiencing a significant loss recently, uh, death of a loved one recently, particularly recent losses and traumas or recent financial problems, chronic pain or recently being diagnosed with a serious illness, personality traits like negativity, aggression, hopelessness, perceived burdensomeness, perceived thwarted belongingness, impulsivity, lack of judgment, and or rumination. Significant relationship difficulties like family conflict and or isolation. Recent suicide of someone that they know through suicide contagion. And or noncompliance with services, having a gun, or alcohol abuse. 
This all helps us to determine one of five different levels. Number one, no risk. This is These are people who have never had suicidal ideation or no recent ideation and or they don't have many, any of the significant things that we look for in terms of science, like they don't have depression or anything like that. In this situation, we don't really need to do anything other than maybe occasionally monitor. Number two level is low risk. This is someone with suicidal thoughts, but no current plan, intent, or behavior, no recent current plan, no recent plan, intent, or behavior. With these people, there's no need for a safety plan, but it's okay if you do so. But you do need to establish a treatment plan that involves monitoring them, their suicidal thoughts, and keeping the risk low. Number three level is medium risk. This is suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, and a plan, but no recent intent to follow through on the plan and no behavior. You need to have a safety plan with these people that involves emotional regulation and support, and you need to establish a treatment plan that involves monitoring the suicidal ideation and keeping the risk low. Fourth level is high risk. This is someone who thinks about suicide, has a plan, and intends to follow through on the plan, but they convincingly indicate to you that they won't attempt soon. For these people, you need a robust safety plan that hopefully involves 24-7 monitoring by a support system. And the top level is imminent risk. This is suicidal thoughts with plan and imminent intent, either overt or covert, in these situations, we need to require hospitalization immediately. The safety plan should involve the following uh, 10 different areas. Number one, we, you need to in, involve a plan for likely triggers. Two, identify things to avoid. Three, involve supports in the safety planning if possible. Four, list effective coping skills. That's a big one. Five, list supportive people that they can read out to, that they can reach out to. Six, remove access to means. Seven, when they are in doubt, they will call a crisis line or 911. Eight, establish contingencies for no-shows, cancellations, and not responding to your communications. Nine, contract for safety. Ten, establish a clear plan for future sessions. You need to document well to help with treatment and to be part of a team and to CYA. Treatments include psychotropics, Last resort to biological treatments like ECT, peer support programs, crisis line involvement, and psychotherapy. I recently went over my approach, my 16 points to my approach, so I won't do that. So in conclusion, suicide is a big problem in most societies around the world. We're not doing enough to help. Um, we're not doing enough as a society, and we're not doing enough as a field. Um, we're not doing enough to assess. We're not doing enough to intervene. We're not doing enough to treat. So we, listeners, you all, and including me, need to advocate for more awareness and more tax dollars being spent on suicide prevention. If our government spent twice as much of money, you know, 10 times as much money, that would save lives. Um, so we need to do that. If we increase therapist competence with suicide, then that will also save lives. That's a big deal. You know, the thing here is, is that there's a lot of people suffering out there. They're suffering often in silence and isolation. Their suffering is invisible. They don't, you might see them walking around. You might even know them. You might even be friends with them. You might even be one of them. And the suffering is not seen by anyone else. But there's so many people. 
you know, at any given time, 3% of people are currently thinking about suicide or, you know, suicidal thoughts are a part of their ongoing life. 3% of people. You know, what is that? I keep trying to figure out the math. On one in 33. So one in 33 people, um, you know, think of 33 people that you know. Average is uh, one of those people is currently thinking about suicide as a part of their ongoing life. A lot of people are, and, and that doesn't even include the people who are suffering that don't think about suicide, right? So there's just, you know, the, by the time you get to that level of suicidal thoughts, like the suffering has to be pretty, pretty severe and ongoing and hopeless, right? So there's a lot of suffering and it's a lot of, it's, you know, it's invisible. It's, people don't tend to Instagram their suffering. And so all the people suffering out there and, and you, you know, you and me included, feel like we're alone. And we're not alone, though. And almost universally, when people find out that they're not alone, they have hope. They feel like they belong. They don't feel thwarted anymore. They don't feel like they need to take their life anymore. So we need to change that. It's not just about you know, mental health services. You know, the politicians and the news people, uh, we need to have more mental health services. It's like, okay, one, where's the fucking money, politicians? You keep saying mental health services, where's the fucking money? It's not coming, <laughs> okay? Um, it's already underfunded, okay? Uh, okay, so, you know, mental health services. But what about the rest of the world, <laughs> you know? Like, we need to be talking about this more. We need to be more mature in our conversations about it. We need to have places where people can talk about it. There, on Reddit, there are certain subreddits where people are likely to post and reach out and say, I'm struggling right now with suicide. I need some help. So there's these little slivers of like actual you know, engagement and people communicating and supporting each other. But you know, there's this vast sea. And it's always interesting to me because you know, everyone alive today, especially in the United States, knows about the Internet, right? <laughs> they, they know that they can Google just about anything and find stuff, right? And yet so many people who have suicidal thoughts will be suicidal for months or years. And then they stumble upon this one website and they're like, oh, my God, where have you been? That's a problem. Um, you know, none of us have a, have a hard time finding Amazon to sell us brooms and books and video games. Like capitalism works in terms of connecting, uh, you know, sellable things to people who want to buy things. So we can't rely on capitalism to help us with suicide prevention. We have to have government involvement. Uh, um, or we have to have uh, philanthropic organizations that are well funded, which they typically aren't, um, but with a you know with a little bit of effort, our governments, whether local, state, federal, whatever, uh, with a little bit of effort, a little bit of money allocation, and a smart program, a smart public health program, could actually save lives with this. Again, so many people are suffering, and so many people are dying uh, unnecessarily. So uh, we need to do what we can. So I want to read a few more stories here from uh, from people who uh, had thought about suicide, just to humanize this a bit more. So um, this is from livethroughthis.org. 
And this is Grace Kim. She comes forward and you know provides her name. She's a young Asian woman. She says, I grew up really religious. My parents sent me to church every week, like three days a week. Um, then she goes on to talk about how she also thought she was going to hell because she knew she was gay. She goes on to say, I just thought there was no hope in my life. So probably like four to 24, I was really depressed. I told myself I was going to kill myself when I was eight years old, but I chose a day. I chose after I graduated from college because the whole Asian familial, familial pressures of being a scientist or a doctor. I thought I at least have to go to college and then end it for some odd reason. I lived my life really believing I had an expiration date, so I didn't take care of myself at all. I smoked a ton. I drank. I did anything horrible I could do to myself because I secretly hoped for death. I would let anyone treat me the way that they wanted to, take advantage of me. I was in a dark, dark pit for so long, and every day I just went to sleep hoping that I wouldn't wake up in the morning. I tried to think of the happiest day in my life, and I really didn't have anything to draw back on. I didn't do anything special. I just walked around San Francisco. It was more of like a goodbye to me. I had no inhibitions. I didn't give a fuck at that point. I just wanted to enjoy my last day. So I just went around. I took the time to appreciate the little things in life. I had the best day of my life. I talked to strangers for the first time, and that was a big deal for me. After that day, after that day I tried it again. I just tried enjoying life and just living for the day, and my day was amazing again. After that second day, I decided I really need to change my life. I challenged myself from that day to just be the exact kind of person I wanted to be and live the exact kind of life I wanted to, and it was up to me to do it. I have a life I'm proud of now. It's crazy to me because I never thought I, I could reach this point. Putting in the time and the effort and the thought every day just changed my life. I'm now on a path to exactly what I want to do. End of entry here. So this points to a few things. One is that suicidal thoughts can develop in an eight-year-old. This also tells us that we live in an idiotic society that still makes young gay people feel like shit, like they have to kill themselves. I mean, what the F, people? I mean, what's wrong with us? It's so just so dumb. I mean, it's so dumb, so dumb. There's so many dumb things in our society, and this is one of them. And it, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Zach Frazier on LiveThroughThis.org. He's an older gentleman. He older, older gentleman. He writes. My mother died when I was four. My dad and several of his cronies decided to sexually abuse me until I was seventeen. When you're a child, you want the attention. You're not set up to defend against stuff, which is really, really bad. It was absolutely great, even despite the fact that it was really horrible. There were films made. There were pictures made. There were all sorts of weird entertainment. Eventually, I got older and people lost interest in me. So there's this void that has permeated pretty much everything I've tried to do since then. You don't realize it when you're young. The first attempt, I was in the Navy. I entered in 1978. I was cutting at the time. At that point, I had a very powerful medication for acne and a couple of other things, and I just thought, okay, I'm just going to take all of these. I put all the pills in my hand, 
near to the point where I was about to swallow them all. I was shaking so bad and I dropped everything in the toilet. I actually started to try to fish them out. Then my stupid housemate was suddenly saying, what's going on in there? I talked to him and then I decided to talk to the officer who was in charge of our training. I said, I was about to swallow pills last night and things went wrong, but I'm still here. It was suggested that I talk to somebody so I could get help getting over this, and then I was kicked out of the Navy. I wound up getting more and more depressed. I had all sorts of booze, all sorts of sleeping pills. I had all sorts of these things, and I just started swallowing everything. About five minutes later, things exited my stomach post-haste, and I didn't have the guts to do it again. Those were my two main attempts. I've been hospitalized three times. A lot of the stuff that happens to male survivors of childhood sexual abuse comes out later. A lot of people are coming out in their 40s and late 50s and beginning to discuss this for the first time. I don't drink anymore. I'm too afraid of it because during times when I was a little bit uh, more suppressed, if the wrong set of stimulus happens, I'm off. End of entry. So this points to a lot of things here as well uh, that – uh, institutions like the Navy aren't set up to really help people with this, particularly in the 70s. Um, also, I mean, certainly the Navy does have programs, but obviously they could do better. Um, any any institution, my own institution of psychotherapy could do better. This also points to the fact that, you know, men are sexually abused. The, the new movie Bombshell uh, and the Me Too movement in general it is marketed, at least, as a – or many people perceive it to be a female victim movement. But many, many men and boys are being abused and harassed as well. So the we continue – one, we deny all victims and we uh, shame all victims. But at the very least, we're kind of giving a voice to female victims now. Uh, we need to give more of a voice, but we're giving kind of a voice, and it's helping. But we still have not recognized in our society that men also get abused and harassed. For many people, it's inconceivable. They just can't imagine that like a 55-year-old strong man like uh, Terry Crews, if you know him from the um, from the uh, Old Spice commercials, that big guy you know with the big muscles, he was sexually harassed. And uh, and felt really terrible about himself. You know, it's just people just can't imagine that doesn't make any sense to them. Humiliation and job related harassment and terror and um, being made to feel small and being made to feel violated can happen to anybody. You know, an analogy is just like, uh, can anyone be afraid of being shot? You know, we said, well, it doesn't matter how big and strong you are, right? It's everyone's the, everyone's the sa- everyone has the same amount of fear of being shot, right, or being run over by a car, or being uh, thrown off a cliff, or having their house broken into and all their things rifled through and stolen. Like we, we for some reason, we don't really associate that with being big and strong or small and quote unquote weak. We just think, well, yeah, everyone is affected by that. But somehow when it comes to sexual assault, we're always just like, well, obviously smaller people are more upset by it. And certainly stature can play a role, right? You know, if it can play a factor, but when someone has power, they have power. And uh, that's just the bottom line. And when someone can ruin your career and make you do things that you don't want to do, 
they can do that to you. And stature and strength and the ability to fight doesn't have anything to do with that. Anyway, so that's one thing this also points to. And just how many people are walking around today with this these kinds of traumas in their life and are you know just trying to survive minute to minute and will occasionally try to kill themselves. The other thing that this story points to is his stories sound kind of impulsive, right? Imagine if someone was there with him during that time that he could actually talk to. You know, he he had he talks about two different attempts where he's just like I just decided I was going to do it. And and so there's different flavors of suicide attempts, right? Some people it's just like you know, this ongoing nagging thought. And then one day there's like, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And other people, it's like, they think about it for a while, they plan it all out. And so there's, you know, there's different styles. The other thing this points to is that um, once this guy actually was helped, he stopped having suicidal thoughts and he feels like his life is getting back in order. Um, I want to also talk about people in my professional life. So I, I'm going to talk about my own clients, but you know, I've changed the details to preserve confidentiality. So this per- first person is um, I'm going to present is female, 20s, and she had child physical abuse. She has what I would have characterized as passive-aggressive personality disorder, dependent type, meaning that um, she was abused, made to feel incompetent and dependent on other people and didn't feel uh, – was pathologically per- – she perceived herself – she pathologically perceived herself to be incompetent in life. She was childish in a way. Uh, She often identified with the underdogs in the world. And she pretty much had constant suicidal ideation every day. She cried often. She had minor plans but never attempted. She seemed happy to everyone. You know, if anyone met her, they would have said, oh, my God, she's so happy. You know, her life is good, all these kinds of things. Um she had very self-destructive behavior. She would drink occasionally. She would overdrink when she drank. She had some mild eating disorders. Uh, she would have sex with men who liked to be rough. She had some masochism and sexuality that she wasn't quite um, happy with. You know, it wasn't you know masochism BDSM is fine, but she found herself having sex in ways that was damaging to her physically and emotionally. And afterwards, it didn't didn't sit well with her. She worked hard to find peace in her life through creative pursuits, through family, by avoiding things that made her feel bad. And it worked to reduce her thoughts of suicide, but she still occasionally thinks about it when she was stressed out. Another client here that I changed details to, pre- to preserve confidentiality, a male in his 50s, borderline personality. His personality didn't match well with his parents. He wasn't really abuse so much as the dynamic between him and his parents were just really not the right fit. And so he developed borderline personality as a result. High functioning, good job, good father to his kids, uh, got along with his ex-wife. He was thinking about suicide often, particularly when he felt rejected by somebody. He engaged in cutting sometimes he made plans a few times each year to kill himself, but he always managed to reach out to someone, which reduced his motivation for suicide. He became heavily involved with his church, which gave him meaning and connection. After many years of therapy, he eventually internalized our relationship, which healed his relational traumas, and he was less symptomatic. And his suicidal thoughts ended for the most part. Another client here, uh, changed the details. Black teen male in a bad neighborhood, lots of violence, 
constant threat of bullying and gang violence. Became frustrated uh, with his situation and also had a fascination with knives and guns as a way of coping with his fear. Um, he would, you know, carry guns and knives with him, you know, to school and whatnot to, as a way of making himself feel better, which makes sense, right? No support in his family. He had thoughts of hurting other people and himself. So he had thoughts. He had homicidal f- fantasies and suicidal thoughts. He was high risk. He had a plan. He had a means. He had guns. Over time, he was able to see how his neighborhood was getting under his skin. He resolved to not let that bring him down. And over time through therapy, he no longer had suicidal ideation. Uh, Another person here that I worked with, again, changed some details. Man, bipolar, uh, in his 30s. First manic episode was in his mid-20s. He had massive manic episodes that involved psychosis. He was diagnosed, put on meds, which helped. But he was grieving a lot of losses related to his um, symptoms because because of his bipolar, he lost his job or he he was worried about losing his job. He was worried about his future because he's like, wait, so my bipolar is never going to stop. I'm always going to have these problems. He, you know, through his symptomology, he alienated his friends and his family. A lot of them didn't want to talk to him anymore. You know, his life was just completely altered by this mental illness. He was very sad. He had thoughts of suicide. The depression didn't help, obviously. He had a very rocky life for a number of years. Um, He went off his meds. His symptoms reemerged. You know, lots of bumps in the road. But he got support from his family, particularly his father, thank God. He eventually found stability, and he no longer thinks about suicide. Another client here, um, again, change the details. Teenager, eating disorder. She was sexually abused by a family member early in life. Took her a long time to admit that to me. Her mother had abandoned her. She lived with her father, who was a cold person and a distant person. She had a very high-functioning life. She had good grades. She looked put together. She seemed like a model child, a model teenager. But inside, she was deeply suffering, low self-esteem, lack of self. She thought she was nothing, deep sadness and pain, frequent thoughts of suicide, self-destructive behavior, you know, in terms of the eating disorder and cutting. She found a friend and latched on tight. This helped, but it was also not exactly healthy because there was a lot of Boundary issues and dependency between the two of them, they they sort of would shut everyone else out even when that wasn't necessarily healthy. But it was okay, you know, it was helpful a little bit to have a really close friend that she could latch on to. And with a lot of therapy over many years, she eventually recovered from her eating disorder and she no longer had suicidal ideation. All right, this last person here. Female adult, rape victim. She was sexually assaulted as an adult. She thought that she was going to die during the assault, during the rape. She suffered PTSD symptoms for several several years without knowing what it was. She also had some mild association. She ended up in my office for relationship issues. And over many, many months, years, I discovered that she had PTSD. It took a long time to treat because of the severity of the uh, and the dissociation she would have severe symptoms and association in session. 
During treatment, she became suicidal. Um, you know, she had her ups and downs, a lot of anxiety. Triggers were everywhere uh, regarding her, you know, traumas that she had been to, through. She had to take several breaks from therapy over the years because trauma treatment often involves like, okay, I just need a break. Took a long time, took many years, but she eventually recovered and she was no longer suicidal. So I hope that this provides, you know, some humanness to these uh, technical things in suicide assessment. You know, these are real lives. They're, they're messy lives, like all of us have messy lives. There's bumps in the road. There's other issues that we're dealing with. You know, it's not – no two suicidal clients are the same, right? And no two suicidal treatments are the same. It's very complicated, and things morph and change over time. But often in my experience, I guess universally in my experience, since I've never lost a client to suicide, is we just have to stick with it. You know, just do, do your best. Now, I, a part of it is luck of the draw that I just haven't gotten clients who were, say, on the severe end of the suicidal um, intention scale. But also... You know, I just I just always took it really seriously, the sort of style of therapy that I do, and I know many of you out there do it as well, is that when people come in and, and say things to me, you know, I just take it real seriously, and I'm, I'm there with them. And if they start talking about the fact they want to kill themselves, you know, I, I get down in the dirt with them. I'm like, you know, tell me, like, why? You know, what's going on? Do you, do you have any hope? Do you like yourself at all? Do you think the world has any purpose for you? Do you think you have any meaning, you know, and, you know, and when they say no, I'm like, okay, you know, that makes sense that you'd want to kill yourself because of that. I have to say from the outside looking in, I see someone who has a, a lot of wonderful things going, you know, I, I'm, you just got to get down there with them. You know, it's, um, you can't do it from a distance. It's hard to describe. I don't think I'm really describing it that well, but anyway, People ask me sometimes, you know, what what do I do? And I, I, the thing is, is like I said earlier, you just have to be a good therapist. And I, it's almost impossible for me to tell you briefly how to be a good therapist. You know, there's there's no technique to being a good therapist. It's it's a matter of wisdom, which is which derives from experience and learning, and and good supervision and modeling uh, by more seasoned therapists that you respect. It just it just takes a long time to figure out what to do. And to connect the people who need it with these sorts of therapists, you know, it's just it's really hard to do, but you know, it's worth trying. And if you're one of those people out there who thinks about suicide, I and I know many of you are. Um if you're one of the people who thinks about suicide and you're being treated well and you feel like you're in a good you know, good sort of treatment regimen with good support or whatever, then, you know, good for you. And I encourage you actually to advocate you know, and tell your story because people need to hear it, especially people who are thinking about suicide. You know, one of the greatest things you can do as someone who has recovered from suicide or who was managing it is to talk about it, to normalize it, to make it um, understood that lots of people are in that camp. To give hope to someone, you could literally save someone's life. To you people out there who don't have hope or who aren't really in the best of treatment situations or 
have just had a recent loss and it just seems like it's hard to go on. You know, the suffering just continues or the onslaught of a mood disorder just continues to you know, drag you down. Understand that many people have have come before you who have found a place where they can live. It doesn't mean that the suffering ends. It doesn't mean the mood disorder ends, but it does mean that you wake up in the morning with hope. You wake up in the morning with, um, you know, you're looking forward to the day and you might have your ups and downs, but you don't think about killing yourself as a result. There's a, there's a path. It's unknown to me what that path would look like for you, but there is a path. And if you keep trying and you, uh, it, you know, a lot of these stories that I read about people who recover from suicide, a lot of it is kind of random. You know, one person was just like, okay, it's my last day on the planet. I'm going to walk around San Francisco with a brand and, and not really give a fuck anymore. And there was something about that that just, caused everything to get better for her. She's just like, that opened her up to the world. She saw the world in a new light. Um, For the first time, she was kind of like living a normal life because since she was young, she just thought, well, I need to die because I'm a, you know, because I'm gay. And it was just that little thing, you know, maybe that's the thing for you. For another person, it was getting connected with the right therapist. For another person, um, I didn't tell this story, but um, I know of another person who, uh, they were like, okay, I'm going to kill myself. And the plan got a little, they were just about to do it. And their plan got a little complicated and they get a phone call from their sister to watch a movie at their house with their kids. And so he goes over to his sister's house. He's and he, so he's like, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll kill myself later or tomorrow or something. He goes, he goes over to his sister's house and watches some movies with his, with his nieces and nephews. And all the suicidal thoughts just went away. It was just hanging out with nieces and nephews and his sister, um, and boom, completely cured of suicide. And and it wasn't like the problems ended, but it opened his mind of just like, wait, so an hour ago I was I was like hundred I was one hundred ten percent sure I was going to kill myself at that moment, you know, and now I don't want to do it anymore. You know what is up with that? And it it just helps to see like, oh wait, so sometimes I have this desire and it doesn't really, it's not really the real me is just sort of this temporary thing that I just need to get through. You know, there's, there's so many different ways in which people find the other side of the fence from suicide. And I encourage you to, to keep looking for it. And the fact that you haven't found it yet doesn't mean it's not there. And the, the fact that um, you feel alone is because our society doesn't know how to deal with this, but there are people who do. Um, you know, you can't go to the normal venues and expect things to be helpful because our society is, is so broken in a lot of ways. We don't know what to do. We're not told what to do. Um, we're told all these messages of just like, hey, TMI, keep it to yourself, um, because we're all basically just like 13-year-olds at recess time. And so, but that doesn't mean that there aren't adults and and wise and caring and you know, perceptive people out there. There are. You just have to connect with them. And sometimes they're in unlikely places. Sometimes they're your barista. Sometimes they're your therapist. Sometimes they're your cousin or sometimes they're, I don't know, someone else. Or they're an animal that perceives you well. Um, That's certainly possible. So uh, reach out, keep trying. In all likelihood, you will find the path. Um, it's it's just a matter of time because so many people have come before you and have found that path. So I hope you find that and feel free to reach out to me by all means. 
Um, if you do reach out to me, people, uh, for any reason, go to the website, click on the Contact Us page. That's the best way to contact me. Uh, let me know what you think. I This episode went on for, what, eight hours or something? I thought it was only going to be a few hours based on the notes. But, you know, I, I the last time I did this deep dive, it was like, I don't know, 12 or 13 hours or something. And um, I think this presentation, you know, is shorter, which is good, but it's also, I think, written better. And I, I think I explained it better this time. Um, so uh, let me know what you think. And if you know of other people, other clinicians that don't know about the podcast and could benefit from these kinds of things, you know, turn them onto the podcast because a lot of the people discover the podcast through word of mouth or postings on Facebook or something, you know. So, um, you know, part of the reason why I say that is because self-promotion. But also, you know, I think that this sort of stuff, you know, it's limited. This this information is limited, particularly for other clinicians, right? And so um, it sounds <laughs> pompous, but, uh, well, what I'll say is, when you find something, when you find anything that is worthwhile as a clinician, it's almost a um, ethical duty or a moral duty to like inform other clinicians that that the thing exists, whether it's my podcast or the billions of other things out there that are helpful, because there's so few um, good sources out there, and there, there's a lot of misinformation. You know, just think about all the therapists out there who need to hear some someone talk with some authority about suicide, with some system, with some helpfulness, you know, it's, and so uh, whether it's this presentation or something else, you know, do what you can to spread the word because it, it, it sounds like grandiose thoughts, but you could literally save someone's life. I mean, it's that important. One in 67 people in the United States will die from suicide. You could save one of those people by, you know, say you post something and another clinician you know, hears this podcast or the thousands of other things that are out there that are helpful, and that you know makes them a, more perceptive to their clients. They pick up something from a few of their clients, and their treatment is better, and their prevention efforts are better. And one of those suicidal clients doesn't attempt when they would have otherwise. You know, it's a big deal. So, you know, spread the word. And please take care of yourself and take care of other people because you deserve it. You know you do. You really, really do. 